In our top story this morning, undocumented immigrants across the country are on edge as immigration and customs enforcement raids get underway this week. This is the scene playing out in cities across the country. Neighbors taking on ICE agents. In Nashville, they form this human chain, successfully blocking two immigration agents from taking away... To immigrant communities across the country bracing for an ICE crackdown to kick into high gear now. Those deportations... Hundreds of undocumented immigrants taken into custody in Mississippi. And what officials are calling the largest single show me the order. No, show me the order. A woman documents as her neighbor is detained by immigration authorities. No, a nation without borders is not a nation. Beginning today, the United States of America gets back control of its borders, gets back its borders. Thank you. We're going to build the wall. We have no choice. We have no choice. Build that wall. 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 Build that wall! And today I have to tell you, I am at a loss. I'm at a loss because I'm tired of mourning black and brown lives who historically have been targeted, surveilled, and killed by the state. It is time we recognize and stand up against all the different forms of white supremacy. It's early morning and already scorching hot as our truck crosses into U.S. Bureau of Land Management land. This is the Sonoran Desert. For David and I, the beauty of the vast open desert is stunning. A forest of saguaro cacti, the largest in the world, stretches out as far as the eye can see. David stops several times to capture the soundscape, as we learned to do from Bernie Krause in episode 44, Do Not Disturb. We hear the sound of wind breathing life and vibrance into dry shrubs, the homes of chirping insects. We hear crows caw and songbirds tweet. And all around us is the stillness of the vast desert, teeming with life but hidden from the oppressive sun. It's truly a magical experience for us, but not everyone calls it beautiful. For the thousands of people trekking north to escape poverty, violence, genocide, and climate-induced environmental disasters, this region represents desperate struggle, and far too often, 
death. I unlatch and swing open a large metal gate, which David and Doug proceed through. Doug is driving a large pickup truck with a converted bed holding a massive 300 gallon water tank, a generator, two blue 55 gallon drum barrels, and several long metal poles. We go there in um, February because uh, if we've had a good winter rain, it's covered in flowers. Doug is a driver for Humane Borders, a nonprofit based in Tucson, Arizona, that manages water stations throughout the desert on the U.S.-Mexico border. Which is cool in the desert, you know, to find a place covered in flowers. Looks different going this way. <laughs> Their mission is to save desperate people from a horrible death by dehydration and exposure and to create a just and humane environment in the borderlands. Today, we will visit three water stations in both Saguaro National Park and the Ironwood Forest National Monument. Humane Borders is one of three main organizations patrolling the borderlands with the goal of assisting migrants in need. Besides them, there are the Tucson Samaritans and No Mas Muertes, or No More Deaths. And the water stations that Humane Borders establish are either approved by city and county permits, or they are placed with permission on private land. The city of Tucson owns land out here as a way of protecting it from being used for other purposes to protect the water rights. Um, and they have been really supportive because, you know, they can point to their maps and say, wherever we have tanks, we don't have dead bodies. You know, we don't have a history of dead bodies. So, you know, if anybody complains, they go, well, you can complain, but we find it's effective in our, you know, on our lands to have water tanks. We were surprised to learn that even ranchers who support the border wall and anti-immigration policies support Humane Borders' mission and will allow water stations to be installed on their land. And part of the reason, as Doug explains it, is that harsh U.S. policies at the U.S.-Mexico border have diverted migrants away from official checkpoints and forced them into treacherous and dangerous routes in the sprawling 120,000 square mile Sonoran Desert. And because of the brutal environment, which can reach 120 degrees with little to no naturally occurring water or food, the watering tanks ranchers use for their livestock become a common target for desperate people trekking north from Mexico. In addition, between 1994 when border security in the United States became increasingly militarized and 2012, an estimated 5,000 people died in the Sonoran Desert. Regardless of a person's political ideas on immigration, no one wants to discover dead bodies on their land, and so many ranchers will consider allowing humanitarian water stations on their private property if it prevents unnecessary deaths and lowers the number of migrants targeting their own water systems. Yeah, it's a it's it's complicated. Like I said, some people feel like 
you're telling migrants, come on up, we've got water for you. <laughs> Which is just crazy because there isn't water everywhere. It's a huge, huge area. But we do what we can do, and that's the bottom line. The Tucson Samaritans' mission is to save lives in the southern Arizona desert, and they are people of faith and conscience who are responding directly, practically, and passionately to the crisis at the U.S.-Mexico border. Like humane borders, the Samaritans only access land that is legally open to them. But they provide a more direct service to migrants, patrolling by vehicles and often with nurses, doctors, and other experts to provide care when needed. Finally, Nomas Muertes. Like the Samaritans, desert aid workers like those from No More Deaths go to extreme lengths to end death and suffering in the Mexico-U.S. borderlands, often making lengthy trips by foot into the most treacherous parts of the desert to find people in need. But their work also puts them in direct conflict with the federal government. Nomas Muertes goes wherever there are migrants in need, and their water stations are often single-gallon jugs and water bottles that can be left in the most treacherous paths in the desert. And this does not mean that what they do is illegal, because it is never illegal to provide water, food, and medical assistance to another human being in distress. Providing care to victims of humanitarian crises is something Nonprofits and NGOs like the International Red Cross do all around the world in times of crisis. And what is going on at the southern border of the United States is unquestionably a humanitarian crisis. But for agencies like the U.S. Border Patrol, who consider parts of the desert as their exclusive territory, desert aid workers are perceived as conspirators carrying out illegal activity on land they should have no right to access. For example, Scott Warren, a volunteer with Nomas Muertes, is a geographer in his late 30s who has drawn national attention for the past two years as the federal government and U.S. Border Patrol attempted to prosecute him. He faced up to 20 years in prison for the water, food, and shelter he gave two Central American migrants when they showed up at the door of an aid house he was volunteering at after they had just crossed one of the most dangerous stretches of desert. Warren provided care to the men in need, but told them he could not help them escape the law. Nevertheless, when Border Patrol agents came, Warren was arrested and charged with three felonies, including conspiracy and harboring. Two years later, in November 2019, Warren was found not guilty by a jury of his peers. Yeah. Alright, you can bring this, I'll bring this. You've been taking notes, right, David? Mm-hmm. Good, thank you. David, Doug, and I arrive at our second water station, the Tim Holt station, and immediately get out to observe the area. Among the desert brush is a humane border's 55-gallon barrel laying on its side on top of a small wooden stand. Drawing attention to the area, and right next to the barrel, is a 30-foot metal pole supporting a custom-designed blue flag featuring a water spigot. Once again, I'm pretty sure everything's going to be okay. 
Because when the flag is up, that usually means things are okay. <laughs> there have been some energetic volunteers here collecting rocks to keep the flag up. The winds can really pick up. That's a curb-bill thrasher. That's one of my favorite desert birds. It is standard protocol at Humane Borders to check the water quality of every station they visit. And to do so, Doug first uses a key to unlock a metal clamp. Twirl it around. That secures the barrel's bunk cap and prevents malicious tampering. A necessary deterrent, as Humane Borders has had to respond to groups in the past who have spoiled water or poured it out as a way to voice their anti-immigrant sentiments. Once the cap is open, we visually inspect the water for algae growth. This water looks fine to the naked eye, but to get a closer look, we pour some of it into a cup, and then Doug inserts a TDS meter, or total dissolved solids meter, to check for the concentration of salt, metals, and minerals that may have accumulated in the water since it was last filled. That would be cool if we had one of these for taking the temperature. Is that 111? That's 411. So that's getting towards, towards bad water. Well, want to replace it? Yeah. This water fails the test, so we pour the barrel out and fill it back up with Put fresh, water. clean water. Pulling water with the generator from the 300-gallon tank on the back of the truck. David, it's your job to remind me to close the the uh, valve here. Yeah, got it. Remember when everybody was stealing copper and brass from everything? Yeah. <laughs> People were stealing these. The spigot. Yeah, they wanted the spigot. It was because back then we had solid brass, really nice spigot. Little did they know they could have just walked a yeah, <laughs> that's right. The <laughs> they could have got their own. All right, uh, hold it. Um, actually, spray the plants first. like 60 gallons of water so, and we have way more water than we need so, as Doug explains to, it's important to make ourselves visible at each water, water station so that anyone in need of help who may be watching from a distance will feel comfortable approaching us the desert yeah, is a massive and unforgiving <laughs> place and Doug has been approached by those too desperate to continue their journey and today, there is a disproportionate number of women and children attempting the journey. And then I usually, while this is going on, I usually walk around a little, see if there's any sign of activity. Since we didn't see any water use, I doubt there is. I'm David Torsivia. I'm Daniel Forkner. And this is Ashes, Ashes, a show about systemic issues, cracks in civilization, collapse the environment, and if we're unlucky, the end of the world. But if we learn from all of this, maybe we can stop that. The world might be broken, but it doesn't have to be. Okay, we're back in the studio at this moment. Uh, our time in the field at this point, because this 
stuff has been a little bit of a process in getting produced and out there. It has been a couple months ago. We've had time to sit back and reflect and try and figure out how our experiences on the border relate to the people that we're talking about and relate to this larger history of the United States, of Mexico, of other countries, of labor, of people moving around. It's a large spanning story and that's what you're about to find over the course of this extremely long episode. And we want to talk a little bit about some of the voices you're going to hear throughout this. We've conducted many interviews. We've conducted an uh, enormous amount of research, all of which you can find on our website, ashesashes.org, or the mini site specifically for this series called borders.ashesashes.org. Check that out for uh, episode-specific information. But we want to sort of lay out what you can expect over the next few hours as we get into this topic and try and tackle it as thoroughly as we can with our limited resources and time. Yeah, David. And, and before we introduce the voices you'll hear, let's just talk about the overall outline of the show, if you will. And when we were originally coming up with the concept of this, we found ourselves drawn to three broad questions. One being, you know, what is the state of migration and the U.S.-Mexico border and the policies around that? Like, where are we right now? And then another question being, how did we get here? How did we get to a state where these uh, cruel policies and you know the violence that we hear about and just so many of the stories that we're, we're hearing that are just causing us distress, how did we get to that point? And then, of course, the question we always ask is, what do we do about this? And so we decided to arrange the show in these three parts. Part one, where are we now? And we're going to explore the history of Border Patrol, the changing landscape of migration policy, the emergence of what many call concentration camps within our own country. We'll talk about the process an immigrant takes to become a refugee in America. We'll talk about the state our communities are in when they have to come head to head with the policies that ICE, the Department of Homeland Security, and in collaboration with the police are carrying out on the streets of, of our neighborhoods. And we'll talk about a couple other issues. And part two, is asking that question of, well, how did we get here? We're exploring the history from the very beginnings of borders and border patrol up until modern day, looking at the violence and economic problems that caused the situation we see in not just the United States, but in Mexico, Honduras, Guatemala, all over this area, and really exploring how we evolved and, and navigated these complex routes of history to bring us to what many in the media are calling this migrant crisis. So this is our big question of not only understanding the history, but also the mechanisms that push that history along. It answers that question of why is this happening? It's a complicated question with a complicated answer, but I, we tried to be as thorough and as deep in this as we could. And, and an important piece of that, that second part of, of why we're here is the idea that maybe this border crisis or my, migrant crisis, whatever the media wants to call it, actually might be benefiting those in power and, and how it might do that. What are the who are the companies? What are, who are the, what are the political interests that actually gain from chaos and human misery? And this, of course, brings us finally to that third section, which asks that question we try to ask in every single episode, what can we do? And so we're looking not only at what we can do as listeners of this show, as citizens of these countries or maybe other places around the world, but also looking at specifically what certain people are already doing. 
And you're going to hear from a lot of these people who are actively working on this problem throughout this episode. We have a wide variety of interviews with legal experts, with activists, with people who are actively working in this area, and they share a huge amount of knowledge with us in addition to all the research Daniel and I have performed. So you're going to hear primarily from five people. And I feel like we should just go ahead and say that in this seven-hour episode or whatever it is, a lot of the opinions we express are not necessarily those represented by or uh, held by the people that we have interviewed or the organizations that they represent. Thank you, Daniel Forkner, Esquire. <laughs> we have Azadeh Shashahani, Director of Project South's Legal and Advocacy Department. And Project South is an organization committed to social justice work in the U.S. South, originally founded in 1986 as the Institute to Eliminate Poverty and Genocide. And the Legal and Advocacy Department specifically focuses on immigrants' rights, uh, the protection of Muslim communities that are facing state repression, and the support of social justice movements in the Global South. Uh, their attorneys and legal expertise is an asset to grassroots organizations throughout the movement. Now, Azadeh herself has previously served as president of the National Lawyers Guild and as director of the National Security and Immigrants' Rights Project for the American Civil Liberties Union of Georgia, among many, many other things. We believe that a fundamental change needs to happen. So when it comes to uh, immigration, immigrants' rights, for example, you know, we believe that um, ICE needs to be abolished, that detention centers need to be shut down as a whole. Um, you know, we don't want to make prettier jails. We want them to be shut down. Following Azadeh, we have Padia Mixon, CEO of New American Pathways, since its formation in 2014. Now, New American Pathways is a refugee resettlement nonprofit that serves over 5,000 refugees per year. And the nonprofit offers services at every single step of the way, from picking refugees up at the airport to securing housing and education, jobs, and ultimately guiding them toward citizenship and the successful lives that we hope they'll find one day here in the United States. Right now, we are seeing the worst refugee crisis in history. There are more refugees now than there were during and after World War II in the world. And the United States has historically had the largest refugee resettlement program, although right now we do not. We have lowered the numbers dramatically at the same time that the need for finding a safe place for refugees has grown. Aaron Argeta. Actually, David, it's more like Argeta. Aaron Argeta. Is a direct service attorney with the Southern Poverty Law Center. The SPLC, as many of you are familiar with, is an organization dedicated to fighting hate and bigotry and is seeking justice for the most vulnerable members of our society. They use litigation, education, and advocacy to fight for justice. The SPLC was famously formed in 1971 in Montgomery, Alabama, and has since been an important organization in civil rights and other civil justice movements. And Aaron's role as direct service attorney is specifically nestled in one of the SPLC's programs, called the Southern Immigrant Freedom Initiative, also known as CIFI. This provides free legal representation to immigrants who are detained in the Deep South. It's wrong. I don't think that we should be making money off humans being detained. Um, and I think it creates terrible incentives that for, for everyone, for the private company, and then even the locale where the 
detention centers are located, they get a contract. So they get a certain amount of money per bed per night. And so, yeah, it, it creates an incentive to build these, have these facilities, keep them filled. Um, and people are making money off of that instead of looking at ways, because like I said, these people shouldn't be detained. They could be released. They could have their case. They could ask for asylum without being detained. But there is this reverse incentive because it's a huge money-making operation to detain people. We will hear from Amilcar Valencia, who is the executive director of El Refugio in Georgia. Amilcar has been involved in the immigrant rights movement ever since he moved to Georgia from El Salvador. And as director of El Refugio, he helped found the organization's hospitality house and helps those in detention through the organization's mission to recognize the humanity of people who are detained. They lead face-to-face visitations to Stewart Detention Facility in Georgia. They provide housing and warm meals to the families and those visiting their loved ones who are in detention, and they offer friendship and support to asylum seekers and their families. I believe that when everyone is welcome, we all be free. So if you believe that immigrants should be loved and welcomed, turn to them and let them know. You can do that every day. We do support immigrants in our community, and when you commit to defend and protect their rights. So if ICE comes to, their, to them, you will protect them. You will be beside them to stand up for their rights, to harbor them, and to fight for them. Like everyone else, we deserve to be here, and so do you. Thank you. And finally, we will continue to hear from Doug, who we heard earlier in the intro, guiding us in the Sonoran Desert. Um, Doug is a longtime volunteer with Humane Borders. He's a teacher, and he was an amazing guide to us during our visit to the Sonoran Desert in Tucson, Arizona. I just can't get over how beautiful it is out here. Yeah. Not everybody calls it beautiful, but... Well, yeah, I guess that's I, true. I think it is. We call it the beautiful, cruel country. It's beautiful and cruel at the same time. Here's the dude ranch I was telling you about. And also, before we start, we'd like to take a moment to recognize the incredible book, No Wall They Can Build, A Guide to Borders and Migration Across North America. This is a fabulous, fantastic resource written by anonymous desert aid activists, uh, published by Crime Think, the uh, collective book publishing group. It's, it's an incredible resource. I cannot recommend it enough. It really helped us to round out all of our research and to get a lot more information from people who are actively working directly on the ground. So with all that, Daniel, let's dig in and sort of lay out what this crisis, as the media likes to call it, is. And uh, this is sort of laying the groundwork as we explore all these concepts in more depth, but really to define what it is we're talking about directly. There's a lot of numbers here, but as we get going, uh, we'll get more and more into the systemic component and less of these quantitative measurements. But, but it is important to have an idea of exactly what we're dealing with. Yeah, I mean, right now, around the world, the UN shows that the number of migrants are outpacing the growth of population around the world. And as the number of migrants increase, we have uh, in parallel the rise of authoritarianism, um, not just in the U.S., but around the world. And that means that the way we treat these migrants becomes increasingly cruel. In 2016, 
U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, detained some 352,000 people in that year. Uh, the daily average uh, was between 31,000 and 34,000. But then in October 2016, the daily average reached a new record high of about 41,000 people in any given day. And today, ICE detains an average of over 50,000 people each day and around 450,000 people in a given year. And Daniel, just as those numbers increased over those years, since then it's exploded even more. 2019 has climbed to a six-year high for migrants crossing the border seeking asylum. And according to journalist Anna Maria Berry Jester, quote, unlike previous waves of immigration, these are not single men from Mexico looking to blend in and find work. Most are families fleeing gang violence, political instability, or dire poverty. And we'll go in more depth later on in the show about why that is. But because we as a country and our policies are so committed to detaining, it seems like, as many people as possible, it's expensive for the U.S. taxpayer. In 2016, the cost for immigration detention was $6.1 billion. And speaking of high-cost projects, we're seeing the construction of the border wall here in the United States with some money given from Congress, more pulled from Pentagon budgets, and that itself is increasing to six-plus billion dollars and probably going to increase even more as the wall continues to be built out and we find it's more and more expensive than expected. This is a huge amount of money that could go to helping people that is instead being spent on keeping people out. But the walls being built here in the United States are no different than anywhere else in the world. We are building more walls now as a collective human race than ever before in human history. And uh, something we really want to keep in mind is that while this episode does focus on the American southern border, these types of stories are playing out all around the world right now as these numbers of refugees increase, whether it's from economic crises, whether it's from war, or whether it's from climate change, which influences those, as well as causing its own problems, these problems will only get worse. And we need to keep that in mind as we go forward and explore the causes of why and exactly how this issue is manifesting itself right now. And as this migrant crisis progresses, the collective political approach to incarceration and wall building is disastrous for human rights and contributing to the dangerous conditions that migrants have to continually fight against just to survive. For example, the Pima County Office of the Medical Examiner in Arizona has tallied some 2,816 deaths in the Sonoran Desert between 2000 and 2017. And this is a figure that gets quoted often. It's in many articles that, you know, 3,000 people have died in the desert. But the fact is it's unquestionably lower than the actual number of deaths that no one will ever truly uncover. I mean, in the first place, this figure is just... It's just the number of remains that the Pima County Medical Examiner's Office has physically examined. It doesn't speak to the mass graves or remains that are never found. And Pima County is just one county. The true number of deaths just on our U.S.-Mexico border is a figure that, you know, probably only a higher power will ever know. Suffice to say, there is a crisis at the border. There is an immigration crisis, but it's not what we're told by the media. The crisis is not that America is being invaded or flooded by immigrants bringing crime and disease. The crisis is that America has built the most sprawling system of detention and surveillance the world has ever seen, which for now relies on the unjust criminalization of people 
by ethnicity and skin color. And the crisis is not merely that this system exists, but that it benefits those in power. People who profit billions from atop their private prison corporations or their drug trafficking organizations or their surveillance and technology companies designing drones, camera towers, analytics software. This system benefits politicians who mobilize racism and fear to justify inhumane policies of segregation, family separation, and foreign policies of genocide and war, which all, of course, feeds back into those profits of those industries which we have railed on on this show over and over and over again. Yeah, it's really a sprawling system that really doesn't get the attention it deserves. I mean, we, we always hear about like individual stories of migration at the border, or or we hear large numbers that get used as like scare taxes. We're like, oh my gosh, like so many people coming across our border. But we never hear about the infrastructure that is created to funnel these people directly through our borders. We, we never hear about the infrastructure that was planned by Border Patrol itself to direct the flow of migrants into certain places in the desert, specifically so that they would die and suffer. We don't hear about the companies that are overseas profiting hundreds of millions of dollars off of military uh, tools and technologies that we as American taxpayers are purchasing so that they can surveil us and all these people and improve their system so that they can uh, generate even more profits. I mean, it's, there's so many pieces to this that we have to explore. And at the heart of this crisis is a system of control and domination that encompasses our U.S. foreign policy. It, it encompasses gangs and extra-governmental groups uh, along the journey north for migrants from Central America to the United States. It encompasses U.S. domestic policy. Um, for example, the collaboration between local law enforcement and Immigration and Customs Enforcement, something we'll, we'll talk about. And most importantly, the, the enforcement and control apparatuses of this U.S. immigration policy, you know, specifically ICPP, Border Patrol, and the Department of Homeland Security is really complicit in so much of the cruelty that's being carried out. And, you know, we'll talk about concentration camps. We'll talk about many things. The Associate Press just recently in January 2020 toured a whole bunch of uh, detention facilities in the United States and found them to be in complete disarray and chaos. And we have collectively empowered some really troubling groups within our government. And um, I just want to highlight one story, David, if that's all right. It's a little bit off topic, but I, I just want to give a, you know, a little bit of the sense of the madness that we're dealing with here. Um, and I say it's a little off topic because you know, the focus of this show is going to be the U.S.-Mexico border, and this it doesn't really relate to that, but it deals with the same enforcement arms of the U.S. government, specifically ICE. So between January and November of 2019, uh, U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement arrested and deported some 250 students of a university in Detroit, Michigan. Now, this is called the University of Farmington. It was formed in 2015. It recently closed down. But most of the students uh, were from India. They were pursuing graduate degrees in technology and computer science, that type of thing. And they were arrested when it was determined that their student visas were not valid and that they were here illegally. And some of them were actually given lengthy jail sentences. Now, what happens, you might ask, David, right? Um, okay, we have a bunch of students coming over from India. They're going to this university. 
but they have, you know, invalid student visas. Must be a giant scam, right? Sounds that way. Well, as it turns out, it was a giant scam because the University of Farmington was completely fake. It was created by the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. They even went so far as to get a real accreditation agency to list the university as legitimate. And you could even find on the Department of Homeland Security's website, this university was listed as a legitimate institution of higher learning. Um, undercover agents were hired to act as university officials, which they then proceeded to entice students from India, providing them with real and legitimate student visas that permitted them to legally enter the United States. And then after this fake university actually run by Homeland Security collected millions of dollars in tuition fees from these students, the government suddenly declared the university was a fake. All those student visas were invalid. And then they arrested, you know, 250 people over the year. And eight of those students have been charged with conspiracy for visa fraud and sentenced to up to 30 months in jail for some of them. This is such a, a Kafka moment. And I, I think really drives home uh, just how absurd this system has gotten to be, where there are people out there who are sitting in jail or who are banned from ever reentering the United States because they applied to a legal and fully accredited school given a actual valid visa but because they were unknowingly part of a pointless sting operation designed to generate i guess millions of dollars off books for the, these organizations uh they're just screwed for no reason no reason at all except there were easy marks when uh somebody has the backing of the government to do this stuff that's insane. Absolutely insane. But we see these types of stories happening over and over and over all across the border where things just don't make any sense if you look at the world with any sort of compassion or logic. But if you look through these, these lenses that we're talking about of power and profit, then suddenly all these dots start connecting. Yeah. And, you know, clearly these students lost out on a lot of money and time. But I would say that relative to a lot of the stories that, that we've seen in terms of people coming up through the U.S.-Mexico border and, and then being stuck in concentration camps for years, I would say their experience is relatively mild given some of the alternatives. But obviously, to get to this point, the policies around immigration and border patrol specifically, th these things have undergone massive changes, right? So maybe we should start this show, David, with a little bit of history on the good old border patrol. So crossing the border is a, an excruciating process. Uh, it's a very daunting challenge for so many people, made in large part by the security around the U.S.-Mexico border and the aggressive nature of patrolling that border, rounding people up, and creating an atmosphere of fear that drives people into these treacherous routes while encouraging the proliferation of, of smuggling and the drug trade, which is something we'll talk about in more depth in part two. But this border security enforcement was not always like this, David. I mean, Border Patrol used to be extremely small. I mean, just a handful of agents covering the entire country. And so I think it's important to at least trace the broad arc of history 
of our border patrol and, and the nature of enforcement on this border. And the United States Border Patrol is the enforcement arm of the U.S. Customs and Border Patrol Agency, or CBP, which is itself the largest federal law enforcement agency today that is housed within the United States Department of Homeland Security. A lot of layers of uh, departments here, David, department in department. And today, the United States Border Patrol is a massive federal law enforcement institution with around 20,000 active agents who are mostly stationed at the southern border. But it wasn't always this large. And as we were surprised to learn while visiting the Border Patrol History Museum in El Paso, this agency did not even fall under the umbrella of U.S. national security for the longest time. In fact, the earliest form of border patrolling was carried out by no more than 75 men on horseback who were authorized by the United States Department of Commerce and Labor to apprehend Chinese immigrants as per the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, which was the very first United States law that discriminated against immigrants based on their ethnic or national origin. And it's hard to understate how prominent the so-called Chinese question was at the time and, and how closely the polarizing forces around the issue mirror and even foreshadow some of the same forces we see play out today. Now, prior to the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 and leading up to it, political opposition and support for Chinese immigration came and went with the ebbs and flows of the economy. And it's a little complex because during the early years of the California gold rush, for example, individual miners and mining communities supported exclusionary policies because they perceived Chinese immigrants as competition for their own labor. Whereas many of the representatives of these communities, the politicians and, and the big business owners, they opposed exclusion because Chinese miners, the, these individuals, could be taxed, bringing in revenue for the state while costing very little since most of these immigrants at the time were young men who did not burden the state health care and school systems. So the working class who depended on this work for their livelihood came to resent the Chinese labor. Meanwhile, the political powers of the day actually encouraged this Chinese immigration because it meant that they could make money off of them while providing little in terms of state support or services. But as the California economy improved, support for excluding Chinese immigrants from this growth started to increase. No doubt because these immigrants were expanding their families and all of a sudden became a higher burden on those services. But at the same time that more people were trying to exclude these Chinese immigrants, the big companies continued to benefit greatly from this cheap labor that Chinese immigrants supplied. And these companies took full advantage of this. For one, the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad in 1869, this, this massive project that spans the continental United States, that was made possible by up to 20,000 Chinese laborers who did most of the work. Some 90% of the Central Pacific Railroad workforce was made up by Chinese immigrants. And once that railroad was complete, in the same way that it opened up transportation to U.S. citizens and, uh, that had never been possible before, it also opened up more avenues for these very Chinese immigrants who made this railroad possible to expand throughout the United States. And in fact, 
Many Chinese immigrants from the Pacific Coast started arriving in the eastern United States, places like Pennsylvania, where they immediately went to work in shoe factories, paper mills, glass works, and other important industrial sites of production. And the European Americans living in these places immediately resented the presence of this Chinese labor in the same way that those California gold rush miners resented Chinese labor, because the factory owners, the, the owners of capital, could take full advantage, again, of this cheap labor that didn't enjoy, in a lot of ways, the same benefits and rights of other U.S. citizens. But that meant that wages fell for everyone else. In the 1870s, a Pennsylvania cutlery company responded to its disgruntled German and American workforce by replacing them with Chinese immigrants. And all of this tension is what eventually contributed to the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 and the early focus of those mountain watchmen who patrolled the U.S. border. Now, this history may not seem relevant to the modern story of border security, but it does give us some pretty good clues in the original intent of border patrolling. In fact, all we have to do is go back to 1924 when the United States Border Patrol was formally created, not under the auspices of national security, but rather the Department of Labor. I think this is a really important point here, Daniel, and something that I want everyone to take away with this moment. Back in this period when the Border Patrol was really formally getting going, uh, there were a lot of different departments and they were much more honestly named than they are today. The Department of Defense that we know today back then was the Department of War, because let's be honest, that's what it was. In the same way, we weren't trying to hide what these organizations were doing, and so it made logical sense to put the Border Patrol under the auspices of the Department of Labor, because the function of these agents was to control the flow of people across the border, not as some uh, terrorist or as, as people trying to sneak in and, and commit crimes. Well, of course, that did happen, but rather the real focus, which was about controlling labor crossing these border lines. And this is a really honest look at what Border Patrol really is about and border security, that phrase that we like to use today. It's not so much about securing a nation, it's about controlling labor on both sides. As you mentioned throughout this section, Daniel, the flow of immigrants and more importantly, the flow of labor is really important in controlling your home economy as well as managing the economies of nations where these people are coming from. It becomes almost a weapon of war in this case. You can let people in or block them out. And with all your other diplomatic machinations happening at the same time, you have a really very potent weapon that can be used without firing any bullets. And the United States quickly learned this and uh, has been carrying out this sort of economic war using the border as one of its last lines of attack ever since. And this is not to say this is the only reason that we have Border Patrol, the only reason that they exist, but it is a huge component of their day-to-day -day actions. And we're going to elaborate on this point throughout this episode, but it's something I really want everyone to take away. The fact that Border Patrol, Border Security, this is not so much about that word, security, as it is about controlling people. And controlling people is ultimately about controlling their labor and the economic implications of that. Uh, there are different periods in this history where we are more or less honest with what was going on. There were periods that were demarcated by specific legal things going on. For example, uh, during Prohibition, Border Patrol saw a lot of their work was focused on preventing the flow of liquor across the border. Uh, of course, like most prohibitions, whether it's alcohol or drug, it ended up just creating powerful 
gangs, mobs, cartels, other groups, just like we find today. Uh, it was ultimately unsuccessful. It was repealed. And that transitioned once again back to being a labor-focused border patrol with something called the Bracero Program, which was a massive program about immigrating uh, Mexican laborers primarily into the United States to work as agricultural field hands. We'll elaborate quite a bit more on this later on because it's a really important program. But the Bracero Program and the labor that it brought in did cause a lot of uh, concerns both in America as well as in Mexico. There were battles basically between American laborers these immigrant laborers that were brought in, and it eventually blew up, culminating in, in what later would become the United Farm Workers and their ascendancy using their labor tactics, in large part because they were able to destroy the Bracero program and gain power back from the United States government, which is trying to undermine this thing. Like I said, I'll elaborate on this in a bit, so just bear with us here. But uh, this was sort of the transition once this labor program ended to a more security-minded way of branding border security. And this began with something called Operation Wetback, which was in large part uh, about rounding up these laborers who have maybe overstayed their visas and collecting them, bringing them back to wherever they were, deporting them just across the border, whether they were Mexican or not. And uh, ever since then, border security is really focused on controlling people and getting them out of the United States. We've seen various periods where different amounts of people flowing in are, are the highlighted crisis of the moment. Um, I don't know if you remember, Daniel, but the Cuban Revolution, of course, was one of these very important moments where all these rich plantation and slave owners were being kicked out of the nation by the uh, communists there. They came to the United States to find uh, asylum. Some of them were allowed in legally. Many weren't. Uh, they would travel here on, on rafts. This happened for the next few decades, uh, very famously leading up to some of the, the cases in the early 90s. I don't know if you remember those, Daniel, like Ilya Gonzalez. Uh, we actually, when we were down in the Border Patrol Museum, we saw some of these rafts. And um, mm -hmm. there, there's a really funny moment with that, which we've talked about on the show before. But for those who haven't heard that episode. Yeah, so we're in the Border Patrol Museum in El Paso, and they have a section where they have all these vehicles and makeshift crafts that they have captured in, in the line of duty. And they're showing them off like trophies with like an explanation of, oh, we found this, you know, little makeshift go-kart and we picked it up and here it is. And yeah, one of these was a raft that refugees from Cuba had made to make that journey north to Florida. Yeah. And, and on this raft, Daniel, there's there's a little plaque explaining what it is with this like crudely drawn painting in the background of, of, of these people with as the Border Patrol Museum would like us to to uh, understand as them fleeing this oppressive dictatorship coming to this land of freedom. And in fact, that is what this plaque says. It says voids to freedom. And I'm, I'm just going to read this because I love this so much. On June 16, 1994, four Cuban refugees landed at Bud and Mary's Marina located at Tea Table Key, Florida. They were in a raft made out of scrap metal, tire tubes, wood, and blue canvas. An outboard motor, Russian, powered the raft during their one-and-a-half-day voyage. The refugees were arrested and then processed by the Immigration Service. The raft was seized and transported to the nearest U.S. Border Patrol station. All were charged with violating Chapter 8, U.S. Code 1324. Uh... And so I just, some of the voyage to freedom, these refugees, uh, we immediately prosecuted them. Yeah. I just, I love the way that, that 
somebody can live in this world and at one point be like, oh yeah, Cuba is so terrible. These these are refugees. We should be helping them out. So they landed and we immediately arrested them and charged them with breaking the law. And you know, I it doesn't elaborate, but I assume they were all deported. And uh, that really is this strange mindset that we have with the Border Patrol today. Uh, this really started getting going in the 80s and 90s, uh, especially in something called Operation Hold the Line, which was established in 1993 in El Paso, which was about just really driving up the militarization of the border, introducing night vision scopes, seismic sensors, all this modern computer assistance to help them really tighten up the border. It was a huge success. Uh, it led to Operation Gatekeeper the following year, which was focused on really tying down these large cities, making sure people weren't crossing, say, at El Paso, say, at uh, San Diego, the, the cities that are right by the border where most of the traffic at the time was going. And they said, if we can shut down this traffic, then we're going to be able to force people to more and more difficult areas and be able to cut down uh, people trying to attempt the crossing in that way. And this is something, it's another important point to take. This is a huge shift in border patrol uh, theory. And uh, it's something that has really been escalated in recent years. And we're going to talk about exactly why and what the problem with this is as we continue with this episode. But it is important to understand here in the late 80s, the early 90s, this is when the militarization of the border started really exploding. So just to zoom out for a second, we started with 75 guys on horseback enforcing the Chinese Exclusion Act. Then we had, by the end of World War II, Border Patrol agents numbered around 1,500. Um, there was further expansion in the wake of the Cuban Revolution, like we talked about. And yeah, the 80s and 90s saw a, a dramatic increase in Border Patrol agents uh, as part of their Operation Hold the Line and Operation Gatekeeper. And like you said, the 80s and 90s saw huge expansion of surveillance technology uh, in the words of Border Patrol itself, they say that this was a necessary show of force. But despite all these dramatic organizational changes and, and hiring increases throughout the 20th century, leading up to 9-11, Border Patrol was still a relatively small operation that by its own account only had operational control of just 3% of the U.S. border and had the resources to handle just 60 detainees per night nationwide. I mean, just think about that number for a second, David. I mean, we talked a little bit about some numbers for, for the current border crisis, and, and we'll get into a little bit more numbers later on about how many people are housed in what should be referred to as concentration camps. But we're talking about 60 people per night. That's, that was our capacity nationwide just a couple decades ago. Mm -hmm. And this is something that's really important to understand because at this time also ICE Immigrations and Customs Enforcement, that did not exist as an organization. That is a relatively new organization that followed the creation of Department of Homeland Security. And a lot of people today are calling for the disbandment of ICE, but also a lot of people, Democrats, Republicans say, oh, of course we need ICE. You know, this is how we're dealing with this customs and immigration enforcement. This is, this is a necessary part. It's not true. 20 years ago, you know, we had the capability of basically handling about 8,000 people annually from picking them up on the border, like this figure suggests. And you know what? The United States didn't collapse. In fact, this was one of the greatest boom times in the history of the United States. The uh, security question, th there, there was no terrorism that occurred. The terrorism that did occur was people entering legally using uh, passports and, and other materials that the Customs and Border Patrol allowed to enter the United States. This is not an issue of security. This is just a choice that was made and uh, since then, we've been blowing it up. And so, so let, me, let me talk about this for one second here. Uh, the Department of Homeland Security, 
was an organization created following 9-11 with the realization that the United States federal security apparatus that exists in terms of its local federal enforcement agencies, uh, you know, the DEA, Customs and Border Patrol, FBI, all these different groups weren't talking to each other. They were oftentimes duplicating their jobs. Uh, there was a huge failure of trading of information, manpower, resources. So somebody after this said, you know what? The reason 9-11 happened was it was a failure of our intelligence and information sharing. We had all the dots. We just didn't connect them. So we need to do something about this. And the Department of Homeland Security was created to be that organization to tie this all together. And with that, it met a number of new organizations and its folds that were also created, things like ICE. And this, more importantly, was a huge explosion in funding. It was a huge explosion in manpower. It was a huge explosion in different ways of seeing the border. The people who came in and began to run the border didn't see this from a labor perspective. And I honestly am not sure if they still understand that that's what the border is. Um, I think it's, it's there in the subtext, but there is no ready recognition that that is actually what this is because everyone is so terrified of this security issue. And David, I'm, I'm sorry, I have to interrupt you real quick because, uh, you know, I hear your point and I agree with you that ostensibly maybe Border Patrol is not really about labor anymore. You know, after 9-11, the conversation became national security this, national security that, you know, terrorist this, terrorist that. But I think uh, behind the ostensible purpose of, of controlling migration, we still have like the same fundamental need to control labor. And uh, so here's a story, uh, a recent story I want to use to highlight this, okay? On October 12th, 2019, okay, there's the Hard Rock Hotel, an 18-story building in New Orleans that was under construction. And on this day, it collapsed, or at least partially collapsed, killing three workers and injuring dozens more in the process. Now, one of these workers, a 30-year-old Honduran man and experienced metal worker named Joel Ramirez Palma, happened to survive as he leapt from floor to floor as the walls were crumbling down around him. Uh, he ended up in the hospital. He had severe back pain, headaches, and was suffering from shock. Okay, two days later, two days later, he was arrested and put into deportation proceeding. <laughs> now, that would be preposterous enough, but what makes it more interesting is that uh, Palma had actually repeatedly gone to his supervisors with complaints of the unsafe construction going on, and he was always ignored. In fact, he had earlier reported at least five different times that the building itself was unlevel by up to two inches which is an absurd amount. And the day before this building collapsed, he and some other workers actually noticed that the floors were shaking, like they thought it was an earthquake. So obviously they were ignored, but all this is super suspicious because ICE arrested him when they have a written policy and an agreement with the U.S. Labor Department called prosecutorial discretion, certain victims, witnesses, and plaintiffs, also known as the Victims Memorandum. And this agreement states that it is against ICE policy to initiate removal proceedings against individuals known to be victims or witnesses of crimes, absent aggravating factors. Now, the purpose of this, it's supposed to protect workers who witness their bosses doing crimes, but would otherwise be too afraid to speak out for fear of being deported or something. But as reporters have pointed out, ICE has been increasingly ignoring this agreement 
and has been diverting more and more resources to targeting people who are caught up in political or labor-related disputes. And this particular real estate development, the Hard Rock Hotel, is an $85 million project. And after the collapse, you know, there's a bunch of lawsuits piling up against the developers, understandably. But the arrest of Joel Palma has sent ripples throughout the worker community in New Orleans. And now people who might have concrete evidence against the developers, sorry, no pun intended, um, are too afraid to speak out because of, of what ICE has demonstrated they're willing to do to anyone who might think about corroborating with investigators. And Palma himself was interviewed by investigators with the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, but he couldn't show them any like hard evidence or like he had pictures of defects in the construction before the collapse. But surprise, surprise, uh, ICE confiscated his phone. So he couldn't even he couldn't show it to the investigators. Uh, That's a really good point here, Daniel. And this is something important that I want to talk about later on. But I'm just going to pull us back one second back into this history, uh, because I think it's important to understanding this larger issue that you're discussing. Yeah, we'll just keep that Hard Rock Hotel in mind. That's all I'm saying. There's a connection there. That's all. If those of you who were in the United States after September 11th, you remember the just dramatic environment of fear that existed everywhere. Everyone was just terrified of, 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 of the world, of anything that existed outside the United States. People were constantly for weeks reporting saying, oh, you know, this building's going to be blown up or, oh, they found Korans all over the world. It's, everyone was terrified of everything. Everyone wanted to blow up anything they could. Uh, there was just this huge, massive wave of jingoism from people who were even before this event, you know, I'm a pacifist or I'm a Democrat or whatever. I'm a liberal. I'm a progressive. No, everybody just wanted blood for revenge. And this idea really started getting written down into laws, unfortunately. It led to things like the Patriot Act. It led to the creation of the Department of Homeland Security. And the people who really benefited from this were the military-industrial complexes that were gearing up their factories to prepare for the war that they knew was going to come as the United States looked for somebody to send out revenge to. Of course, unfortunately, the Saudi Arabians, who were the primary uh, architects of these attacks, are still close allies and they never got theirs, but we managed to kill millions of people in wars of, of, of misplaced revenge. Anyway, that's another conversation. But this explosion in industrial capacity for the creation of military items also trickled down very quickly to not only just law enforcement, not only just the military conventionally as we think about it, but also these newly formed federal agencies that were tasked not just with controlling immigration or labor, but their new declaration of securing the borders of the United States and securing them in a way that wasn't about just labor, but really this fear of this is where the terrorists are going to cross. They're going to fly to Mexico. They're going to fly to Honduras, whatever. They're going to travel. They're going to run across the border. And then they're going to be doing all sorts of attacks inside the United States. Of course, this ignores that most domestic terrorist attacks are, of course, white Americans performing them. But no one ever accused the United States of being too logical in its anything. So this is what sets up the stage for the Department of Homeland Security, for uh, modern-day immigration and customs enforcement, and the modern-day border patrol that we see now. And the cultural shift that brought us from, you know, 75 people on horseback 100 years ago to one of the most militarized groups operating within the United States. They have drones. They have huge amounts of military equipment. They're building new military equipment all the time specifically for this use. As Daniel and I drove along the border, not only did we see 
countless amounts of Border Patrol agents, we also saw huge amounts of just straight up army soldiers who were assigned to the Border Patrol to assist them in sort of surveillance of the border. The blending of Border Patrol and the actual physical military of the United States began almost immediately and today it is still very indistinguishable and you can't really tell one from the other. Uh, this was the formation of some of the advanced special operations units in the Border Patrol and the way that they operated the Border Patrol with the explosion and manpower really shifted and this is something um, important that we want to drive home here for just one second. Well, the important thing about militarizing something is that in this process, we removed a good chunk of humanity and dignity from it. I mean, you know, as much humanity you can summon from a job such as that. But by some accounts, there was humanity in the work of border patrolling. But this militarization was by nature a dehumanizing process. When I started, uh, I remember border patrol agents. Uh, I remember one, for instance, who uh, showed up after I helped a guy right on right off of the road, like a road like this. I just saw him on the side of the road and I pulled over and I gave him water and he told me he was too tired to keep going and luckily a border patrol guy was just coming by and he came out and he put his arm around the guy's shoulder and he said, don't worry, I'll take care of you. You know, it was just a different feel. And then, and then all these guys started coming in who had been trained, you know, as if the world was falling apart um, and who were only here for six months or something. Um, and it really changed the feel of things. And so just to elaborate a little bit on what Doug is talking about here is prior to this explosion in manpower, the nature of operating on the border as a Border Patrol agent is that you would be there for a while. You were oftentimes from this area and you would be familiar with the environment. You would know people, you'd recognize them. And the border was much more porous. It was an expectation that people would come in seasonally, work the crops and go back to their homes. But as we remilitarized the border, we made that more difficult. People had to make this choice where if I'm going to risk crossing it in this new harder to cross, more militarized, more surveilled border, then I'm not going to risk going back. I'm going to become a permanent resident instead, which backfired for the United States because that's not what they wanted. They want people to be seasonal workers so they can exploit their labor. But as soon as they're done with them, please go back to Mexico or Honduras or Guatemala or wherever you're from. But now, because the crossing has gotten so difficult, so expensive and so hard and so dangerous, people don't want to risk that. So they become permanent citizens operating within our country, uh, living next to us. They're our neighbors. The only thing they lack is a U.S. citizenship. And now the United States is trying to react to this by rounding people up and shipping them back out, but it is a problem they created. And it's a problem made worse by Border Patrol agents who don't understand this, who don't understand that their function is to operate as labor controllers, but rather they see themselves as special forces agents defending the United States border from terrorists and gangs. And the gangs, which we'll talk about later on, are oftentimes created by United States actions in other countries and any times aided by the United States itself, as well as many of these Border Patrol agents, uh, which is part of the reason why, if you're looking for a federal job that pays well, Border Patrol is one of the best ones to do. Within five years of your employment as an agent, you'll be making upwards of $70,000 before overtime, which is really hard to top. Uh, but they have to have that type of pay because people don't want to do this work. And when they do, it's very easy for them to be 
bought by the cartels, bought by gangs. And so a lot of the Border Patrol training now focuses on that gang element. And, and these people, they come out there and they're terrified that everyone is out there to kill them, that they are going to be murdered on the border as they travel around looking for refugees. But the fact is, the vast majority of people who are traveling across the border aren't cartel members. They're not smuggling drugs. They're not smuggling guns, which, you know, the U.S. government is one of the largest gun smugglers, uh, sometimes on accident, sometimes intentionally so. But this fear that is driven in is very similar to the way that U.S. training of police officers occurred right around the same time, as we saw once again this trickle down of militarization from the manufacturers of military items to see how can we expand our market, not just to the military, but also to local law enforcement and these federal agencies. And that mindset was not just in terms of, you know, tanks, uh, bazookas, whatever, which many local police departments do own now. The, the small town that we grew up in, Daniel, uh, has tanks and bazookas and grenades and stuff with the local police department. And this is a direct result of 9-11 and this militarization that also is affecting the Border Patrol up till today. So people who used to be members of community are now just somebody cycled down to work the border for three to six months, maybe a year, and then they're gone. And that entire time they're down there, they're terrified they're going to be murdered by some sort of gang member. They're going to be shot in the desert um, when honestly the vast majority of them, if they do get injured or die, are going to be a traffic accident that they cause themselves by a huge, well, huge amount. And we'll talk a little bit in part two, which is around how did we get here, about the Border Patrol's own admission in a 1994 paper they wrote called National Strategy, in which they recognize that the majority of people crossing the border are poor um, and helpless and desperate people, women and children who are simply looking for work or to reunite with their families. Mm -hmm. and, and those numbers have gotten even larger as a percentage breakdown since that paper was originally written. 25 years ago. So just to quickly summarize this once again, the United States Border Patrol originally existed as a control for labor, and its earliest forms before it was even called that was about making sure Chinese immigrants weren't allowed in this country or were kicked out when found here illegally. Since then, they evolved through various labor programs until they were finally formalized in the 1920s. Then once again, they were part of the U.S. Department of Labor where they oversaw many labor programs, made sure labor was flowing properly over the border in accordance to U.S. needs and wants. And then it was only in the very recent history, probably the 80s, 90s, and especially after 9-11, that we started to see this shift from a labor-focused group of people to one focused on, quote-unquote, security. And this security mindset is what really changed the relationship Border Patrol agents and the United States itself has with the people trying to cross the border for economic or other reasons. This exploded after 9-11 when everyone was terrified of anything that moved. There were all sorts of rumors of Qurans and stuff found on the border, uh, which has never been uh, the case. People get themselves worked up and, um, you know, the, here's an, another thing I learned about was the power of them of you know urban legends you know what those are that's um, where or where they where there's a story that everybody thinks is true yeah but it actually isn't true but it's just been told so many times everybody thinks it's true yeah. um, well we have those on the border border legends so you know the story of finding a 
a Koran on the border, you know, uh, that, that they're just coming, you know, Muslims are coming through the border willy-nilly because we know because a rancher found a Koran. Nobody's ever, nobody ever found that. Until recently, actually, they did find one recently, but 20 years ago that story started up, you know, or 17 years ago. Got rolling that, you know, we were being, the border wasn't just Mexicans, it was all these Muslims coming across, and, you know, just things that we never saw anything like that. Um, but the story, but those myths really held strong for, um, you know, like the Minutemen and other groups that decided they needed to get involved. That type of fear changed. And even if it was, why? why yeah. Like, who, why do we, whatever. Why do I care about that? Also, if, if I'm at like a terrorist trying to sneak in and I'm like dropping my Quran, I'm like, it's like Mr. Bean. Bean uh, anyway, all, all of this led to the very militarized, fearful border patrol that we see today. And it should be no surprise that this shift in understanding that we are here to control labor so the United States can better exploit that labor to we are here to protect the United States from all the evil people who live outside of it is how we ended up with concentration camps today, which is something that, that we'll elaborate on in a little bit. But uh, this shift is not accidental. It's not overnight, uh, though a lot of it did happen because of 9-11, right after 9-11. But it is a logical progression and the inevitable end result of trying to see the border in a security mindset when, as we talked about repeatedly on this show, borders are about controlling economic activity. And economic activity, of course, at its root is always about labor and labor is about people. So if you can control that, then you can define how your nation operates. You can define your relationship to other nations. But in terms of actual security of nations or uh, terrorists crossing borders, that's easy to do. And the fact of the matter is, even on this show, Daniel, we've mentioned things and th that if you read between the lines, you could say, okay, well, if I was a terrorist, that'd be a really good idea. It's not hard to commit huge acts of terrorism that would destroy this country. And I'm not, I'm not going to say anything specific, but the fact that nobody does shows that this is not a success of the security that the United States supposedly is spending these billions and trillions of dollars on. It is a testament of the fact that nobody's actually interested in doing that because everyone in the world is just trying to live their lives and carve out a little space of something to survive and be happy and healthy in this horrible hellscape of a world. And whatever, that's fine. Let everybody do that. But purposefully destroying people's lives because you're terrified of something that isn't going to happen or doesn't happen is not a healthy way of running this border. And that is why we have so much tragedy surrounding it. One concept that maybe people can hold in their minds as they continue to listen to this episode is that there's a difference between national security and public safety. And I think a lot of times when politicians discuss national security, we the people hear public safety. We think that what they mean is we will be safer, we will have better jobs. But in fact, the two are very different. When national security in the minds of those who sit at the heights of power is really about preserving the state apparatuses that enable them to continue in their position of power. Um, it's, it's 
national security is more about how do we maintain the structures that keep us in power? How do we maintain this institution of state authority, or in some cases, the, the blending of corporate and state authority? Public safety really has nothing to do with that. And, and I think that's something we just need to keep in mind when we hear these arguments for border security in the name of national security. And as we talk about the ways that border security benefits those in power, I think that that becomes more relevant. point you make right there, Daniel, of public safety versus national security is something really important and something, once again, I want people to walk away with, in that you can have national security without having public safety. And in fact, the very existence of organizations like ICE and Border Patrol put communities at risk just because of the threat they constantly imply. And that itself is a public safety hazard. It's a sort of paradox here where the very existence of these organizations puts the public at risk. And you can never have pure public safety without eliminating these organizations. Um, I'm going to expand on this a bit more later on, but just very quickly, think of it this way. If you live in a community that has people who are living here, quote unquote, illegally, and let me guarantee you, you do. The very presence of these constant source of threat to these people, to their livelihoods, to their uh, economic survival, but also in some cases, quite literally, their physical survival, that changes their behavior, that changes their relationship with you, with your neighbors, with the community, with their employers. This constant threat over their lives economically and physically is something that makes them live in a world always unsafe. And that stress, that constant reminder is what begins to put cracks in community and eventually tear people apart and can cause behavior and actions that put people who are even here living legally at risk because of the ripple effects. Anytime there's um, rumors that there's an ICE raid or there's, there's ICE enforcement, it creates a certain level of fear in the community and then people are, uh, tend to not go out. So they're not spending money at shopping centers and restaurants in the community. So you're missing out on that tax revenue. I hear a lot of reports that people don't send their children to school. And so the more frequent these kinds of rumors are in a community, they can hurt the school's performance as a whole if you have a lot of immigrant students in the school who might be fearful. And people are afraid to go to the doctor. I mean, people are really afraid to leave their house at all. And yeah, of course, that impacts the community. Also, people become afraid to call the police. So they're afraid to report crime. They're afraid to come forward if they've witnessed a crime. You know, I think a lot of people don't think about that other aspect of it of, you know, these people live in a community and the community as a whole suffers when there's this great uncertainty and fear in the community. After crossing our border, undocumented people enter a world in which they cannot legally earn money. They have compelling reasons not to call an ambulance or go to the hospital, obtain health or automobile insurance, drive a vehicle, open a bank account, use a credit card, apply for a mortgage, sign a lease, any number of other options that people with citizenship status can fall back on. A culture of fear, a culture of surveillance cannot create a public that feels safe and actually is physically safe. They're incompatible, 
And so once again, the organizations and their existence and their supposed dedication to public safety creates a paradox in which they can never, ever achieve that. No matter, even if, if literally every single one of us was a Border Patrol agent, uh, we're all suspecting each other constantly in this culture of fear. And that can never make the public safe. And it all starts, right, with, with criminalizing people based on their immigration status. And this is a concept we're going to talk about more in part two, uh, especially around the legal nature of that. But it, the criminality of immigration status is what contributes to the way those who seek help at our border become integrated in various ways within our communities, which then has those ripple effects you're talking about in terms of public safety. So one example, in October 2018, Immigration and Customs Enforcement changed its policies around releasing people from detention. Now, sometimes the people that ICE detains get sent to facilities around the country where they are locked up for months or years in some cases before a court decides whether or not to deport them. But sometimes ICE will simply apprehend a person, set a court date, and then release them on the streets, typically in a border town like El Paso. And in the past, the agency would help coordinate travel for people so that they could join their families or other networks of support. But now they are simply dropped off with nothing, no money, no phone, no food, no plan. And this means that the burden of housing, of providing medical treatment, of travel, family reconciliation, all these things fall on the backs of volunteers, nonprofits, volunteer doctors, and other cash-strapped and overworked and stressed groups. It also means that thousands of people are deposited into communities who have a rightful reason to live in fear, who have no knowledge of accessing basic services, who have no money but likely cannot even secure a job because of their immigration status and the criminal perception of that. The precarity that these people are then placed in is then pointed to by politicians as evidence of their criminality, their inferiority. And in part two, we will talk about the Salvadorian civil war and how U.S. policies corroborated with the military factions there that forced tens of thousands of Salvadorians to flee their country. But once here, they lacked any means to survive within our system of exclusion. And that's what created the desperation that led in part to the formation of MS-13 and Barrio 18, these dangerous gangs we hear about, which then led to the justification by politicians to enact harsh policies of deportation and further criminalization. And while we were in El Paso, Texas, David, we, you know, we had actually arranged to meet with uh, a manager of a sanctuary home one of these volunteer groups that provides these short-term services to people who just get dropped off by ICE. But when the time came to meet them, they had to cancel, no doubt, because they got swamped with work. And the unfortunate reality is there's no way for these volunteer groups and organizations to predict their workflow. Some days, ICE might just release dozens of people into the streets, or it might release hundreds. And these organizations who are trying to help these people suddenly find themselves swamped and lack the resources to really provide the services that they need. Um, one stat, between late December of 2018 and March 2019, so just about th a three-month time period, ICE released 107,000 people from detention into the streets. And the system overall is, is no doubt contributing to an atmosphere that 
creates danger within our communities, which, like you mentioned, David, kind of goes against our goals for public safety, if, if we had them in the first place, that is. What this means, Daniel, is that our communities are unsafe, and it's not the way that the government would like you to believe because of these undocumented people living among us, but rather this constant threat that hangs over them and then consequently hangs over us via these ripple effects that we're talking about. And it's important to remember that when we talk about the border in the United States, it does not end at the border. The border is something that is a legal apparatus that covers the entire country. And yes, there are focused areas with enforcement stepped up on the actual physical border itself around major airports, ports, uh, lines like that. But when we really start to think about what a border is, when we step back and we think about that concept, it's not just a wall or a line in the sand of the Sonoran Desert. It's a zone of control that transcends the lines between nations and the laws that distinguish them. The border exists every single place that the forces of government, the forces of, of illegal organizations like cartels, the forces of multinational groups like corporations, NGOs, where they enforce their power, borders can be felt. And the United States is covered in a border. It's in your community, just like it's along the Sonoran Desert. So in the United States, David, um, you know, we're always hearing about police officers who uh, get into trouble because in their everyday line of work, they end up killing innocent people or whatever. There were two recent cases involving police officers murdering innocent people in which they were actually charged with a crime. One was a Dallas police woman who entered the wrong apartment um, thinking that she was going to her home and she went to the wrong apartment. Uh, she saw a black man in the apartment and just opened fire and killed him. She was charged with a crime. Um, another was a Fort Worth, Texas policeman who responded to a safety check that a neighbor had called in. And his response was shooting a black woman through the window of her own home and killing her for no apparent reason. He was also charged with a crime. And that's good. But if that's what's happening to our U.S. citizens, what about when the same thing occurs to a non-citizen? There's a case about this. In 2017, in South Haven, Mississippi, uh, police officers showed up to the wrong house. They shot at the dog when it ran out the door. And then they shot into the house, killing a man, Mr. Lopez, with a bullet to the back of his head. But the attorneys for the city... Uh, are now arguing that because Mr. Lopez was an undocumented person, he has no constitutional rights. So the city is arguing that, uh, you know, yeah, police officers broke into his home and shot him, but he was undocumented, so why do we care? You know, he has no rights. <laughs> um, attorneys for Lopez say it's the craziest thing they have ever heard, but going back to what Padilla was just saying, if, if we want safe communities, how likely are we to get there when a significant percentage of the population believes, rightfully so, that uh, uh, any cop can just kill them for no reason at any time, even in their own home. Well, and of course, that's an issue, as you mentioned, not just with undocumented non-citizens, but also plenty of American citizens where this type of murder happens, uh, unfortunately, all too often. But we've talked about this on the, the show before, Daniel, the idea that these rights that are supposedly enshrined in so many pieces of law around the world that nations give to, uh, in, you know, grand terms, all men, blah, 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 these, these divine rights from the creator. Well, it turns out that rights that nations actually hold aren't about giving their own citizens abilities to do stuff, but rather about denying 
very basic access to very basic uh, legal protections and other things to everyone else in the world. They're about creating zones of exclusion that said these people are better than everyone else. And that is what a right is. And, and there are efforts to build these universal rights, legal protections for people, regardless of nationality. But when it comes down to the courtroom, so often, if you are somebody who cannot, for whatever reason, claim citizenship to this nation, you are basically at the whims and the wills of the worst, most lethal forces that that nation decides to utilize. And in, in Mr. Lopez's case, that's something that they were trying to put into legal precedent, but it happens every day, whether it makes it to the courtroom or not. And that is a sad reality that the very existence of these organizations, which their purpose is to deny rights to people based on this arbitrary status of citizenship, uh, as long as they continue to do that and exist to fulfill that mission, then our communities, whether you are a documented citizen or not, will never be safe. Now, Daniel, for one second, if we could go back to that story you told earlier about that Hard Rock Cafe hotel collapse and how it deals with this topic, safety in the communities, I want to address this specifically as an example of how this could play out with the cost of real lives lost. Yeah, well, well no, that's a good point. The, the Hard Rock Cafe collapse is like a great example of how it's bad for the workers when their bosses can abuse them because they're immigrants or they're undocumented and then their bosses can threaten them um, if they speak out or, or they're not, you know, just taking the abuse their bosses give them. And that has an economic impact, right? That's how, that's how many of our, uh, the bosses in our country can generate more profits because they're decreasing their costs through cutting corners and by paying their workers less because we have so many people in our workforce who are undocumented. I mean, there's at least 8 million people in the U.S. working to build the economy of this country who are undocumented? And how many more of, of, of our workers have family who are undocumented? How many more of our workers are legally here, but maybe on you know, quasi-uncertain terms and, and for whatever reason are living in fear, right? But the other point is that they're not the only victims. We as a public are victims of this, right? If, if our bosses and our uh, real estate developers are willing to exploit their workers like this. If they don't care about the well-being and the health and safety of their workers, what makes you think they care about the safety and well-being of the general public? Because these are the people building not just the Hard Rock Hotel, but every other hotel. They're the ones building our schools. They're the ones building our bridges, right? They're the ones, I don't know, probably running the recycling plants, telling us that they're doing a good job cleaning up the environment. Meanwhile, who knows what they're doing? We'll never know because the, the people who make up our workforce, so many of them don't have that option to come forward and tell us, the general public, what these business owners are doing because we've empowered the uh, enforcement apparatus of our immigration policies to just deport anyone who, who speaks up. Well, to bring it back just for one second here, Dan, I mean, we've addressed the safety of our communities, we've addressed some of these economic components, but there's something larger that I think we need to address that sort of ties all this together. So behind all this economic activity, at the end of the day, it's people. There is a person behind every iron cage that gets manufactured. There are human beings behind the assembly line of deportation that we as a nation have constructed. How often do we consider how this system impacts them? Not just economically, not just in terms of the security of themselves, but in their soul, in the dignity of the individual. 
you know, just put yourself in the shoes of somebody who has to implement something like child separation. And then you're not given a lot of notice. You're not given a lot of guidance. You are in the position of separating parents from their children. And then, you know, you see circumstances where we weren't really prepared to house and care for children, or we didn't keep good records, or we're deporting parents since their children are still here. Um, I can imagine that that's something that would sit with you for a long time. You know, I'm, I work in a nonprofit. We have a lot of independence in the work that we do, but we have to advise immigrants on what to do in, in applying for change of status or, uh, you know, applying for their families to come over. And when things are changing rapidly, you're constantly questioning, am I giving the right advice? Am I giving the best advice? Am I telling people things that are going to be correct in a couple of months? If I encourage someone to apply for something, is the information that they give going to be used against them later? You know, we're looking right now at states that pass driver's license laws so that um, people could legally drive. And one of the reasons communities do that is so people... It's, it's for public safety, overall public safety. You don't want people driving without licenses. You don't want people afraid if they get in an accident that's a, that they're going to be deported. So they put these in place and now we're hearing about, you know, facial recognition scanning of this data. So you're, you're just constantly wondering if your job or if the reason you went into your job is to help and protect and, and serve people or to help and protect and serve the country, you know, are, are you doing what you you want to do? Are you putting people in harm's way without knowing it? And in these conditions where a lot of organizations are understaffed, overworked, morale is an issue, you know, just your own health and well-being is an issue. And, and I've definitely seen that with our own staff here in this organization. At this point in the show, we've mentioned the word migrant, refugee, asylum seeker gets thrown out there a lot, immigrant, all these types of words. And I think there is not very clear definition of what these words mean. And I think it's important to understand what a refugee actually is, both you know in everyday language, but also in a legal sense, because that impacts the path that people can take to asylum or to become a refugee in other countries. Now, the United Nations has identified 25 million refugees globally, defined as people who cannot return home out of fear of persecution or other danger. And this number most certainly underrepresents the number of people displaced from their homes or otherwise unable to return. And according to the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, or UNHCR, more than half of these people are children. And so let's define what a refugee is. According to the UNHCR, a refugee is a person who is, quote, outside their country of nationality or habitual residence and unable to return there owing to serious and indiscriminate threats to life, physical integrity or freedom resulting from generalized violence or events seriously disturbing public order, end quote. And that's the everyday language we might understand, but the term refugee also describes a very specific legal process by which a person applies for asylum in a country and at that point of being granted asylum they become a legally defined refugee. And now, most of the people who are attempting now to cross the U.S.-Mexico border, they are asylum seekers. They have fled their homes because of persecution or fears of violence or civil war or genocide. And as a result, they legally cross the border to request asylum. 
And once they've done that, many things can happen. You know, the one that we are most familiar with is they get locked up by Border Patrol. They're given a future court date. Politicians describe them as illegal. And then a judge determines if their asylum request is granted, in which case they become a refugee or denied, which leads to deportation. Our program, the Refugee Resettlement Program in in the United States, works with refugees who have actually applied for refugee status overseas, and they're processed overseas. So that entire process um, happens before they arrive. So they arrive with status. But the circumstances that force them out of their country and the circumstances that make them eligible for the refugee program are very similar to the circumstances that many people on the border right now have faced. They're fleeing persecution. They're fleeing violence. The only difference in an asylee and a refugee in the United States, in the American context, is that an asylee either comes into the country another way and presents themselves or presents themselves at the border as a refugee, where somebody with refugee status presents themselves overseas. They're fleeing the same kind of violence. They're fleeing the same kind of persecution. And once they're granted asylum status, they qualify for our services. So we serve asylees as well as refugees. And so we definitely support observing what is actually already the law of the land in our country. And people have the right to request asylum. And there is a very well-established legal process for doing that. And, and we support respecting the dignity and humanity of people and following that process rather than criminalizing the process, which is what we're seeing now. And this asylum-seeking process can be quite complex. And not all refugees who make their way to America do so by applying for asylum physically at our border. Many have to do this overseas, in a country foreign to them, and they must bide their time in makeshift refugee camps. Uh, These camps are usually built as temporary shelters, but people end up staying for years while their case gets evaluated in international courts. And I want to just break this process down for you for a second. Okay, David? Yeah, Daniel, explain it to me, because I'm curious exactly how this whole mechanism works. All right. Well, like I said, it's a little complex. So let's let's say that you're from Syria and you flee your home country. Uh, you're escaping war and violence. And suddenly you find yourself in a refugee camp in Kenya. Now, as a person who is outside of your country of nationality and being unable to return home, you apply for asylum through the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. The United Nations then takes up your case and they conduct a refugee status determination to determine if you do in fact meet the requirements or prerequisites to being considered a refugee. Um, Okay, so let's say the UNCR determines that you do have a valid case. Next, they'll refer you to a country, and, and let's say it's the United States in this case. Now, if you get referred to the United States, It then falls on the U.S. Department of State to handle it from there, and they will typically refer you to a resettlement support center, which compiles all of your personal information. They run background checks. They do all of that, and then they make a report based on all your information to the United States Department of Homeland Security. From there, a whole suite of security checks ensue. The U.S. Department runs your name through a consular lookout and support system, 
enhanced interagency security checks are conducted. Various law enforcement and intelligence agencies each run what is called a security advisory opinion on you. U.S. government employees will acquire your fingerprints and other biometric data, uh, and then they'll compare that to data in various Department of Homeland Security databases. Then, after all that, a Homeland Security officer will travel to your location and conduct an in-person interview. And based on that interview and all the, the rest of the information in your case, that officer will determine if you qualify as a refugee under United States law. And I think Americans are starting to get a taste of this type of uh, treatment increasingly as we fly internationally, even here in the United States, where you can be stopped and interrogated, questioned by Department of Homeland Security with more and more penetrating questions from those people, including uh, asking for social media passwords so they can analyze your Twitter or your Instagram or your Facebook. Um, And then I have a lot of friends who are uh, here legally via visas or other uh, types of, of documents allowed in the stay who also spend hours talking to Department of Homeland Security people who have to surrender passwords and stuff. So this is not something like the media likes to portray where these unwashed masses just show up in a caravan and cross over and we have no idea what happened. This is a very thorough and intensive process. We know exactly everybody who's coming in. And I don't know if that is necessarily the right way to do it, but at least the argument that this is a security threat allowing refugees in, or we don't know who these people are, or uh, that they could pose security risks is absolutely bunk. All these people coming in are vetted so deeply by law enforcement that any sort of danger they pose is much less than even an, an average American citizen. Well, and all those security checks aside, once you pass that, David, uh, there's, a, there's required medical screening that you finally will have to undergo. And if you pass that, now you finally begin the tentative process of migrating to the United States where you get referred to a regional agency, which then pairs you with a local refugee resettlement agency, typically a nonprofit organization. And I only say tentative journey because you still have to do one more security check before you can get on a plane. And then once you arrive in the United States, you have one final interview with a Customs and Border Protection officer. Uh, But passing all that, you're here finally in the United States as a refugee. And if this all sounds like a lot, it is. And all this, you know, might take anywhere from one to three years, but it also might take a lot longer than that. Before I relocated from Georgia to Massachusetts, I volunteered for New American Pathways, a nonprofit refugee resettlement agency that helps settle refugees in America and provides a host of services such as job placement, tutoring, family services, legal help, and so much more. Since 2014, New American Pathways has welcomed almost 2,000 refugees to Georgia. It has placed more than 1,300 people in jobs, assisted over 2,500 people to apply for green cards, helped 1,000 people obtain citizenship, and registered over 26,000 people to vote. And during my time as a volunteer for New American Pathways, I encountered a former refugee who is now a U.S. citizen working a full-time job. And when I met them, you know, we talked about the typical things you might talk about when you first meet someone. We talked about their family, the colleges that their kids were applying to, our favorite foods, you know, that type of thing. But after I got to know them a little more, they told me a bit more about their background and how before being granted asylum through this refugee resettlement process, they had spent some 16 years in a refugee camp. 
with their family. And not everyone in their family was able to come over at the same time. When I heard this story about having to flee their home country and then spending 16 years in a, in a refugee camp in a, a foreign place, I was just blown away at what this person and their family had gone through and the strength that it must have required to make it through all that and start fresh in a new country here. But the sad reality is that that type of story is very common. I think there's a lot of confusion about the contribution of refugees and immigrants in general, whether they stress our communities or are a drain on our, our finances, our economics. And then some people argue that they benefit our communities and they add a lot of value. I definitely think it's the latter. I mean, if you look at Georgia, you know, right now in Georgia, one in 10 Georgians is foreign born, but uh, immigrants make up one in seven members of the workforce is an immigrant. So immigrants and refugees in Georgia are working in a lot of fields that are very, very important to our economy. They're paying taxes. They're participating in their uh, community. In general, immigrants tend to be more entrepreneurial, so they're starting businesses. Refugees, the program is designed that a refugee is supposed to achieve financial self-sufficiency within six months. And in Georgia, uh, 91% of refugees that come here do exactly that. So it's not coming here to, you know, receive welfare or be a burden on the community. People are coming, they're working, they're paying taxes, they're contributing, and they're participating in the community very quickly. You mentioned refugees being more entrepreneurial on average. Why do you think that is? Well, for one thing, whenever a new population of people come here, there are all kinds of things that they had back home that they can't get here. So we see that people very quickly tend to open grocery stores and restaurants and services that serve their own community. But I also think, especially in the refugee community, we see that individuals that navigate that process and come over here, these are kind of risk takers. They're people who come with a lot of ideas and aren't afraid to take a chance. They took a chance by getting on an airplane and coming over here. And they're willing to take a chance and start a business. So it's just part of that same spirit that gets a person to take that leap of faith to come here, to take a leap of faith to try their hand at opening a business. And for a long time, the United States acted as one of the largest resettlers of refugees in the world, with over 3 million refugees admitted since 1975, and a national annual average of 98,000 people since 1980. But under the Trump administration, all that has changed. Right now, we are seeing the worst refugee crisis in history. There are more refugees now than there were during and after World War II in the world. And the United States has historically had the largest refugee resettlement program, although right now we do not. We have lowered the numbers dramatically at the same time that the need for finding a safe place for refugees has grown. In September of 2019, President Trump used his executive powers to slash the number of refugees allowed into the United States to just 18,000, which is an even lower number than it seems when you examine the fact that 4,000 of those slots are reserved for Iraqis who assist the U.S. military. Only 1,500 of that will be admitted from Central America. 5,000 are reserved for just religious persecution and the remaining slots are for those who have already been cleared for resettlement and have family in the States. It means that the majority of refugees fleeing civil war, genocide, and other violence 
won't even be considered. And the justification for this decision by the administration is that because of the large numbers of people requesting asylum at the U.S.-Mexico border, well, the government simply does not have the resources to handle any more cases. There's an important point I want to make here real quick, Daniel, and we're going to get into this quite a bit in part two. But most of the time, this quote-unquote crisis, as the media or the Trump administration likes to put it, is really defined in political terms. The definitions of what is a citizen, what is not, what are the governments of these other nations doing, blah, blah, blah. But really, a lot of this does come down to an economic concern much more than a political one. And like I said, we're really going to get into this. But because of these economic ideas, it starts to look like this quote-unquote crisis is not just an accident of what happens in one nation affecting another nation, but may in fact serve specific political and economic functions for a number of powerful people and organizations. You mean to suggest, David, that maybe uh, this quote-unquote crisis uh, serves a, a function as you know, justification for contentious presidential executive orders? Yeah, absolutely for starters, Daniel. But really, when you start digging down into this topic from as many different facets as it has, it starts getting much deeper and much more interesting than that. Okay, so let's talk about what we're seeing now, and in, in maybe we can talk about the policies, but because you're a large organization, I'm sure you're impacted by national legislation, so you're probably tracking that. But is it hard to, to kind of track all the changes? Is it hard to predict what's, what's happening? Yes. I mean, um, it's hard for me to imagine that chaos isn't the goal, um, because, you know, at any given time, we're talking about one particular immigration policy, whether it was the travel ban or whether it was the refugee ceiling or whether it was child separation or whether it is now um, this kind of the circumstances for unaccompanied minors who are being detained on the border. We're always talking about one policy in the news. But if you work with immigrants and refugees, what you see is there's been massive change in policy across the board affecting every class of immigrant. You know, a lot of people talk about undocumented immigrants, but there isn't an area of immigration that hasn't been impacted, whether it's um, people who are coming here to work, whether it's people applying for green cards, people applying for citizenship, refugees, asylees, um, undocumented immigrants. The way I would describe immigration policy in this country is cruel, cynical, poorly conceived and quickly implemented. And the combination of those things means that a lot of the laws are then legally challenged. So it's just an ever-changing policy environment, which definitely, obviously, affects immigrants and refugees on the ground. But it also, for an entire group of the American workforce that works with refugees and immigrants in, in many different capacities, it impacts us too. It, it is, is a very difficult work environment. In response to the decision by President Trump to slash the number of refugees admitted into the United States, New American Pathways made the following statement, quote, Such a change is a major blow to thousands of people already in the midst of the refugee application process, family reunification cases, refugees who have been approved to resettle in the United States but are waiting to travel, vulnerable refugee populations and refugees with life-threatening medical situations, all of whom are high priority for resettlement. This determination is part of a systematic effort by the administration to tear down humanitarian programs 
long afforded bipartisan support that local communities built over decades. This decision does not reflect the values of New American Pathways. We are disappointed at this number and will continue to advocate for a robust resettlement program. We witness the incredible contributions of refugees every day, and we are committed to seeing refugees and Georgia thrive. End quote. And right now, there is a bill in Congress, it's still in committee, but if it gained enough support and was eventually made law, it would set a minimum of floor of refugees that we have to admit into the United States. And it would set that number at 95,000, which is about the average for the past few decades. This is an important bill, but perhaps whether or not it becomes law depends at least in part on how well the American public can pressure Congress to make it into a reality. This bill is called the Guaranteed Refugee Admission Ceiling Enhancement Act, and that's a mouthful, so we've shortened it down to what's called the GRACE Act. But let's stop here one second, Daniel, and talk about what comes to mind when we talk about the border in the first place. And that, of course, is the wall. Build it higher, they said, and building it we finally are right now. And I think this is the image that comes up when we talk about the migrant crisis, when we talk about the Mexican-U.S. border, is this massive, big, beautiful wall, to use Donald Trump's words right there. And that is what is currently being constructed and uh, there are a variety of problems, humanitarian, environmental, uh, and, and, and many more that, we're, that I just want to briefly touch on because no conversation about the border can exist without a conversation about the wall that really defines this border. And so, Daniel, you and I traveled along the border for, I don't know, hundreds of miles. It was a pretty long way that we, that we drove. Yeah, from El Paso to Tucson. And I got to say, David, the most beautiful drive I've ever taken in my life, the most vast and, and just beautiful landscape I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, it's absolutely gorgeous. It's huge. Uh, you don't understand how big this nation is, how big this world is, until you're standing in the middle of this perfectly flat plateau ringed by mountains that you can see just barely off in the distance, and the sky is huge, and there is nothing but you and this perfectly straight highway that's going tens of miles into the distance until it fades over the horizon. It's beautiful. Highly recommend everyone checking it out. It's an amazing portion of this country. This country is just filled with amazing natural wonders, and this is absolutely one of them. But uh, the ever-present image in that entire thing, though, is this scar running across the land that we saw for much of this drive, and that is the wall. And when we think of the wall, we tend to think of this giant, omnipresent, you know, giant wall, like, like the media likes to show pictures of. But in fact, in many places, that is not the case. And so in major population centers, places like El Paso, we do have these large bollard walls that can be as high as 30 feet with five foot tall anti-climbing shields at the top. It's, it's these very thick steel bollards that are filled with concrete and reinforced rebar. Just these massive constructions uh, that they're very depressing to look at. They're brown. Uh, there's little slits of walls coming in and you kind of feel like you're constructing this giant prison cell. At least that's what I felt when walking along it or driving next to this. But these only really exist in population centers and in uh, high-crossing areas, as the uh, Border Patrol would like to call them. For much of the actual border, there are different constructions. One are called pedestrian walls, and these are basically elaborate chain-link walls that are supposed to keep people from easily walking across and climbing up. 
But the vast majority that we saw were something called anti-vehicle barriers, which look kind of similar if you've ever seen uh, Saving Private Ryan or, or you know what those anti-tank structures that were on the beaches of Normandy look like, those like steel metal crosses. These kind of look like that. And the purpose of them is basically just to prevent trucks or other vehicles from being able to drive across this structure. And so these existed for most of the border that we saw, but in many places there was actually nothing. This wall would end, and then you would just have beautiful unbroken land, just like it's always been and always should be. And, and, and it was really uh, interesting to see where the wall would suddenly stop. There was nothing, and they would pick back up. But what did run along this entire way, in addition to the wall, are also dozens and dozens of dirt roads that are utilized by Border Patrol, ranchers, and other groups in order to patrol this area and ultimately enforce what they see as the sovereignty of this nation. So this border between the United States and Mexico is 3,200 kilometers or 2,000 miles long. It's a vast amount. And the border wall, whether it's these anti-vehicle barriers, pedestrian walls, or the bollard slats that we see in the news, is only a very small fraction of that. The wall that Trump wants to build will eventually, in his mind, cover this entire 2,000 miles. But the funding he has right now, which is nearly $10 billion at this time, uh, which is from a variety of sources, $1.5 billion was given to him directly for this from Congress. Some was pulled from Department of Homeland Security. He has over $6 billion that he's taken from the Department of Defense and their budget, a budget which was approved very quickly and uh, with much delight by Democrats and Republicans, who are basically backdoor funding this wall in a way that doesn't get them in trouble. Well, all this money is going to pay for about another 500 miles of wall. And this construction has actually begun at this point. They are actively, as we speak, building new sections of the wall all across the Arizona desert, New Mexico, Texas, and California. So the wall itself, maybe we should talk about just for one moment. Uh, there are pictures. It's worth looking at them. It is a massive steel and concrete structure. It's 30 feet tall. It's covered in spotlights on both sides. It's these massive slits that are basically, they look like steel tree trunks with little gaps in between. And it's very dramatically different than what has been built through most of the wall, except in these high population areas, and very different for the ecosystems that it's going to be breaking across. And this is where we start getting into some of the less obvious problems. I don't want to say problems of the wall, but the less obvious problems. And the way that it's going to impact the natural systems that it basically slices in half. So let's first just talk for one moment about the construction of the wall. And we have talked on this show before a little bit about concrete in a variety of different topics. One, how it's breaking apart and, and is going to cause this dramatic problems with our infrastructure if it isn't already now. As time goes on and concrete is not kept up, it dies after about 75 years. It's a, it's a huge thing. Listen to that. Episode two, way back when the very early ones, we've also talked about sand and the dramatic effects it has on concrete and construction. That's episode 56, where we go in-depth on just sand. And it's worth noting that concrete is one of the major emitters of carbon dioxide and causers of climate change in the world today. Well, this wall and its massive amount of distance that it needs to cover is going to consume a huge amount of concrete. And I think we should do another concrete episode at some point, Daniel, because there's a lot more here. But one of the major components of concrete, obviously, is water. And here's one of these less-than-expected ways that this wall is causing a dramatic destruction of the desert environment. It's the desert. There's not a lot of water, right? I mean, that's, that's what literally defines something as a desert, is the lack of rainfall and the amount of water available to it. 
in the ground from these aquifers, from uh, natural sources, springs, rivers, uh, streams, whatever. But when you're building a wall in the middle of nowhere, where you're tens or, or hundreds of miles from some sort of infrastructure that can easily supply water, you can't just truck out all the water that this concrete needs. It's impractical. You're never going to get these vehicles there. It just doesn't make sense economically. It's going to make an already expensive boondoggle that much more expensive. So what they have decided they're going to do is drill wells as they go along and build this wall. So they're in these natural, pristine, oftentimes monuments, uh, protected land, the, these, these beautiful, amazing environmental ecosystems that Daniel and I had the opportunity of exploring. And, and let me tell you, they're just it's stunning. The, the ecological diversity, um, the cactus, the uh, animals, it, it's just beautiful, beautiful landscape. My heart aches when I think about it. it it's, it's that beautiful. But it's all dependent upon harvesting the meager amounts of water that are available in these desert ecosystems. And this wall is sucking those aquifers that provide much of this water dry. Each mile of construction for this wall consumes 1.85 million gallons. So let's take a look for one moment at the Oregon Pipe Cactus National Monument. This is one of the major crossing points. And so one of the first places where they're trying to construct a wall. This is a very uh, ecologically diverse area. There's, there's dozens of, of protected plants and animals there, uh, species which you can't find anywhere else. In particular note, the Oregon Pipe Cactus. This is also a uh, bombing range for the United States government. It's a very complex, complicated area, and, and, and there's a lot of history to there. Uh, you could literally write a book or a paper just on this. It's fascinating. Um, but this is one of the first places they're constructing a wall, which will ultimately stretch across 43 miles, dividing this landscape, this ecosystem in half. In the process of building just these 43 miles of wall here, they will consume 115 million gallons of the local aquifer that is providing the necessary resources for this already fragile ecosystem. This is obviously a huge threat to the animals and plants that live here. And that's only talking about one very minor component of the threat that this wall poses. The more obvious one being, of course, that it's dividing these habitats in half. The old style walls, particularly the vehicle barrier, was something that people or animals could easily cross. It's only designed to stop vehicles, and it does a pretty good job at that. But if anything wants to cross, whether it's an ocelot, whether it's a jaguar, an antelope, all of which live in this area. And yes, uh, I was surprised to find that New Mexico and Arizona actually has a, uh, a decent sized jaguar population. Uh, one of the only places this animal can be found in the United States is made possible, basically, by the fact that they can move freely between the United States and Mexico, a boundary that these animals don't realize exists, but are about to find out. But it's not just them. There are over 1,500 native species that this wall is going to be dividing their populations in half. It's dividing their habitats into different parts. And this, you know, 1,500 species of plants and animals, what does that number mean? That's 34% of native U.S. non-flying species are being put at risk by the construction of this wall. 62 of these species already are endangered or, or some sort of similar uh, designation. So they're already feeling pressure and it's just going to get worse. These are animals that range from butterflies to those ocelots, those jaguars, those antelope. There's a rare Mexican wolf. There are 115 or so individuals living in the United States, a few dozen living south of the border of Mexico. The fear is this wall will divide their populations 
divide their breeding zones, cause the remaining populations to inbreed, get weaker, and eventually probably go extinct because of this construction. Typically, there are dozens of laws that prevent the ravaging of environmentally protected areas, which is part of the reason why this area has such diversity in species, is because it's heavily protected land. Nothing has been built on it. This is the Sonoran Desert. These are other natural deserts and monuments the United States and the people have decided should be protected. But the Department of Homeland Security is able, because of the Real ID Act, to come in and disregard all these federal protections. And there's somewhere between 34 and 40 environmental laws that they've broken or, or just completely ignored. And they're allowed to do that because when you are enforcing, quote unquote, national security, uh, this Real ID Act allows the Department of Homeland Security and its sub-agencies to ignore U.S. laws. And so they're able to build this, this, this border wall without any sort of environmental review or any sort of even acknowledgement or questioning of the damage that they're doing. It's just a construction project with nothing else. And, and, and so who knows how much loss of life, how much loss of diversity we're going to see if this project is able to continue as planned. Uh, another component of it is, is that when you are building a wall here, typically the Rio Grande River is the dividing border between the United States and Mexico. But the interesting thing about the Rio Grande is that it is a meandering river. It moves like most rivers want to do until we dam them up and prevent them from doing that, like the poor Mississippi. So this border is always kind of shifting, and that makes it difficult to build a border wall along most of it, which is why for the most of the United States border enforcement history, we have neglected to construct a wall of some sort along much of the larger parts of the Rio Grande because that border is always moving and the wall would be, you know, flooded or, or end up somewhere else. So the United States has decided that they're going to disregard this problem now by building parts of the wall on top of flood barriers uh, built by the Army Corps of Engineers. But what this means is these flood barriers aren't right on the border of the river. They're up to a mile away. And we are basically sacrificing large parts of the United States to basically give it to Mexico in exchange for this quote unquote security. So um, you like diehard patriots that love the wall, you're actually making Mexico bigger by building the wall. Uh, I, I don't know if, if people have considered that or if you care at all, but um, the, the more important thing here is imagine you're a population of animals living north of the wall. Previously, you had access to the Rio Grande to go down there and get water for your you know, ability to live. It's a place that you can always come and guarantee that there is some sort of liquid in the middle of this desert. But now you're constructing a wall that larger animals and many low-flying insects and smaller animals like, like the pygmy owl can't successfully navigate. You're denying them access to life-giving water. So everything that lives north of this wall is suddenly finding their ability to live in this desert environment drastically reduced. So, I mean, that, that is just a little bit of the direct damage this wall is doing. But once again, this wall and, and the border itself is not something that ends right there at the dividing line. It's something that extends both sides of the border into the United States and into Mexico because of all the support and additional things that need to be done in order to maintain such a dramatic level of militarization. And for this, Daniel and I once again saw a lot of this, and, and that is there's so many roads, like dirt roads, uh, drag roads, that have been made by Border Patrol to allow them to police this area and traverse this landscape very quickly and easily. There are literally thousands of miles of roads that the Border Patrol has constructed in this area in order to patrol it. And many of these roads cross this environmentally very fragile land. But to make matters worse, well, Border Patrol doesn't need roads where they go. 
They log tens of thousands of miles of off-road driving, destroying environmental land, uh, much to the chagrin of the Bureau of Land Management and other environmental agencies, uh, where they just run willy-nilly destroying cacti, other natural environmental features in order to get where they think they need to be. So you're seeing like a direct assault on this environmental uh, landscape by Border Patrol, in addition to just the, to the destruction of the land that the wall causes on multiple elements. And remember, this wall also is equipped with these bright spotlights on both sides. Well, this uh, light pollution is dramatically damaging to these fragile nocturnal environments. And this is especially important because in the desert, much of life depends on that nocturnal time in order to go about and, and, and do everything it needs to survive. There are very little amounts of research done on light pollution in general and its destruction of ecosystems. Uh, this is a topic that we're eventually going to tackle. I have a ton of research on it. But there are, uh, as far as I could tell, almost no studies looking at what the environmental implications of constant, very bright spotlights dividing this desert landscape is going to have on the local life, especially that insect life, especially the life that depends on the insect life. You're basically talking about wiping out an ecosystem from the bottom up. And, and that's on top of the insect apocalypse that we've already been seeing. Not to mention, you know, every single strip of border wall has a dirt path where agents on both sides of the border drive their trucks constantly up and down the border and sometimes will drag things like tires and other makeshift mechanical draggers that, yes, disrupt the vegetation, but are meant to uh, clear the sand so that they can see any fresh footprints. What is it called? What's it called, David? We saw it in the Border Patrol Museum. They call it um, spotting, tracking. Um, they call it sign, sign, po sign, sign cutting. Right. That sounds right. No doubt contributes even more to this uh, death of vegetation and, and life in this area. Yeah, it's sign cutting. Well, if we're switching over one moment to the human implications of this, our history is also being destroyed. There, once again, in this Oregon Pipe distance, which is only forty-three miles of this. You know, ultimately 2,000 miles, but the 500 miles that they're constructing right now, which in terms of water construction, again, that's, all, that's almost a billion gallons of water that's going to be utilized to create this just eyesore. Um, there are, in this 43 miles, 22 archaeological sites that will either be partially or completely destroyed by the construction of this wall. And that, once again, that, that's in a very inhospitable place. As we get to more hospitable areas where there is more signs of the prehistory of of the people who lived here before we did, who have the rightful claim to the land, if anyone can have a rightful claim to land, uh, their history is being destroyed by this construction, which is maybe appropriate to the larger message that a, a wall is. But this tragedy exists not just for the animals, not just for the ecosystem, not just for the environment, which we do depend upon, but also our own history and, and, and the, the, the lessons and pieces of knowledge we could learn from that. It's such a tragedy on so many levels before we even get to the real tragedy, which is, of course, the human element. As we construct these walls in increasingly hospitable areas, it drives traffic to worse areas and people die more often. This is something we'll talk about later on in this episode. The explicit plan of the Department of Homeland Security and Border Patrol to drive people to the deadliest places along the border in order to try and discourage them from crossing but ultimately caused him to die attempting to do so. All of this is compounded on itself many times over. This border wall construction, which is degrading the environment, is also contributing to climate change. And, you know, climate change is a big driver of 
the migration coming north in the first place, which is also exacerbated by the industrial development that we outsource to countries south of our border, driving people off of their homeland, and then into this great, horrific assembly line of, of pain and torture that is people migrating north, enduring violence along the way, giving our government uh, justification to turn more authoritarian, which uh, funnels more funds into this border wall construction, which degrades the environment even further, ensuring that this cycle of, of misery will only get worse as time goes on unless we can do something to stop it. So for one moment here, let's just talk about that human tragedy. And that is, of course, the migration of people coming up from Mexico, Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador into the United States. There are many reasons why people make this transition. We've talked about some. We'll talk about some more later on as we go. But one of the driving forces, if we're not talking straight economic conversations, is people are forced to. And one of the major things forcing people out right now is food insecurity and economic collapse caused in large part by a huge drought in Central America, especially El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras, where because of climate change, because of this thing caused primarily by the United States and other industrialized Western nations, people are finding that the rains that they could depend upon for generations aren't coming. The land that they had worked for years and were able to farm successfully to support their families, their communities, and their nations are now just utterly barren. People are starving. Almost 100,000 people in Honduras lacked adequate food in 2018. Two million people across the region also find themselves on the brink of starvation annually now because of this shift in climate. And it's only going to get worse. By the year 2050, estimates range from 25 million to 1 billion climate refugees will be moving around the world. Not all from Central America, but huge portions of them will be. And the reason why is because we have polluted the earth to its utter destruction. We are eating our own bread. We're going to make this comparison consistently throughout this episode, but we've lit these people's house on fire. And then instead of giving them help, we built them a wall around the house, forcing them to burn inside. Things are only going to get worse, and we're constructing a wall to keep people out. And this is, I think, something really important. I don't know. We have this strange thing where uh, there are certain sects of the government, the Republicans in the United States primarily, who, uh, at least on paper, don't believe in climate change. But in terms of the things they're putting into action, whether they're, they're motivated by economic, whether they're motivated by racist, whether they're motivated by uh, concerns about incoming populations because of climate change, whatever it is, when you look at the actions that are being done, it very clearly says we recognize there is a migration wave coming. And we are preparing now to make sure that these people can't enter, to make sure that we would rather have a world where people die than are able to seek refuge. But this is a world that they've recognized is going to be on fire very soon because of our actions. But instead of correcting our actions, instead of atoning for our sins, they've doubled down and decided to build walls. The entire Western Hemisphere, not just the United States, is doing this, building a wall around themselves for the coming migrant waves that they know will be here on our doorstep because of our actions in disrupting the world through climate change. What little aid we do send to these nations, places like Honduras, and I say little, but you know, this is hundreds of millions of dollars. Almost all of this money that we're sending to Central America isn't for poverty reduction, isn't to help the food problems that we've in part created, but it's typically used for security, for drug control and violence prevention 
problems, you know, that, that once again, we've created. The, the drug industries there are the direct result of United States policies of Westerners consuming these drugs. The security is because the United States comes in and creates rebels and, and destroys these, these, these nations. We're taking money. We're trying to fix the problems that we created, but we're doing it the wrong way. And when people come looking for help, we're, we're building these walls and turning them back. We're saying, no, we don't want you to come in here. You can't follow these legal uh, methods. You can't cross over, uh, quote unquote, illegally. Instead, we're going to force you into deadlier and deadlier routes so that the problem in our eyes solves itself. And that is the U.S. policy right now. And that is what this wall is. And that's what it represents. And the funniest thing is that the billions of dollars that we're spending on this wall, much of which I would like to remind you, comes directly from the military's budget. This wall should be seen as a military expenditure because that's where most of the money is coming from. It is a, quite literally a weapon of war paid for by one of the largest polluters and contributors to climate change on planet Earth, something we've talked about in episode 84, Carbon Bootprint. That billions of dollars could be used instead for fixing problems instead of creating, I'm going to say it again, these weapons. Instead, we're using it to militarize. We're using it to push people away. We're using it to increase tensions and we're using it to stoke more and more problems. That is what the wall represents. And the funniest thing, Daniel, is that these tens of billions of dollars that are currently or ultimately will be spent upon this construction and the problem-causing policies of the United States, well, this wall is already being defeated by people with very crude, simple ladders with $100 angle grinders. There's been tons of reports of smugglers slicing through, of moving across unimpeded anyway. So all this money that we spend, all this investment in order to try and keep people out, it's defeated by the smallest of tools. And so why are we doing this? What, what is this? What is the point except to make these people's lives even worse than we already have? Let's turn our focus away from these terrible existential realities about climate change, environmental degradation, and the poverty and violence that's fueling migration patterns. And let's look at what systems we've created once these people arrive at our border and the human interactions that, that all this creates. And uh, of course, we have seen and heard many reports of what are being described as concentration camps on the U.S.-Mexico border and, and throughout the country. And I want to talk about that. I want to talk about what these facilities look like, how they're treating people. But I want to talk first about child separation and what we're doing to children on, these, uh, on our border. And, and this is a big topic. There have been demonstrations um, by the American public and other supporters of immigrants uh, to denounce the practice of child separation, to denounce the practice of locking children up, period. In the summer of 2019 alone, 300 parents were separated from their children. Uh, they were deported back to Central America without their children. Uh, and this was part of the Trump administration's zero tolerance crackdown, which ended for the most part in June. But the practice of detaining children still continues. And there was a recent investigation by the Associate Press. And it found that one of the consequences of child separation is that this blind spot in the immigration system was created through which state judges throughout the country ended up granting legal guardianship of children from Central America who were taken from their parents. Uh, and, and this guardianship was awarded to American families without the consent or even the knowledge of those children's rightful parents. Um, 
We don't really know the extent to which this happened. Because child custody cases are kept confidential, federal agencies don't keep data on migrant children who get adopted. We don't know how rampant this this practice occurred, but we do know a few specific cases that ended up going to court. Two of those cases involved Guatemalan mothers who had to fight for years to regain custody of their own children after they were adopted by Americans. One of those women had to raise $1 million in legal fees and had to fight for five years before she could get her child back. And and those legal fees, of course, were raised by donations and supporters. She didn't have that herself. I just want to add here, Daniel, that taking children from an ethnic group and rehousing them with a different ethnic group is one of the legal definitions of genocide. Um, This is something that uh, Australia was doing to Aboriginal children, um, happened in many other large genocidal um, events. That, in terms of the UN, of the uh, International Criminal Court, that is an act of genocide. I mean, when I was reading these cases, David, I was kind of blown away. I had no idea that anything like this was happening. Um, it's, it's just a crazy idea. And, and unfortunately, when you build a system like this, right, I mean, we're seeing these crazy things happen because we built a system of brutality. And one of the unfortunate realities of that, which we'll come back to, I think, later, is when you enable cruelty and, and systems of, of oppression, those systems expand and they spill over into many different areas that you know, the original containers of those systems uh, maybe didn't intend. Uh, one example is that you know, our Border Patrol is rounding up children and, and detaining them. Well, sometimes those children are U.S. citizens. In July of 2019, Customs and Border Protection detained three girls aged 9, 10, and 13 at the O'Hare International Airport in Chicago. All three of these children are U.S. citizens. Now, it turns out that Customs and Border Protection had reason to suspect that the children had family members, uh, in particular a, a mother, who was undocumented. So what they did is, when these children arrived at the airport, without their mother, by the way, CBP detained them in an attempt to entice their family member or their mother to come to, to retrieve them. And in that process, CBP was going to detain the mother and um, deport her. And in fact, other family members of these children tried to retrieve them, but they kept being turned down. And it took 13 hours. And the negotiation between U.S. officials and an official from the Mexican consulate before uh, CBP finally relented and agreed to give these children back to their mother. One congresswoman uh, described the process as the kidnapping of children by our own government. Now, so these are the types of um, crazy things that we're enabling. But I want to talk about the facilities that we're housing people in, the facilities that we're housing children in, uh, some of the atrocities associated with them. And then I want to touch briefly on the history of concentration camps in this region of the world, because it's something that we don't, we're not educated on, to be frank. And, and I think the only history that many people know associated with concentration camps is exclusive to World War II and Germany. And I think we have a lot more to learn. So we'll, we'll get to that. But to stay on, on the topic of how we're treating children. What is the policy of separating children from their families? What is this practice? You know, in in 2014, 95% of children that were detained came from Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. These are three countries that we're going to talk in more depth in part two. And in 2014, CBP detained 136,000 children. Half of those were accompanied by family members when they arrived at the border. 
Half of them were not. They were alone. And in fact, it matters when a child presents themselves at the border, if they have a family member or not, that determines one of the many pathways they might take to being detained in a facility. According to a 2017 article published in the official journal of the American Academy of Pediatrics, once detained at the border, all children go through customs and border protection facilities that just happen to be rife with, quote, egregious conditions, including lack of bedding, like sleeping on cement floors, open toilets, no bathing facilities, constant light exposure, confiscation of belongings, insufficient food and water, lack of access to legal counsel, and a history of extremely cold temperatures. At times, children and families are kept longer than 72 hours, denied access to medical care and medications, separated from one another, or physically and emotionally maltreated, end quote. So that's what they all go through. But from there, an unaccompanied child will be sent to a facility operated by the Office of Refugee Resettlement. And some of those facilities are foster care homes uh, and likely where some of these uh, the transfers of children from their legal parents to some random uh, foster family happen. Now, the average stay is a little over a month in these facilities, during which the Office of Refugee Resettlement attempts to find a sponsor who can look after the child until uh, deportation proceedings can be finalized by courts. About half of these children never get legal representation, and as a result, most of these children who don't get that legal representation uh, end up getting deported right back to the circumstances that they were fleeing from. Now, if the child is accompanied by a family member, uh, sometimes they are released into a community, sometimes with electronic trackers so that they can be monitored until their court date, or they are sent to what are known as family residential facilities, uh, which is just a friendly name for more prisons. Two-thirds of these buildings are operated by for-profit companies, GEO Group, and Core Civic. And it's, it's important to keep in mind that prior to 2014, we never detained families at all. We never detained children. The decision to place families with children in detention was meant in part to send a message. and. You said that day was 2014, Daniel. I just want to point out that when we're talking about the migrant crisis, about concentration camps, about everything that's going on here, people like to just point to Trump and say, this is a problem that came from him. You know, If we can impeach him, if we get him out of office, then these problems would go away. But something that needs to be taken away from this conversation is a lot of these policies are independent of Trump. Yes, they got worse under him and more explicit in how they're performed, but this separation of families was an Obama-era order. That's the Democrats in control. The Democrats and the Republicans are the ones working together to fund the wall. They have different disagreements about exactly how it should be done, but nobody's saying we shouldn't be doing this at all. There is a large agreement between both of these uh, supposed to be two sides of the government but that actually just, they're working together to build this sort of fortress that we have to put these people away. And, and while there are disagreements about exactly how that should be done, Nobody is saying, what are we doing? This is ridiculous. We need to tear this whole system down. And, and I think that's really important to take away. This is not the actions of a single uh, person out of control in office. These are systemic constructions by a government that sees itself and its responsibilities in a certain light. And, you know, I, I probably don't need to go into detail here, but um, that journal um, goes in depth about the psychological and emotional distress and, and abuse that children in detention go through. 
and even the parents themselves, when children are detained in prison-like facilities with their parents, parents go through extreme depression, anxiety. They feel like they uh, are hopeless. They lose control of their parenting. They feel like you know, they're separated from their children emotionally, even if they're physically there. It's very traumatic, children with PTSD. And those psychological and emotional consequences aside, uh, there was another report in June of 2019 by PBS reporting on the inhumane conditions at a detention facility in Clint, Texas. And what they found were that infants and children were being held in this facility with no adequate food, water, or sanitation. Um, a visiting law professor found that there was rampant lice infestations, no medical attention, children who were forced to sleep on concrete floors, kids being forced to watch over other kids. Like, you know, you'd have like a five-year-old who was trying to take care of a two-year-old. And what's interesting is that almost all of these children crossed the border with the family member, but for whatever reason, were separated from them. Now, why does this happen? So according to Warren Binford, who was, uh, who's a law professor at Williamette University, there is no legal requirement for Customs and Border Protection to keep children in facilities like this. They, they, they have no obligation to do that. So why are they doing it? It turns out they do it for at least two reasons. One is to send a message like we talked about. Uh, they're trying to say, hey, you know, this is how aggressive we are. We're, we will literally torture children if you cross the border. So think twice. But there's another more insidious uh, reason, and that's to intentionally bring to light atrocious human rights violations that CBB can then point to as, look, you see how bad these conditions are? We don't want this. Nobody wants this. But you forced our hand. There are so many people crossing our border, and we simply don't have the resources to give them humane facilities. You see, in a way, the, the negative facts that come to light about these facilities benefits the CBB argument that they need more funding. From their own words, quote, as the Department of Homeland Security and Customs and Border Protection leadership have noted numerous times, our short-term holding facilities were not designed to hold vulnerable populations, and we urgently need additional humanitarian funding to manage this crisis, end quote. Now, we will talk in part two about how this border crisis benefits those in power, benefits corporate structures. But we start to see that much of these atrocities, much of the crisis is manufactured, right? It, it, it serves a function. We never housed children in facilities, but now all of a sudden we do. And all of a sudden the government is saying, oh my gosh, we need more funding. These crises are manufactured so that we can redirect funds to the, the people and organizations benefiting and profiting off of them. But let's continue. Many physicians, uh, many doctors have recognized these abuses and, and said, I'm going to do something about it. They've become volunteer physicians on the outskirts of these facilities, treating people as they are released from these facilities and trying to undo some of this damage. One such doctor is Dr. Jose Manuel de la Rosa. And this comes from an April 5th, 2019 article in Kaiser Health News. Dr. De La Rosa examined a five-year-old girl named Melisa who had developed a serious rash after spending four days in a cell. This is a five-year-old girl. Now, a hospital had done a blood test on Melisa to figure out what this rash was from. But before the doctor could get permission to examine the results, the girl and her mother had been sent away on a bus. 
And he always wondered, what, what was the cause of that rash? Was it an allergic reaction? Was it a disorder that's going to uh, destroy her kidney? Could it be leukemia? He would never know because he would never see the girl again. And this highlights another problem with these facilities is that the doctors who work within them and those who work outside of them have no way of communicating with each other. Well, I, I think we saw this most visibly recently, Daniel, where a number of doctors showed up outside one of these detention centers with vaccines to come in and vaccinate the population against diseases that were moving around within these detention centers. Uh, they were not allowed access. The uh, Border Patrol and ICE said, no, you can't come in here. Uh, so they started protesting outside to the point where they were lying down in roads, blocking trucks in, and ultimately the doctors were arrested um, despite their several days of protests. They weren't allowed to administer what they felt like was life-giving uh, medicine, something that they're uh, supposed to do based on the, the oath that they take when they become a doctor. Law enforcement in the United States decided that this was incorrect and something that they did not want to allow to happen. And uh, they were able to bury all these pleas for humanitarian work uh, in the bureaucracy of, well, you know, you didn't follow this rule or follow this form or blah, blah, blah. So we're just going to allow this disease and this death to uh, main continue because um, you didn't check the right box. And, and that... I think a lot of this conversation about, you know, how do we get to the point where we have camps? How do we get to these points where officials and uh, guards and workers are allowing this stuff to happen in front of their eyes to deny medical care to people is this sort of banality of bureaucracy and the evil that it allows. Yeah, isn't it interesting that uh, on the one hand, CBP is asking for more humanitarian funding but then when actual humanitarians who have medical degrees show up on their doorsteps to treat the people who are dying within their facilities, they arrest them. For free. Yeah, for free. I guess that's not the humanitarian funding they're, they're after, huh? Yeah, somehow all that humanitarian funding that the Democrats agreed to give to uh, Border Patrol and ICE never found its way to doing humanitarian work, instead bought a bunch of equipment and built the wall. Weird how that happens. I don't understand politics. but. Or maybe you understand it all too well, Daniel. It just doesn't make sense to me, David. I don't know. I can't, I can't make heads or tails, but I don't know. That's why we just need more smart people in office. <laughs> so th there are plenty more stories from these doctors. Um, one doctor, uh, Carlos Gutierrez, had to treat two nine-year-old twin girls in a hotel bathroom who had each developed bronchitis because they were sleeping on the concrete floor. I mean... These are diseases that are totally preventable, given proper care. And, and these doctors are literally treating these people in hotel bathrooms. I mean, this is crazy to me. Anyway, so it, these atrocities that they witness have resulted in several doctors choosing to become whistleblowers, exposing some of these conditions. And two such doctors are Scott Allen and Pamela McPherson, who wrote a report to Congress in July of 2017. They write, quote, as experts in medical and mental health in detention settings, we watched in horror as innocent children were forcibly separated from their parents as the administration's zero-tolerance immigration policy was deployed. In our professional opinion, this was an act of state-sponsored child abuse whose specific consequences will significantly threaten the child's health and safety. The over 2,000 innocent children traumatized by that policy now face a lifetime of increased risk of significant physical and mental health consequences, including anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, and poor physical health. Now, 
They investigated 10 facilities across Texas, Pennsylvania, and New Mexico to come to these conclusions. Um, I have notes on, on some of the things they found. I don't want to read them. I feel like we get the picture here. It's just more of the same. But I do want to read just a, a, a couple more quotes from their report because I think it's important. So they're talking about, they're, they're giving examples of cases that they've seen, just like really terrible. And they say, quote, these individual findings are not unique. Instead, they represent systemic logistical problems. Then they go down to say this. The problem with family detention is not the failure of the many good people who have labored tirelessly to make the existing centers better with improvements in access to health and mental health services, educational and social programs. The fundamental flaw of family detention is not just the risk posed by the conditions of confinement. It's the incarceration of innocent children itself. In our professional opinion, there is no amount of programming that can ameliorate the harms created by the very act of confining children to detention centers. Detention of innocent children should never occur in a civilized society. You mentioned earlier that you believe no one should be detained. But a common response I hear from people when you talk about things like this, whether it's uh, you know, ending incarceration or even you know, ending the, the police, they say, well, we understand there's so much bad that comes from it, but what's the alternative? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I mean, the alternative, again, is not detaining people, right? If you really want to fix the problem, we need to, need to uh, reform the whole system. And we need to start with um, abolishing detention centers. We believe that a fundamental change needs to happen. So when it comes to uh, immigration, immigrants' rights, for example, you know, we believe that um, ICE needs to be abolished, that detention centers need to be shut down as a whole. Um, you know, we don't want to make prettier jails. We want them to be shut down. Now, just a couple more stats. So obviously, children go through terrible conditions, but it's not just children. We're detaining adults in facilities all across the country um, with terrible consequences. Detention centers don't have the capacity to provide the you know, basic care for people inside of the facility, especially if you're dealing with population or a person who has a medical condition, let's say. And even people who come to the facility with no medical issues, just being confined, people ended up with serious issues inside of the facility. It's because they don't have, uh, you know, they do have a medical department inside of the facility, but the, the way they treat, you know, illness and any issue people have in terms of medical care is very insufficient or is very minimal. And sometimes, you know, people are giving just, you know, painkillers for something that are really like they need a surgery or they need something else. They need to go to the hospital. And in most cases, they are not taken to the hospital. In, in several cases, people are being rushed to the hospital when they are at the verge of dying. And we have seen that in, inside of Stewart. Um, a lot of complaints about the nutrition or the lack of nutrition, the meals that they receive inside of the facility. So people had to complement from commissary, so they had to buy, you know, Roman noodles, chips, and all of this stuff because the meals they receive are not only that they're not good in terms of the taste, but they're not good for their health. So there's a couple of reports I read on just two facilities in Georgia, Stewart and Irwin, and as these reports point out, 
up to 70% of immigrants are detained in facilities operated by for-profit companies. And these companies then further contract out to other companies, you know, the services like phone access, food service, all that. And at Stewart Detention in Georgia, uh, it's one of the largest in the country, immigrants report having to pay as much as $15 for just 10 minutes of phone use, which are not private, by the way. And that $15 takes a long time to save up for when the only way to make money in the facility is to labor for $1 a day. Now, when I was visiting Stuart, I heard the story of this man. He worked like, uh, like, like a lot of people do. Uh, he, he was working to get that $1 a day so he could save up for something, maybe some decent food in the commissary, and decent meaning you know, something that doesn't have worms crawling through it. Maybe he was saving up for a uh, $15 phone call so he could talk to a loved one for 10 minutes. In any event, he worked, and uh, he was not paid. So. He went on hunger strike to express uh, his outrage at the fact that they didn't pay him. They couldn't pay him his dollar. So in response, CoreCivic, who owns that facility, sent him to solitary confinement. Now, what's interesting about that is that the law is that you can send someone to isolation, solitary confinement, for up to two weeks for any cause, any reason at all. And it's not until after two weeks that anyone in the government will even investigate why you sent that person to solitary confinement. So we see that the facilities represent an extreme form of control, oppression, lack of dignity, and humiliation, where people are forced to work for a dollar a day. They're fed awful food. I mean, food has been discovered in Stewart being rancid, being spoiled. Teeth have been found in food. Mice have been found in food. For a whole week, immigrants were eating beans that were crawling with maggots in Stewart Detention Facility. These are terrible, these are terrible conditions. And then you have someone who's trying to save up a little bit of money, working as hard as he can, is denied that. And these facilities can then use punishment at their own discretion with no oversight, no accountability. They can send these people to solitary confinement, which is a form of torture, and there is no recourse. But perhaps it makes a little bit of profit, and we will talk more in part two about the incentives around running prisons for private. Obviously, the conditions are absolutely terrible. One more thing I want to say about these facilities. So Ed Stewart Detention Facility, detainees are allowed to have a maximum of one visit per week, for just one hour. Uh, We talked about this a little bit, David, in uh, episode 87, when we were actually in El Paso or Tucson. And And this is important. Think about this. You're detained, right? You are allowed one visitor once a week for just an hour. Think about how difficult it makes it for family, especially because these facilities are so remote, so far away. You have families who have to drive for hours or days to visit their loved ones. And, and then they're allowed a one-hour no-contact visit for the entire week. Man, I mean, it just dehumanizes people so much and, and puts them in a really hard place. Because So this is one thing I discovered when, when I visited this facility is that they don't, they don't know when the next time they're going to see a family or a friend or a loved one, especially if they can't afford that $15, 10-minute phone call, right? So I personally saw this, this was a crazy situation. Um, one of the people in our group who was visiting um, with us, they had a message from this guy's 
family member, like it was his sister or something like that. And for whatever reason, she couldn't come down here, right? So she gave this message to this friend. So he was with us and he was going to go visit this guy to, to relay this message from his family. But what happens is when you want to visit someone, you have to give your name at the front desk. And then the front desk will go back there and they'll ask the person who's detained if they want to see you. And in this case, the person declined because they didn't know this person, right? All they knew is a guard came up and said, hey, do you want to take a visit from, you know, Joe Smith or whoever it is? And the guy's like, well, I don't know that guy. Um, No, I don't want to take it. Now, why would he turn down a visit? Because if he had taken that visit, it means that if a family member showed up later, they would be rejected by the prison corporation. You know, this person doesn't know when the next time they're going to be visited by their family. So they can't take a chance to be visited by a stranger because it, it, it uses up their one hour for the week. There's just no sense in it, except just, just to be cruel, I guess. Well, I don't think it's necessarily solely cruelty, though there's definitely some of that in any sort of institution that, that is purportedly there in, in for rehabilitation though, uh, is, is honestly for punishment. And, and this absolutely is part of that punishment mentality that so many uh, law enforcement and those who profit off of law enforcement have. But uh, also, if we're talking about sense, the other sense, C-E-N-T-S, is absolutely part of this too. And you're starting to see this vast uh, nickel and diming of these, these poor prisoners where any type of way that they can be exploited, not only for their labor, where they're working, you know, maybe for a dollar a day, a, a couple of cents an hour, but also for access to foods in the commissary. Um, Increasingly, prisons are moving to a no-visitation policy, and instead, they charge for access to video conferencing instead, uh, which is expensive, which has to be scheduled, and it's absolutely not the same as a face-to-face encounter. Any way that these people can be exploited further than they already are, and not only them, right? If you're charging somebody for access to video conference, you're not really charging the prisoner who has no money. You're charging their families, people who are already hurt by the fact that they've taken away one of their loved ones and are preventing them from being part of their community uh, economically and culturally in terms of the relationships they have. This is about exploiting whole populations, whole groups of already at-risk people in order to pad your own bottom line. And it should be no surprise that the organizations most responsible for these types of practices are private prisons where that bottom line is the ultimate end all. How can we make money from these people? And when you're trying to make money from people who don't have any money, prisoners, you either have to exploit their labor or exploit their families and communities. And that is absolutely what's happening. And uh, I guess also uh, exploiting the, the federal and state government, which in turn exploits all of us. So thank you, GEO Group. Thank you, Core Civic. Uh, for making our world a worse place so that you can uh, pad your coffers and uh, fuck all you uh, investment firms and pension funds that have your money parked in these assholes' businesses. So what we see in terms of, you know, cutting the cost is that the visits are, there is this uh, window in between, so there's non-contact visit. So the person, when you visit someone, you're across, you know, basically you see the person and you talk through the phone but there is non-contact basis, which is horrible for, for them. Like, you know, you're, you're housing people who, who are there because of you, many people who just crossed the border, many people who've been already traumatized by the experience, uh, either because they, you know, make a long journey from Central America or, you know, other countries in Latin America or Africa that we see in, in the detention center. 
that they're being persecuted in many cases. And then you put them in a facility confined in this place, and then you don't have even the capacity to shake their hand because of that, because you have a non-contact visit facility. And that's very dehumanizing for anyone, especially, especially for the kids. When you have your dad in detention and you are four years old, you don't understand that your dad is not able to hug you or be with you. You, you, you just don't understand why your dad is not able to live with you after the visit, right? So it's very inhumane. And that's the way how they cut costs, you know? I've been in facilities, federal and, and, and uh, state facilities, visiting people, and they have open rooms when you can actually share a meal with your loved ones. There's vending machines. You can just buy even, you know, crappy food, but you can share a hamburger with them, uh, you know, hot dog, a drink with them. And, you know, there's open room with chairs and tables. Um, that's not what happens inside of this facility because of, you know, cutting cost, you know, because you don't have to have extra personnel in the place when, when visits are happening, just a camera and that's it. Okay, let's end part one with a little bit of history, because you, you hear this a lot, the rise of authoritarianism around the world, here in the United States, we hear this message, which is, remember history. And a lot of people show up to talk about the Holocaust and say, you know, we need to examine what led to the Holocaust, like what drove politicians and, and the people that they represented to support or, or turn their eye to such atrocity. And there should be no doubt that what we have in the United States, when we're talking about 300 children to a single cell, when we're talking about separating children from their parents and giving them to other families and locking them up and, and the rampant lice and the, the malnutrition and taking innocent adults and putting them in a, a facility for two years with no contact to the outside world. What we have is a system that resembles, if not in fact, a concentration camp system. But the truth is that the United States has a long and evolving history with concentration camps that you know, we interned Japanese Americans in camps. Um, well before the Great Wars, we placed Navajos in concentration camps along the Pecos River Valley. Camps that were ultimately the inspiration, if I remember my history right, for those famous Hitler's concentration camps. Oh, well, it gets, it gets more interesting than that, David. In fact, Andrea Pitzer writes in her book, One Long Night, A Global History of Concentration Camps, that the United States is actually the founder of concentration camps as a concept and as a tool. Specifically, the logic of rounding innocent people up and forcing them into cages and camps was first expressed during the American Civil War, during which generals such as Sherman in Georgia and Sheridan in Shenandoah found that the practice was useful for subduing civilian populations in the regions in which they were wreaking havoc. Now, I'm going to compress this history a lot, but fast forward, and it was the Spanish who borrowed that logic and even credited United States generals for it when they took it to more extreme levels in their treatment of Cubans. So during the 19th century, the Spanish owned Cuba as a colony, and they were losing grip of that control. It was a colony that was far away, and it became harder and harder to maintain control. Cuba was, after all, on the brink of war with Spain for independence, and that culminated in U.S. intervention in the Spanish-American War of 1898. So 
Leading up to that, the crown kept sending more and more brutal generals and governors to try and tighten things up. And at the time, the, the Cubans were really hammering the Spanish with guerrilla tactics. And guerrilla warfare is effective because local people know the land better than the invading force, right? They understand the countryside. They can hit imperial forces with something, and then they can retreat seamlessly back into their territory. Their operations are decentralized. It's hard or impossible for the invading force to identify where the source of information or support is coming from, because really the combatants are dispersed among villages and towns where they live alongside people who are not directly engaging in the violence itself. And so that was what the Spanish was facing. But it was eventually a man named Valeriano Weiler, also known as the Butcher, uh, who was sent by Spain to govern Cuba. And he figured out that concentration camps or the practice of reconcentration was the way to go. Effectively, what this was is that the Spanish would announce that in such and such time, usually just like a week or two in the future, any single person that they caught in the countryside would be slaughtered. Doesn't matter if you're an old woman. Doesn't matter if you're a child, doesn't matter. If you're out in the countryside in two weeks, we're going to kill you. And that's exactly what the Spanish did. Through this practice of reconcentration, they forced rural citizens out of their homes and into urban zones of concentrated military control where the occupying force could keep an eye on them and and control them. And they were placed in camps where many people starved and died of disease and all the other things you would expect to find in, in a camp like that. But the fact that the Spanish warned people, right, quote unquote, gave them a justified reason in their minds to go into these rural areas and kill anyone because they could then say, well, you know, obviously you're left in the countryside. You must be a combatant because otherwise you would have peacefully complied with our orders to go, you know, to the camp. Well, that put a uh, that put a nail in the coffin of uh, Cuba's guerrilla warfare, but it also ushered in a time of extreme brutality and death that wiped out uh, up to four hundred thousand Cubans, right? An estimated ten percent of the population at the time. And what's interesting, David, you know, we talk about in episode seventy nine, death dealers about the double dealing that weapons dealers do to profit, right, from both sides of conflict, and that's exactly what was happening here. We had American companies who were simultaneously selling weapons to Cuban rebels, while other American companies like uh, Oliver Brothers, which was based in Pittsburgh, uh, was selling millions of pounds of barbed wire to the Spanish government. So I guess uh, the U.S. economy was doing okay. But, you know, these opportunistic businesses aside, this humanitarian crisis in Cuba, uh, whether it was fueled by yellow journalism or not, became a great source of alarm to the American public. U.S. citizens were shocked. They began pooling their resources and and sending supplies and food and other goods to Cuba. They really empathized with the Cuban people uh, and saw Spain as, as an oppressor in this situation. And the emotional response that this cruelty elicited in us, U.S. citizens, became one of the main forces behind our intervening in Cuba, and probably what catalyzed us out of isolationism uh, ultimately. We the people, David, said, we're not going to stand for this. You know, we're not going to just sit by as, as this government you know, just totally brutalizes these people just off our shore. And 
1898, the U.S. military intervened to expel Spain from Cuba. And to be fair, this, this flame of ours, this emotional response, was no doubt also fueled by some politicians who were intent on expanding U.S. influence around the world, uh, one of those men being Theodore Roosevelt, who was Secretary of the Navy or something like that at the time. He actually took command of a band of men. He went down to Cuba himself and led an infantry charge against Spanish troops. I think he described it as great fun. And Roosevelt, who went on to become president, was the staunchest supporter of the time uh, for expanding U.S. Navy, believing that it was our destiny to extend our military might into international waters and around the globe. Well, all this to say that once the Spanish were expelled from Cuba, they were simultaneously expelled from Puerto Rico and the Philippine Islands, uh, another colony of theirs. And this was a huge turning point for the United States because all of a sudden, we had control of these colonies. You know, we went into Cuba thinking that we were just going to get Spain out of there, but now all of a sudden we've got these spoils of war on our hands, right? And the question was, what are we going to do? And there were intense debates in Congress about whether or not we should allow the Philippines their independence or if we should establish our own military posts and control them like Spain did before us. And we know what happened, right? Obviously, we took control. And, but before deciding what to do with the Philippines, uh, the deciding moment was when President William McKinley knelt in prayer and got up and concluded to the American people that Filipinos were just too barbaric to govern themselves. And they needed the quote-unquote, benevolent assimilation that only the American military could provide. So we took possession of the Philippines, and within just a couple years, we began employing the exact same policy of reconcentration on Filipinos, forcing them out of their rural and jungle homelands and into garrisoned towns, while those caught outside these designated areas were shot on sight. The same policies that provided the moral justification for war with Spain became the same policies that we imposed on the Philippines. And it's estimated that in just four months, just four months, our own policy of reconcentration directly caused over 11,000 deaths. So what's the point? What does this have to do with, with the broader thrust of the show? Uh, there's two takeaways that I think we can take away from this. There's, there's, two, there's, two, there's two main points I think we can take away from this. Number one, we as Americans, right, we have it within our hearts to recognize when evil is being carried out against others outside of our borders. And we have proven ourselves willing to give of our own resources to aid people in distress. That is, when Spain was brutalizing Cubans, Americans reached in their pockets and, and found money. They found food. And they sent it. They found clothing. They said, we're not going to stand for this. We can be that again, except this time we have to recognize that it's not happening out there. It's happening right here in our own backyards, right here on American soil. We have to find a way to motivate that compassion once again. But we have to be careful. This is the second. Um, because as the example of our treatment of Filipinos makes evident, it's not enough to care. We must be wary of those who use our willingness to do good to fuel their own jingoist ambitions, men like Theodore Roosevelt. If we don't expel the politicians and the institutions at the head of these evils, 
we're not going to get anywhere with our with our feelings, right? And and we must recognize that this is not a Republican versus Democrat issue, as you made evident, David. Look, you know, whether we elect a Democrat president or a Republican president, that's not going to solve concentration camps at our border. I want to read you, David, um, what was going on in 1902. This was when it came to light, uh, this, this death that was happening in the Philippines because of our concentration camps. Um, 11,000 people dead in four months. When this was brought to light, it obviously created a lot of uh, public uh, outrage. I mean, so what happened is the American government got together. The, the senators and the congressmen, they all convened to argue about what to do. And, and I want to just read for you real quick, David, some of the conversations that our political leaders were having in response to these atrocities. This excerpt comes from Andrea Pitzer's book. She writes, quote, As the investigation unfolded between January and June, a litany of atrocities, barbaric order, and reconcentration policies came to light. Politicians, pleased with American expansion abroad, collided with anti-imperialists who never wanted the United States to take on Spain's colonies to begin with. Some southern legislators were sympathetic to the insurgents in both Cuba and the Philippines, recognizing and disliking the kind of tactics employed by Sherman against the Confederacy, even when applied far away. Others were white supremacists who disapproved heartily of the idea of racial mixing and felt it best for the United States to leave the Philippines alone in order to avoid close association with lesser races. Bizarre intersections of policy and history at one point led a northern senator to argue the merits of torturing Filipinos to a southern senator, who noted that white southerners were not allowed to lynch, but the practice was apparently condoned overseas. Senator John Spooner of Wisconsin observed that the U.S. Supreme Court had weighed in on the question, determining that legal protections available to Americans did not apply in the Philippines, end quote. When the atrocities came to light, what we had were the leaders of our country coming together to argue the finer points of legal, historical, racial justifications for the abuse, whether or not we should keep doing it, whether or not we should pull back. We have to recognize that this is not a system of humanity. I don't know what that is, but it's not something that voting in an, an, a different politician is going to solve. And I think, you know, David, obviously in this episode and, and, and in other episodes, we talk a lot of anti-American things, you know, we have a kind of anti-American bent to a lot of the things we say, but I think it's important to clarify that we should be anti-American when the America we're talking about are politicians debating the finer points of slaughtering hundreds of thousands of innocent people. We should be anti-American when America means systemic brutality and exclusion. But we're absolutely pro-America when the America that we're talking about are the people who come together to support one another, the people who take care of this land, the people who welcome with open arms those coming to this great nation for help and in distress. And, and I think it's important that we make that distinction, that patriotism is not loyalty to the state. It's not loyalty to the corporations who are profiting billions off of this really crazy system. Patriotism is for the land and for the people who live on that land. 
And so I'm fine with being patriotic, but I want to set the record straight about which America we're talking about. Daniel, don't put words in my mouth. I just want to say death to the concept of America. Let us just be people looking out for each other. What more can we ask? It's reasonable to hate everyone involved in the business of human trafficking on both sides of the law and border. The people at the bottom of the food chain usually end up doing the dirtiest work. Love the soldier, hate the war, as the saying goes. Love the player, hate the game. It's hard to say, love the sinner, hate the sin? I don't know. The teenage boy from Sonora who leaves the teenage girl from Honduras to die in the desert is a black pawn. The border patrol agent who scattered his group and put him in that position is a white knight. You know this metaphor. They are all responsible for their actions, but somebody else set up the board. There's a game beyond the game, and it's clear who's winning. The players don't have to sit at the table. They play into each other's hands. This is part two, how we got here. Before we can really dive into all the forces that benefit from border security, benefit from patterns of migration and the criminalization of people based on their immigration status and their national background, the countries that they came from, why don't we take a look, David, first at some of the changes that have taken place in these countries that we've all heard of that make up the core geographic region impacted by this border security, migration, immigration crisis, specifically Mexico and the countries of Central America. Absolutely, Daniel. And no conversation about migration in regards to the United States will be complete without discussing at length Mexico. And this is what everybody thinks when they think about the migrant crisis. These people crossing from Mexico into the U.S. And a lot of them are Mexicans, it's true. A lot are from other places, which we'll discuss a little bit later. But understanding Mexico's relationship to the United States and the immigration practices between these two countries and the rest of South and Central America as well is really important to having a deeper understanding of the situation as a whole. And, I mean, there's a lot we could get into here. You're right. There's a, there's a lot that could be said. But probably what's most important is just realizing that Mexico has a huge and rich cultural diversity and, and a long and complex history. But the impression you get from American media seems to be that, you know, Mexico is this monolithic country of drugs, violence, corruption, and poverty. The families uh, who visit their loved ones at the house where uh, their families can stay for, and, you know, we offer meals um, and support. Um. We certainly are not educated on the rich history of Mexico as a nation whose people have been resisting powerful, oppressive forces for over 500 years, from mass slavery and colonization by both the Spanish and French, 
various internal dictators, invasion by U.S. troops, and the subsequent theft of their land. And in response to all of these forces, the, the people of Mexico have built a robust history and infrastructure of social movements fueled by the fight for liberation. But to understand the migration patterns from Mexico to America, to the United States, we need to look first at the history leading up to and after the 1994 passage of the North American Free Trade Agreement. Trying to figure out where to start this conversation, Daniel, was really something sort of difficult because, as you mentioned, Mexico does have an incredibly rich, incredibly long and varied history of labor struggles, both within the country and as the nation relates to those that surround it, invade it, colonize it, whatever it is over the course of, you know, basically since the beginning of time, as far as records are concerned. And uh, I think in terms of this larger conversation about migration in the United States and the so-called crisis that it creates, um, if you want to listen to the media's narrative that has been so popular in the news, then I think a good place to begin with is something called the Bracero Program. Man, Daniel, I could really dig into the Bracero Program as its own episode, as, as it's, I mean, a book, a research paper. It's a really fascinating time of history in which Mexico and the United States government basically allowed the legal crossing of Mexican workers to become agricultural hands within the United States uh, with a variety of, you know, visas and permits, but it was a very simplified, seamless process where these people would cross the border uh, w- with nothing more initially than just a very basic piece of paperwork. So it got more complicated as the program went on and eventually culminated in literally spraying people down with DDT after like an intense physical exam before they were allowed to cross and enter the United States. But uh, in the early days, this was something that they, they didn't really care about. They just needed labor because this program started... During the early 1940s, while the United States was engaged in World War II. And the same forces in World War II that created these job openings for women, uh, the iconic Rosie the Riveter poster, Daniel, which we're all so familiar with, uh, the labor movement of getting women out of the home and into the workplace, uh, building those rights in that case, which were later taken away from them again. This was a time when they were doing anything they could to try and find more hands to do more work. And looking down to our southern neighbors in Mexico, it seemed like a great source of potential labor for agricultural workers along the border. So the Bracero program was created and we imported hundreds of thousands of Mexicans into, uh, well, initially Texas, um, as well as all the other border states, though this program was later banned in Texas for a few years and I'll detail why that's the case. And there's some interesting revisionist history there, Daniel, and I'll, I'll get to that. Around you know, labor in Texas specifically versus other states? About the Bracero program in Texas specifically. Um, and, and also some of the, uh, the things that we've witnessed in uh, some of the museums and research places we've uh, been to in the study and uh, preparation for this episode. And I'll reveal that in just, just a moment. But this was, and it might still be, the numbers are, are sort of difficult to calculate for some of these other programs, but it was one of the largest foreign labor programs in the history of the United States. It lasted for 22 years. Five million workers were employed through this program, and it was contentious to say the least. There were a lot of people in the United States, mostly farm owners, who were very excited about the program because it provided them a source of cheap labor. But there were a lot of people who were angry about it within the United States. There were a lot of people who were angry about it in Mexico. 
And uh, there were a lot of people within the Bracero program itself who were very angry about it. Uh, and to be fair, there were plenty of people who really valued this program, not just the employers who were getting cheap labor, but also the people who it gave a job to that they didn't have before. Uh, it created a lot of wealth for some of these agricultural workers, able to buy things like trucks. Uh, we can still feel some of the economic benefits from this program in Mexico to this day. But without a doubt, Daniel, the people who won this were farm and landowners employing these agricultural workers. And that's because the program as initially started was something that was supposed to be defined as enabling strong labor protections for those employed in the program. But like any large-scale program, mandating the enforcement of these types of laws and actually enforcing them are two very different things, especially when the people who are on the uh, negative end of these enforcements, that is these foreign workers, have very little recourse in terms of speaking out when they're getting screwed. Same with Bracero worker. I've crossed over, filled out my paperwork, I'm promised all sorts of things when I arrive. And the types of contracts that they would find themselves in evolved as the program went on, so it's hard to just speak in generalities. But in general, you know, they were given a place to stay, a work camp. They were given um, food that was all provided for them, as well as a pay that was supposed to be fair and very comparable to what American workers were receiving at the time. Sometimes it was actually higher than American workers. Sometimes it was lower. Um, and there were additional benefits that varied throughout the program. But as a whole, these were the things that the government guaranteed would be the case when somebody joined this Bracero program. In reality, many workers found themselves getting less than that. Wages were often withheld, sometimes for months at a time, and though they would eventually get paid in full, uh, if you're trying to send money back on a weekly basis or a monthly basis, or you need that money in order to purchase supplies to keep yourself up uh, throughout this program, that is not a sustainable way of doing it. Many people just were never paid. Many people were paid at substantially less than they were guaranteed. The work camp conditions were often uh, squalid, festering with problems. There weren't enough heat. There weren't enough beds. Uh, sometimes these shacks weren't even enclosed fully. There was usually enough food, but interestingly enough, the, the Braceros often complained that the food they were provided was so bad. Uh, it was just this like bland American food that they really hated. And so the, the program actually identified this is one of the major areas that they can improve by uh, hiring Mexican chefs who knew how to cook Mexican food that Mexican workers would actually like instead of just like these awful American sandwiches that were packed for lunch every day. But uh, there, were, there were a lot of problems very initially. And as time went on, some of the labor protections got better. But as a whole, you were very much beholden to whatever boss you happen to get hired by. Because... So many of these workers were putting so much on the line for this that if they felt like they complained, then, I mean, what's the recourse, Daniel? You're going to get kicked out of the country. You're going to get kicked out of this program. Your livelihood is gone. You can't just easily pick yourself and move. So it really goes to show that when you are limiting legal access to things because you're threatening people implicitly, if not explicitly, with deportation or removal from a program that guarantees their livelihood, then what you have created is a system that doesn't have any guarantees for their economic stability, for their livelihood, for their well-being. And so even though this on paper was a very robust protected system, the actual practical application of it was anything but. And so it, it begs to ask for a second, what was this replacing? Because 
agricultural labor at the time was still very much done by Mexican workers before this program started. They were just crossing uh, the border, quote unquote, illegally. And in fact, at the time leading up to this, the United States had what amounted to more or less as an open border with Mexico, where people, supplies, whatever would flow back and forth, and especially farm labor. So when the Bracero program was first being initiated, a lot of local farmers, ranchers, they really pushed back against the government because this meant, ironically, that they were going to be limited in how much labor they had. Well, that's kind of kind of gets at what we were surprised to see in that Border Patrol Museum, David, right? That Texas was actually one of the biggest uh, resistors of the Bracero program, that they actually just wanted uh, open borders in, in terms of the corporations that benefited from this labor. They were like, you know, we don't need government oversight. We'll control the labor ourselves. We'll control the migration. Just give us open borders. Right. And that was a big fear here that once this program started being formalized, they were going to lose access to all this labor. And I think there's something that is often left off in discussion of what these farmers and ranchers are really saying. And that is, we're going to lose all this access to this extremely cheap, exploitable labor. They were really afraid that when this program would start, that maybe you could still hire the same number of people, but you were going to have to pay actual wages mandated by the federal government. That was very similar to American citizen farm workers, uh, whether they were black, whether they were white, and of course, Let's be honest, those pay between the two groups were not equal either. Racism was alive and well this time. And in fact, some agricultural owners uh, had three separate work camps, one for the white farm workers, which was obviously the nicest, one for black farm workers, which was a little bit worse. And then the worst of all was for the Mexican Bracero workers. So this racism really played into a lot of it. Uh, this need for exploitable labor that the open borders actually enabled at this time was something that, that people really wanted. So the Bracero program came in and tried to formalize basically the system that was already existing and did honestly try and extend labor protections in it, but really failed to do so in any meaningful way. And this actually created a lot of resentment, especially in Texas, where this open border system of hiring farm workers was, was really the dominant way of doing business on these agricultural places. Well, the Bracero program was actually banned from Texas uh, in the mid to late 40s. And... You and I, Daniel, we went to a museum that discussed the Bracero program a little bit. Yes, the U.S. Border Patrol Museum. The yes. One of its kind in El Paso, Texas. A, a special, bizarre place. Um, but in that museum, they discussed the Bracero program, and they discussed this contentious nature, especially with the state of Texas, and mentioned the closing of it. But they, they attribute this closing actually to... Uh, the, you know, the anger that, that Texas really just wanted open borders or whatever. But digging into it actually a little bit, it seems that the museum was trying to rewrite history some because the U.S. federal government actually banned Texas from participating in the Bracero program because uh, as, you know, these ranch workers, uh, these ranch owners, all these people were mad at the Mexican Braceros coming in. So they started lynching them and murdering them. And there was a lot of racism going on and abuse of these people. And so the federal government stepped in and was like, no, you know, this is obviously creating problems. We're going to ban this program. Y'all aren't just going to have any access to foreign workers. You're going to have to hire everyone locally. Boom. And then, you know, a few years later, after they felt like things had settled down, they reintroduced the program. But for some reason, this Border Patrol Museum left that part out. I wonder why. I wonder why. So let me just take us to the labor perspective of this for one second and, and some of the interesting actual origins of the Bracero program, because there's 
this is this is why this is such an interesting topic and it's so huge and it really it's it's a shame to do this in five minutes in the middle of this episode that's already been going on for forever but the program itself has such interesting competing reasons for its existence in the way it was ministered and the effects it had on people on both sides of the border and and working the same job whether you're citizen or not and i'll elaborate in just a moment but on paper, this program was started to fulfill a labor shortage, right? Men were gone, fighting in a war, and the United States government needed somebody who was willing to work a pretty hard job without much pay, but, you know, meager guarantees of, of, of benefits and, and a payment and other residuals so that people could get their crops. People would have enough to eat. It also sounds like we needed a little bit of a a carrot, so to speak, to convince people to even come over and, and work for us in the first place? Well, not so much. There was a lot of back and forth that was happening before this program. There's a lot of back and forth that was happening after the program, which we'll get into in a little bit. But this was really a chance for people to do it in a legal, formal, safe way, because this also was lining up with the time that for the first time, Border Patrol is really trying their best to define these borders and make sure that people weren't able to easily cross them. And it eventually culminated uh, the competition between the Bracero program, Border Patrol, the way that uh, some people wanted to keep out foreign labor in uh, something called Operation Wetback, which we'll get to. But I want to touch on this other side of it, which is the labor component. So I've mentioned that Bracero workers were guaranteed at different times in the program what is basically a competitive rate for American citizen farm workers. Okay? Okay. The idea was that if the rate was the same as what Americans were being paid, then the creation of this program would not take away jobs from American farm workers. It would just serve as a stopgap solution in order to come in and uh, fill this vast void that happened when young American men were off fighting overseas. That was the initial, you know, on paper discussion of this. But there was also at the same time a lot of labor organizing going on in the agricultural world. So today, agricultural workers are primarily organized under the United Farm Workers Union, which got its start in 1962, partially because this program, the Bracero program, was ending. It, it finally died in 1964. But it's no coincidence that the rise of the UFW correlates very closely with the death of the Bracero program. And I'll get to that in a moment. But at the time, there were other strong labor movements within this world. And, you know, this is the 1940s, 1950s. Uh, there were lots more labor discussions happening than there are today. Everybody was thinking about all these different types of economic systems. They were thinking about justice in labor. And so there was this strong communist undercurrent. Now, maybe communist is not the right word, but worker in power thinking, an ideology that existed in a lot of people doing this tough manual labor. And farm work is very tough manual labor. And there were a lot of people who were saying, hey, you know, we're the ones who actually go out here, we grow these plants, we pick the plants, we ship it off. We're the people feeding this nation. Why are we being taken advantage of so bad? Why are we being abused by people who just own this land? That is a very dangerous thought if you are a landowner or if you are somebody in the United States government. So being able to take this outside foreign section of people who are doing work and are excited to work for what Americans consider an insulting wage, well, now you have this huge pressure against this organization that's happening. And so a lot of the Bracero program's initial 
growth and expansion, which happened, you know, it started in the 1940s for the war, but it continued for another 20 years. And a lot of its peak period was in the 50s, buoyed in no large part by a surge in anti-communism. So these Mexican farm workers unknowingly were pawns in this larger battle against the red menace and the specter of communism. A little interesting fact there, Daniel. Which the specter of communism itself being a pawn in basically just preventing worker solidarity in this case. And, you know, funding the military industrial complex and all sorts of other things. But yeah, absolutely. In this specific case about breaking apart that worker solidarity, which is why we saw these camps that were segregated by race, camps that were segregated by citizenship, anything to turn workers against each other. And it worked. There were many strikes of American farm workers against uh, the Bracero program. There were strikes within the Bracero program against uh, the horrible working conditions they did. Everybody was striking, but the U.S. government had figured out that as long as we had this force of foreign workers who were willing to come in, then they would oftentimes work as scabs when American workers would strike because they didn't have the same, uh, you know, worker solidarity. They weren't both citizens. They didn't speak the same language a lot of the time. They didn't even realize this was happening. They were almost accidental scabs, you know. I'm a landowner. Oh, all my, uh, my pickers, they're on strike. I'll just put an application in for the Bracero program, pull them in. My harvest is saved. I can ignore the strike. Everyone who strikes now has no work for forever, and they're eventually going to have to give in to their demands. This system was designed to pit foreign labor against American labor and do it within our own borders, which is really interesting and unique, I think, Daniel, because today we still have this pitting against American labor and foreign labor, and not only just foreign labor, but Mexican workers against Hondurans, against Chinese, against Indonesians. And the more we're able to battle these people against each other, the more we're able to make sure that we can increase our profit margin. And this was just a very early attempt at that. It was globalization, but within our own borders, which I think makes it a very unique and interesting moment in this larger history of the labor movement as it relates to the United States and it relates to globalization as it expands basically from this period on through today. Um, you know, I, I grew up supporting the United Farm Workers and I thought it was a wonderful organization, but they were against the whole Bracera program. That was a, it allowed people to come and do work and the employers were in charge of whoever came and did the work. Okay, yeah. It was m much easier going than the, whatever they call it now, 2A or 3A or whatever. Um, but, you know, the United Farm Workers felt that allowing employers to go south and grab workers and bring them back was really hard on the, on the unions, you know, because all these guys would come up and they wouldn't be part of the union and they'd do the work the union people were supposed to do. So even that's a complication, you know. Yeah. Um, it just goes on and on like that. Speaking of NAFTA, I mean, that is when everything changed dramatically at the U.S.-Mexico border and, and is probably the biggest force that changed the trajectory of border security and, and spawns this monster that we have today. But you're raising a lot of good points about uh, the forces that we're trying to divide and conquer labor. But I, I just want to kind of um, hone in real quick on how at the time, the culture of migration was, was extremely different in terms of how Americans and Mexicans experienced it than it is today, where even though Mexicans were being totally abused in this system, you know, like you mentioned, they 
did not enjoy the rights of being citizens or, or the fact that they were denied those rights, companies could freely abuse them, pay them less than they were worth, feed them terrible food. There nonetheless was an expectation, because our economy depended on it, that these laborers would be able to cross the border in seasons of high labor demand, and they would get to go back to their families in the off-season, return that money to their families if they even got the money, and return back to the American agricultural fields the next season. And this was a cycle that went on for some people their whole lives, and, and it was a, an experience that could be counted on. Well, let me, let me just close out my thoughts with the Bracero program right here, because I think you touched on something really important. And there's a couple of big turning points between what I'm talking about here with Bracero and the uh, more open borders that you're talking about, and then eventually the modern uh, militarized border that we see today. And uh, there's a logical progression, and I just want to hit a couple things. So one, you mentioned this back and forth thing, and this is something that the Bracero program really tried to formalize, uh, bringing people in when they were needed, sending them back home when they weren't, and they would reapply and come in. Uh, this was uh, very popular with American employers who could boost their labor pool when they needed it and then reduce it when they didn't. Uh, but it did have a lot of critics, especially, ironically, in Mexico. Uh, local businesses, especially along the border, thought they were going to lose out on labor. They thought they were going to lose out on customers. Uh, the Catholic Church in Mexico really hated this because it felt like this type of back and forth would break up families, would uh, prevent husbands from seeing their wives, would lead to infidelity, all sorts of, of very you know traditionally conservative Catholic ideas about uh, what a traditional nuclear family should look like. But what really was important here was that animosity felt between these Bracero workers and American farm workers. And it's what ultimately killed the program. So ironically, this program was created to fight the American farm workers, though not in such bold and open terms. But in the end, it was scuttled by it, basically, especially the rise of the United Farm Workers with the accusations that the Bracero program was artificially suppressing their wages, which once again, it was basically designed to do making it difficult to organize around uh, these needs and because they, they couldn't come in and offer the same protections or union rights to the Bracero workers because oftentimes they were prevented from doing any of that based on their contracts. If they, if they started talking about that, they would be deported, uh, which is something that I'm sure the United States government would love to extend to basically all citizens. You try and unionize, you're gone, you're out of here. Um, but that really was the case for these Bracero workers. And so the United Farm Workers as it was first getting started, other similar unions at the time, they started pressuring Congress to basically end this program. And they were successful in doing that. And as the Bracero program ended, suddenly these local farm unions within the United States gained a huge amount of power and uh, they became the juggernauts that we see today. But the end of the Bracero program also coincided with a shift in sentiment with foreign workers and especially Mexican workers as they would cross the border. And this back-and-forth way of living, whether underneath the Bracero program or something that was done beyond the legal processes of uh, entry into the United States, became a hot-button issue. And the United States Border Patrol started the uh, horribly named Operation Wetback at this period, which is, yes, what leads to the slur today, that um, was basically upon grounding up everybody who was in the United States illegally or as somebody who was legal but then overextended their Bracero program, whatever, gathering all of them and exporting them, repatriating them to Mexico. And the repatriation of this is, is something important because it shows that administrators of this program understood that these people, even though they had crossed 
you know, they technically were Mexican citizens. They had basically become Americans at this point. They lived here. They had homes. They had families. They had everything except an American citizenship. And the United States, now that this program about cheap foreign labor was no longer needed, now that uh, local labor was organizing against foreign labor, well, with the sentiment behind them, they said, okay, it's time to shift how we view immigration in this country. And they kicked out 3.8 million people over the next couple of years. And that was the beginning of the shift in how we see the border and how we deal with people who cross it in the eyes of the government illegally. And that same sentiment brings us up to today. The idea of seeing the border was different depending on who you were. And going back to culture, one thing that came up in our discussion with Doug uh, as we were driving through the Sonoran Desert is Doug talked about how as a school teacher, not far from the border, some of his students had family just on the other side. But for those who grew up in this back and forth relationship, the idea that they were even crossing a border was in many cases taken for granted. So when I first got here uh, and I was teaching elementary school, um, I, was, I taught bilingual first and second. And so some of the kids only spoke Spanish at first. People in their family only spoke Spanish. And I would, um, you know, I'd be talking to them and when I first got here, this is 20 years ago, the, a kid would say something like, my uncle's coming to see me this weekend, you know, and he's coming from Mexico. And I would think, well, you know, he's just going through the border. But he, they never meant that. They meant they were sneaking through. But he was telling me, you know. Oh, wow. <laughs> and then he's, uh, I, I remember one time uh, one of the kids said, Oh, he couldn't come. They fixed the hole in the fence, so he's going to wait until next week. You know, because wow. that's how the family thought 20 years ago. If there was, if they fixed the hole in the fence, it was just a matter of putting a new hole in the fence. Yeah. It wasn't going to be a big deal. <laughs> I said, I said to him, I think you're telling more me more information than I should really know. Yeah. <laughs> just say they're visiting and leave it at that. Yeah. But okay, David, NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement. This is what changed the game completely because like you're talking about the Bracero program and, and the desire to formalize the back and forth movement of labor, all of that changes with NAFTA because NAFTA in a sense is the assertion that American workers should be on one side of the border, Mexican workers should be on the other. And instead of allowing labor to move freely across this border, we should fix these two groups in their place and allow the capital, the financial investment, and the goods that are produced by both to flow freely across the border to benefit those who owned the capital. And, and that's exactly what NAFTA did. First, it allowed American business, these giant agricultural corporations that were also highly subsidized, and that's an important point. It allowed these companies to export corn that was grown in the United States across the border into Mexico at a cheaper price than Mexican farmers could grow it on their own land. And around the same time that NAFTA was being drafted and, and at the time it was implemented and, and leading up to it, Mexican President Miguel Alemán 
worked to undo land reform in the country by allowing private companies to take control of land previously put into the hands of ordinary people and families. And, and these two forces, principally, the fact that American companies could flood Mexican markets with agricultural commodities and undercut Mexican domestic production of those crops, while at the same time, land was being grabbed by foreign companies and driving farmers off their land. This forced countless people, small farmers, indigenous communities off their land. And millions of people were forced into sweatshops in, in urban centers, or they had to seek permanent residence in the United States illegally because they had nowhere else to go. They had nowhere else to go, again, because of U.S. foreign policy and Mexican uh, policy as well. And why they had to seek residence in the United States permanently, I think, is important because we, we were just talking, David, about how this labor could historically, despite the oppression, whatever, move between both countries for labor seasonally. But once you sever that and, and once you make it a criminal or, or illegal or highly consequential to cross the border, it then becomes a major risk to attempt to cross multiple times. And if you can make it across the border and just stay, well, you're better off just staying because if you go back, then you have to cross again. And each time you're, you're putting yourself at risk of this new border securitization that's going on at the same time as NAFTA. Because at the same time that NAFTA was, was put into place, the United States pumped unprecedented amounts of money into border security and at the same time expanded the border patrol to a new level that had never been seen before. Specifically, between 1994 and 1997, the number of Border Patrol agents doubled, funding for border security doubled, the number of miles that the border wall extended doubled, and the amount of surveillance equipment at the border tripled. This was all part of uh, Operation Gatekeeper, which um, was mainly about shifting the flow of migrants away from border towns and into the harsh desert where deaths uh, have skyrocketed, and, and this was well known. And Operation Gatekeeper itself was part of the Border Patrol's larger strategy of quote-unquote prevention through deterrence, which they outline in a report titled National Strategy, published in 1994 to outline their vision for the future. And I want to read from that in just a second. But this is all really well documented, this turn of events. You know, Operation Gatekeeper, 1994, um, another Border Patrol operation, Hold the Line, 1993, all part of this new national strategy of 1994. This is all well known. And even if you go to Border Patrol's website, they write about their history. Of course, they say that the reason that they expanded and, and developed all this new technology was because of unprecedented illegal crossings, but they make no mention of NAFTA or, or the U.S. and Mexican policies that we knew would drive people off their land and force them into patterns of migration. But, but David, uh, I read this report uh, from the Border Patrol, their national strategy, and I, I want to just take a pause real quick and just read you some tidbits from this report, if, if that's all right with you, Dave. Yeah, let, let's dig in, Daniel. Okay, well, well, first of all, you have the vision, this new national security vision, and that is, quote, the U.S. Border Patrol will control the borders of the United States between ports of entry, restoring our nation's confidence in the integrity of the border. <laughs> a well-managed border will enhance national security and safeguard our immigration heritage. 
What is our immigration heritage, Daniel? <laughs> that like what, that stands out to me a little bit too. Like, what, what does that mean? Wait, you mean like like when people just showed up on boats and said, "This land is mine now," and murdered all the indigenous people they found? Is, no, that's a good question. Like, what is our is is that what it is? is? Our, do we have some kind of heritage of like resisting migration? Was there like a loss of? confidence in the border too i don't remember anybody ever being like oh no where's the line where's the border line well it's funny to me too because i've been in like staff meetings at organizations i work with where we'll spend an hour talking about our vision and our like mission statement and like every single word is scrutinized so yeah i'm really curious what in the border patrol's mind our immigration heritage is that then leads us to uh you know murder anybody who tries to cross the border well it's like, uh, have you seen the more recent uh, statements put out by Department of Homeland Security? No, I haven't. What they say, we, we are um, appropriating military uh, UAVs and, and drone strikes to safeguard our heritage. Well, I mean, that's like basically, if you read between the lines, what it was trying to say. But, but no, back in June, uh, the Department of Homeland Security put out a press release, and it, to quote this exactly, we must secure the border and build the wall to make America safe again. So uh, I don't know if this rings any bells for you, Daniel, but uh, it sort of reminded me and it reminded a lot of other people who read it of uh, another phrase. Um, do you know, are you familiar with the famous 14 words? The famous 14 words, is that some kind of dog whistle? Uh, well, yeah, basically. It's uh, the slogan of Nazism, basically, which is we must secure the existence of our people and a future for white children. And uh, if you count the number of words here in this DHS slogan, it is, yep, 14. And that same, we must secure the, and a blah, blah, blah. Uh, it doesn't seem an accident, especially when you read the rest of this press release um, and all the other stuff Department of Homeland Security was doing at the time with the ice camps, the concentration camps. Uh, this was when there was uh, people freaking out about the migrant convoy, quote unquote, that was heading to the border, which everyone promptly forgot about as soon as it got there. Uh, this uh, was was no accident, if you ask me, and if you ask a lot of other uh, scholars in hate speech and other topics. Um, and I'm sure this immigration heritage is a uh, similarly workshopped phrase. Anytime you wear, see the word heritage in something like this, my my uh, alarm bells start going off. Um, well, I'm going to have to ask you to take your tinfoil hat off with your conspiracy theories, but I want to read more from this report, okay? So they go on, quote, typically an alien arrested by the border patrol is under the age of 25. 20% are women and children who are attempting to reach their husbands and or fathers who are already in the United States. Most of the aliens encountered are poor are looking for work, and have incurred transport and smuggler fees, end quote. Okay, so on the one hand, we have the Border Patrol acknowledging that a large percentage of these people are women, they're children, almost all of them are under the age of 25, and most of them are poor people just looking for work or, or trying to get back to their families. They go on, quote, The border environment is diverse. Illegal entrants crossing through remote, uninhabited expanses of land and sea along the border can find themselves in mortal danger. The Border Patrol will improve control of the border by implementing a strategy of prevention through deterrence. The Border Patrol will achieve the goals of its strategy 
by bringing a decisive number of enforcement resources to bear in each major entry corridor. The prediction is that with traditional entry and routes disrupted, illegal traffic will be deterred or forced over more hostile terrain. Let, End quote. Let me stop you for one second here, Daniel, because this, this section right here is, if you only take away one portion of this... This is what they wrote, David. This is what, what you need to take away. The explicit vision of the Border Patrol, like laid out in their press release documents, is that their plan is to make it as difficult as possible to cross, to push people into areas that are more deadly and that they're more likely to be killed in the process of trying to cross, to make them more vulnerable to those smugglers, transporters that you've already mentioned up earlier in that report, and to basically make life so hellishly awful for anybody who thinks about trying to cross into the border that they won't do it. But in the same breath, earlier they're talking about how a large section of these people are children, are young women, are young men who are just trying to get here to find family members. They might be alone in this world. They're trying to reconnect with their family, probably in some point because they've already been deported. So what they're saying is we're doing some evil algebra here, Daniel. We're betting that if we make this crossing so deadly that the want of people to be reunited with their family, that the want of people who want to build a better life will be less than their fear of death that the United States is trying to guarantee them if they should decide to cross into this nation. This is execution with more steps in the process. We're not going to shoot them on the border if they cross. We're just going to leave them in the desert without any water or any other sort of resources to allow them to live. And in fact, Border Patrol has been caught on video purposefully emptying out water left in the desert for people in these hazardous, difficult-to-cross areas specifically to discourage this type of transit. The U.S. government's, I just want to say this one more time, the U.S. government, Department of Homeland Security, Border Patrol, their official stance is we are trying to make crossing a border so deadly, despite the fact that we know women, children, and generally young people are the ones doing it, and we know that they're doing it mostly to reunite with family or to improve their economic lot in life, that we would rather them die than cross the border and achieve those goals. That is the explicit position of the United States government, written down in ink and published on their website. It's a very, very frustrating business. Obviously, when I started in 2000, I thought, well, they're going to figure this out. You can't have a policy that sends people into the worst parts of the desert, right? Right. <laughs> That's just not going to fly. And so I figured, you know, a couple of years we'll do this. Uh, if nothing else, we're highlighting the fact that, you know, that this is going on, even if people aren't using the water a lot. But back then, they actually were. Um, but even if they're not, we're highlighting it, and people, volunteers are coming from all over the country and seeing what's going on, yeah. all of that. And then, of but then it just never ended. They never changed the policy. If anything, they made it worse by by 
sort of pushing people even to more deadly parts of the desert. Didn't stop people because they all figured that they were the, you know, the people that it wasn't going to happen to. <clears throat> but they, um, uh, you know, here we are 20 years later, still putting water out, still, if anything, we found the more dead bodies in the desert in the last few years as we've branched out into places that we have known all along were really bad places for people to walk. So um, it's just a it's just a very frustrating job. The harsher that Border Patrol cracked down, the more it forced people into more hostile terrain. And the number of women and children who had to take those routes only increased as young men who had left them behind, who, who normally would return to their families through those uh, more historical uh, border and labor relations, those young men ended up staying permanently to avoid the treacherous journey twice. And so, you know, while the Border Patrol is recognizing that 20% of the migrants in 1994 were women and children. That number is much, much higher today because more and more of the share of those young men have found themselves in the United States. But see, the difference with Puerto Rico is there's a flow. You can go back to Puerto Rico and go back and forth, there's no problem. Um, with the Mexicans, every bad thing can happen. You can come here and then be afraid to go back. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, your family can sort of give up on you if you're not doing a good job of sending money home or whatever. Or you can give up on ever going back, so you decide to just start a whole new life here. And, you know, your family's waiting for you. Yeah. You know, it's just really bad. So what's unusual about what's going on now is that it's not young men or men or older men who've already done this trip a number of times. All these asylum seekers are families, young women and children. It's, it, that, that did happen in the past, but not nearly the way it's happening now. I mean, you can read stories, you know, of everybody piling up in their car, their new car, you know, proud of the job they've been doing, and they buy a car and they load it up with stuff, and they head back to Mexico for the holidays, you know, yeah. and then, uh, when it's picking season again, they all drive up in, in caravans, you know, and it wasn't legal, and but it just wasn't, it's just a whole new mindset now. Um, it just wasn't a problem back then. That was how it was done. And, you know, uh, you, you don't have the problem you have now where whole towns are missing their young men. They're afraid to go back. Um, because they're afraid they won't be able to come back into the country again. Uh, and it's really, really hard on small towns in Mexico. So it's, there's so many complications to the whole problem. According to journalist Ryan Devereaux, writing for The Intercept, this strategy was effective at, quote, stemming illegal immigration by locking down border cities, thus driving migration flows into the border's deadliest places, such as the Sonoran Desert. Virtually overnight, the number of dead bodies found along the border began to explode, 
eventually surpassing the death tolls of Hurricane Katrina and the September 11 attacks combined as desperate people tried their luck in one of the planet's most unforgiving ecosystems, end quote. Well, conditions have changed, and a lot of people don't understand the conditions, that the asylum seekers are not the same as the migrants that we used to deal with. And the migrants we were working with are not like the migrants from, you know, 20 years ago and back. Those are subtle changes to most people. There's migration, which they call illegal immigration, which I just call migration. That's been going on, you know, forever. Migration has just been a part of our history between Mexico and the United States. This seems like the change is, like in the past, you just had the regular in and out flows of labor mm -hmm. and, right. you know, like you mentioned, families going across the border for holidays. Right. But now it's like a lot of people just legitimately fleeing violence or right. the destruction of their homes. Right. Exactly. The asylum seekers are a completely different group than the migrant migrants we saw for many years who were coming up here on their own, mostly young men. It wasn't that there weren't any families, but it was you know, 80, 90% young men or men that had already come as young men who uh, were seeking work here. And then it's a whole new ballgame now. People seeking asylum for a legitimate reason. Now, why this atrocity? Why this policy of cruelty? and why it has gone on for so long, we'll talk about shortly. But we still don't have the full picture of what's going on and why and how we got here without looking at Central America. Mexico is just one small part of the border story because a large flow of migration before it reaches Mexico comes from Central America. Let's talk about Guatemala for a moment, David. In contrast to Mexico, which underwent a revolution a century ago that helped establish a modern state with its veneer of legitimate government, the people of Guatemala have remained for the most part under colonial rule ever since Spanish conquest in 1511. And those who currently lord over the people are mostly light-skinned families who have acquired immense wealth through consistent exploitation and oppression. Now, there is political competition, to be sure, but those vying for power do so off the backs of indigenous people who themselves have no seat at the table of government. And in fact, some categorize those that are vying for political power into three broad categories. In the first, you have those who have accumulated their wealth through the more traditional means. Uh, that is coffee plantations, banana plantations, cattle ranching, resource extraction, heavy industry. These are the people who have been around for 500 years. But now there is a new money elite taking shape. And these are the groups profiting off of international trade and business development in the region. And finally, you have a third elite who have acquired their wealth through the drug trade. Much of the cocaine and other products of the drug trade must pass through Guatemala before entering Mexico on the way up from South America. And this has given rise to the most recent class of wealthy elites who are vying for power, 
those who get rich dealing in cocaine, marijuana, human trafficking, and murder. And ironically, these violent people who are now competing with the cattle ranchers and the the miners, well, they were spawned by those very cattle ranchers and other traditional businessmen during the Guatemalan Civil War when they funded the creation of violent military units for the purpose of murdering and disappearing the peasants who were resisting oppression by the plantation owners. And now those military-trained killers are competing for power with the old money businessmen who initially hired them decades prior. And speaking of the Civil War, in episode 11, Designing Deception, we discuss the history of American public relations men in helping the company United Fruit, now known as Chiquita, collaborate with the CIA to overthrow the democratically elected president, Jacobo Arbenz. And uh, under Arbenz, the people of Guatemala experienced increased literacy and security through agrarian land reform. But that came through direct competition with United Fruit's desire to own all the land and enslave the people on banana plantations. So United Fruit, uh, the American company, requested help from the United States, and the result was the overthrow of Arbenz in 1954 and the installation of a military dictator. And this dictator is known for such laws as making it legal to kill peasants who refuse to work on your plantation. And the act of installing such a man as that led to 36 years of brutal civil war between 1960 and 1996, in which 200,000 people were killed, 45,000 were disappeared, And at the time that all these people were being driven off their land and being killed and disappeared, the U.S. president at the time, Ronald Reagan, refused to acknowledge any of these people as refugees when they showed up on the U.S. border, Uh, but perhaps not surprising because the administration was actively financing the military dictators who were doing the displacing in the first place. And to interject just for one second outside of the borders of Guatemala, To those that think that this doesn't happen anymore, that this was a relic of the past in the U.S.'s wayward policies of the 50s and 60s in their quest to defeat communism, well, literally as we're recording this episode, a coup sponsored and backed by the United States government, or at least approved of by it, has occurred in Bolivia, and just today they've passed laws allowing the military to execute or kill any protesters protesting the new right-wing conservative evangelical government and be excused from receiving any criminal charges for those, let's be honest here, murders. Not so different from a dictator passing laws allowing peasants to be murdered, is it, Daniel? You may be on to something, David, but uh, to turn back to Guatemala, in addition to civil war, there has been extensive resource extraction by foreign companies uh, throughout the country and Many Guatemalans who are migrating north are coming from regions where mining companies, drug cartels, and the state collaborate to push inhabitants out. But I just want to highlight one point, David, before we move on to another topic, and that's that in these discussions, it's so easy to cast the indigenous populations as helpless or as as these victims that need saving. But despite all the violence that is directed at them, these are not helpless people. These are powerful people who have resisted and fought back successfully against those who seek to exploit them for for hundreds of years. You know, after the Civil War in 1996, part of the reason the peace accords were signed is because the people resisted so heavily the military dictatorships. And 
one of the things they want was greater power in the hands of communities and, and greater legal structures to resist land grabbing in the, in the region, even though those provisions have been slowly chipped away yet with the help of you know, international finance corporations or, or bodies like the IMF and the World Bank. Case in point, there's a dam, a hydroelectric dam that has been proposed by the Guatemalan government on the Chixcoy River for years. And if it was to move forward, the project would flood some 32 square kilometers or 12 square miles. Uh, and that would displace up to 15,000 Mayans who depend on that land for their survival. And the government has applied aggressive tactics to get the project approved. Uh, for instance, in 2013, military and police were deployed in force to escort a foreign company while it performed an illegal geological study. Uh, repeated attempts have been made to bribe community leaders to get them to sell out their land. Uh, but despite all of this, no private funding has been secured precisely because there is such enormous local opposition and outrage, and people literally devote their lives to fighting back against these companies and, and the collaboration with their uh, so-called political leaders. And perhaps a quote by American Indian John Trudell is appropriate here. Quote, When I go around America and I see the bulk of the white people, they do not feel oppressed. They feel powerless. When I go amongst my own people, we do not feel powerless. We feel oppressed. We do not want to make the trade. We see the physical genocide they are attempting to inflict upon our lives, and we understand the psychological genocide they have already inflicted upon their own people. End quote. And there's a lot of points there, Daniel, especially around that development in Guatemala, these mega projects that we want to come back to, and we will in just a little bit. But first, we need to turn our attention to El Salvador. <laughs> I'm from El Salvador. I was very involved in my community back in El Salvador. I also have family uh, here in the United States uh, who came. Uh, my mom, for example, came here in the 80s, uh, 86. I was about two years old when she left El Salvador during the Civil War. And many Salvadorians did that, like a huge percentage of Salvadorians left the country because of the conflict. Looking for, again, the same, you know, same reasons why people are, are fleeing today, you know, violence and persecution and war. Salvadorians left at the time because of that. And then she moved to New York, many other family members. On my dad's side, also moved to the United States. And they all crossed the border. They, they never, there was, not a pro, there was not a process for them to, oh, you can apply for a visa or you can apply for, you know, such and such program so you can go to the United States. There was not a, such a program and there is not a program like that today. So people had to make the decision to risk their life, cross the border and, and, and survive. You know, people were either staying in El Salvador and risk my life or risk my life and hopefully make it to the United States and live there. So, again, many family members came here uh, undocumented. Some of them have um, documents today. Some of them are still undocumented. And one of my cousins who crossed the border in 2014 um, was also detained for about six months in Florida. So, my, you know, I have that in, in my, my own experience as an immigrant uh, and as, a, as a, a son of a family, a long history of migrants in the United States because of various reasons. Uh, one, one of them being persecution, one of them being poverty and looking for opportunities. Amilcar pointed to the Salvadoran Civil War as one of the main factors pushing Salvadorans out of their country because they were fleeing violence. And, we, you know, when we're sold this narrative by those in power that 
We are being invaded by gang members and people who want to take our freedom or some combination of these racist narratives. It may be easy to forget that people don't willingly pick up and leave their homes and that real violence and insecurity is driving migration for so many people who now find themselves in a life or death situation. But, but even if we accept that, uh, many of us can still find ourselves adopting some kind of unwelcoming position towards immigrants. We might say, well, it's certainly sad that El Salvador experienced civil war, but that's their problem and not ours. And you know, maybe they should sort out the problems in their own country instead of coming here to ours uh, and draining our resources and bringing their problems with them. That's a good point. And this is something that we hear a lot. But what we really need to realize here is that these things don't happen in a vacuum by themselves, untouched by anything else. In fact, in many cases, they are the direct result of our actions, especially those of us living here in the United States. And this is what happens when we have a globalized economy, a world where diplomatic relations between nations is always happening. There are no isolated populations where things exist without extreme amounts of influence from the outside world. And El Salvador and their civil war is especially one of these situations. That civil war that Emil Carr mentioned, that claimed over 75,000 lives between 1979 and 1990. And just to put that in perspective, that's 20% more people killed than Americans died in the Vietnam War. And we, we talk about that as this huge tragedy, as this huge catastrophe and bungle, I guess, of the United States military. And I'm not going to get into that. There's a lot to dissect there. But, I mean, this is a major conflict. And what everyone needs to know is that this wasn't just a war between the Salvadoran military and the Salvadoran people. It was a war between the United States government and the Salvadoran people. And let's just break this down just a second, because I know that's an extraordinary claim. But, but here we go. The first thing is that you had this civil war itself which, you know, is a typical type of civil war in the modern world, where you had a tyrant military-led junta government that served, of course, a small elite class. And then on the other side, you have a coalition of grassroots groups that are led by, uh, you know, what a politician might call the people. Uh, indigenous people, farmers, uh, working class, that is the other side that is fighting against this elite military junta. And of course, the reason these people are fighting that elite junta is because they're being actively oppressed by them. They're being exploited economically and sometimes violently as well, where what begins as a small protest over something like an economic deal turns into a violent protest as police and military escalate the violence firing oftentimes into these groups. And then from there, a civil war begins breaking out. And once we have this violence escalate and get bigger and bigger and bigger, something that we're seeing happen all around the world right now in this unprecedented time of rebellion bordering on civil war, well, then, as always, the American government decided it's high time to get involved. Long story short, the U.S. government picks sides with the military, and rather than condemn the, the Salvadoran government, which was murdering innocent civilians, murdering Christians, kidnapping civilians, all this type of thing, instead, the U.S. provided weapons military training, and financing of up to $2 million per day. The U.S. military sent 55 military advisors to El Salvador, in addition to a more involved military attache, who all essentially made the high-level decisions that the Salvadoran military ended up carrying out. 
In one of the most horrific massacres, 800 people were murdered in the village of El Mazote on December 11, 1981, and that was carried out by Lieutenant Colonel Domingo Monterosa Barrios, who was trained at the School of the Americas in Panama. And his men, the Atla Cattle Battalion, were trained by none other than U.S. Army and Special Forces troops in Fort Bragg, North Carolina. They were equipped and directed by U.S. military advisors during the war. Now, this brutality, this crackdown on civilian populations, and what oftentimes amounted to war crimes and just straight executions of people who were deemed opposing the government, well, when you're in a situation where you're constantly fearing for your life, you flee. And that's what happened to almost a quarter of the population of El Salvador, these people mostly leaving and heading towards the United States. And this is where this story starts leading into today, because maybe you've heard of the news, maybe you've heard Donald Trump tweet or talk about MS-13. And this is the origin of that group. So many of the Salvadoran refugees that landed in the United States ended up in Los Angeles. And Los Angeles in the 1980s especially was a very different place. It was a very violent place. And for many of them, this meant that the only way to survive was through mutual protection and allegiance. And of course, that gives way to the creation of gangs. So these gangs, which started off as forms of protection, quickly started getting into other criminal activity, and they were born, and they gave birth to the groups that became known as Mara Salvatrucha, or MS-13, and Barrio 18, M18. And then, once these groups had acclimated themselves in Los Angeles, the U.S. government deported thousands of them back to their war-torn country, where these groups naturally worked to carve territory for themselves in the same way that they had learned to do in the United States, resulting in more long-term instability and violence in El Salvador from the three competing forces of MS-13, M18, and the government. So just to break this down again, a civil war happens in El Salvador because the people are being oppressed and exploited and they revolt against a military junta that is actively attacking and killing them. The United States involves themselves in the Civil War, providing arms and expertise to the government, escalating the violence that occurs there. People decide to flee. They come to the United States, where they find even more violence. They create these groups for mutual protection that eventually evolve into violent gangs, probably because in part they've been exposed to so much violence through this. The United States takes these people, deports them back to their country, back to El Salvador, which is a war-torn, ripped-up place at this point, and they also, in that process, export the violence that they had learned to commit here in the United States and for that in their own country because of the United States. And it should be no surprise then that what you have is in the United States, the people who weren't deported create one end of this uh, criminal enterprise. And then on the other end, the United States has created the perfect situation for these gangs to build a home. And the flow between the two that we see today that Donald Trump, that Border Patrol is always talking about is this big villain was created in this process by the United States itself. Here's from the Nomas Muertas desert aid worker. Quote, It's worth driving home how much responsibility the government of the United States bears in creating this mess. First, it bankrolled the Salvadoran right wing in its war on the better half of its own society. Then it deported thousands of the survivors of this war, dead broke, back to a country the size of Massachusetts that it had just destroyed. Most recently, it undermined the efforts of the FMLN and the gangs to come to a workable compromise, end quote. 
David, I guess you could say there's a bit of an irony in telling people from Central America to fix their own problems when we are the source of those problems. And I mean, these are people that have a long history of fighting back against the tyrants that oppress them. And we need to take a look in the mirror to realize that we are the ones that have been handing cash, weapons, and military guidance to those tyrants for an incredibly long time now. Which raises the question, David, like, why? You know, why is the United States giving support to tyrants, dictators, and oligarchs who brutally murder and oppress their own people? You know, sometimes, David, we say the United States does something. And I realize we can't just lump all 330 million Americans into this category, right? I mean, we are referring to um, a part of our government that most people don't know about. These types of things play out behind closed doors. But it's a a core function of our government. And, And so we have to ask why this is happening. And you mentioned that things don't happen in a vacuum, referring to the violence and the instability. But there's something else that doesn't happen in a vacuum, and that's wealth accumulation. And you can't acquire wealth, you can't accumulate wealth from people that you don't control. You cannot siphon money and resources from people whose labor and products from that labor do not make it onto a supply chain that you control. This is why our government subsidizes commodity crop production, which is destroying the soil, as opposed to supporting local and sustainable agriculture. Because those in power can make money from a bushel of corn that makes it onto the international commodities conveyor belt, but they make nothing from the produce that communities grow for their own consumption. The same principle applies to small Central American countries. We, as a global hegemonic power cannot make money from Salvadorans who live in harmony with each other and the earth. But it turns out we can make money from a tyrant family who subjugates those Salvadorans into peasants and then forces them to work on coffee plantations that our companies can then integrate into their their fast food chains that dots our landscape, right? Uh, Which, by the way, to bring it full circle, Those fast food chains only exist in the first place because local agriculture in our own country has been destroyed and economic precarity has put many Americans in positions where they have no access to healthy food, uh, they have no healthy produce, they're too poor to afford anything but the dollar menu of the fast food joint, which, uh, to to continue my tangent, David, is uh, destroying our public health, uh, bankrupting the country. Meanwhile, Thousands of Salvadorans show up at our border, but we are so distracted into believing that they are the problem, when in reality, they are victims of the same forces that are destroying our own lives and our own communities. To focus on stopping the migration without stopping the pain that drives it, and especially when your own country has helped foster much of that pain, is like an arsonist setting fire to a building and then blocking the exits as folks try and escape. It's a quote from Tim Wise, and I think really sums up this idea better than you and I can, Daniel. And, and so what drove you personally to uh, do this work? That, um, I knew for a long time that I wanted to do some public interest work and, and help immigrants. I was in the Peace Corps in El Salvador a long time ago before I went to law school and became a lawyer, and I was doing just pro bono representation on the side, very, very small amount. And so it just kicked me into action that I knew it was time and I had to take this big leap. I had to move from Washington, D.C. to Georgia to do it full time and, and help as many 
people as I could. What is it about being in El Salvador and I guess the, the relationships that you built there with people? What is it about that experience that helped inform your desire to work with people being detained in the United States? Understanding of where they're coming from, understanding the historic problems in El Salvador, the way that U.S. policies have contributed to the problems in El Salvador and um, the violence and poverty that exists there that prevents people from being able to live there safely, people that just can't move up. They're born in poverty. They um, try to go to school. There's no jobs available. There's no jobs that pay more than, you know, in the rural communities. So I very much understand I have a family. If I was in El Salvador or a country like that and I had no way to protect my family and we were facing the threats of violence that the people we see are facing, I would do everything I could to get my kids out of there. Unfortunately, the national security perspective and not the human dignity perspective still dominates popular media, such as this example from Joe Rogan, Jocko Willink, and Tulsi Gabbard. You know, when you talk about people that are living down in Mexico that want to come here, it's like, oh, you know, you feel for them because they got a bad deal. But a lot of the people that are trying to come here are MS-13 gangsters looking to come up here and whatever, do what they're going to do in America where there's even more money to be made off of illegal activities. Yeah, if you could throw the Wonder Woman lasso of truth around them and find out what they're really all about, <laughs> that would be great. That would be awesome. <laughs> we can't really do that. If you're just poor and you want to make it, hey, come on in. You're a hard worker. Excellent. So are my grandparents. Come on in. Mm-hmm. You know, but it's just the, the idea that we should all have open borders and everybody should be able to go anywhere. Like, ee. Yeah. Boy, there's a lot, lot of people that you don't want coming here. So the, the news puts a lot of focus on the crisis at the border. Immigrants, when they arrive to our, our, our border. And so the debate seems to be framed around the idea of what is our moral responsibility? Like, okay, they're at our border. They clearly need help. Is it our responsibility to help them? And I think what's missing from this framework is why they're here in the first place. That's right. And so is it possible that that's missing for a reason? Or is there a reason we're not talking about that? Yeah, because U.S. foreign policy is directly responsible for creating the crisis in a lot of Central American countries, not to mention the Middle East, many parts of Africa, frankly, many parts of the world. And I mean, you don't need to go back decades to see the destructive role of you know, U.S. foreign policy in creating chaos in many countries. I mean, just it was as recently as 2009 when the U.S. gave tacit support under the Obama administration to a coup against um, the democratically elected Manuel Zelaya in Honduras, and you're replacing him with a dictatorial regime, which then led to instability in the country and basically murder and torture um, and the targeting of many human rights and environmental and indigenous activists. And so people are genuinely not feeling safe and they have to flee. So it's a forced migration that is not talked about. I mean, there is this perception perhaps on the part of many people that, okay, well, 
some people just wake up in you know one of these countries and they decide to come to the US and I think people need to understand and I say this as an immigrant myself that um, immigration is a very difficult experience um, and so you know you're being uprooted from your home from your family uh, from your community and so um, you know in many situations people are forced to flee for their lives and so I think um, people really need to stop for a minute to ask themselves, you know, especially in Central American countries, what role has the policies of this government played to create the conditions for people to have to flee their homes and seek refuge here? Not to mention climate change as a result of much of our industrial activity. It, it seems like such, such a contrast from what we're taught here in the, in the United States that we are this uh, moral high ground that we intervene in countries so that we can uphold democracy. That's so different from ousting a democratically elected president for a dictator. Yep. And I mean, you know, there's a long, long history of this. I mean, in the country I was born in Iran, you know, in 1953, the U.S., the CIA, um, in collaboration with the U.K., engineered a coup against a democratically elected prime minister of Iran, Mossadegh, because he wanted to nationalize Iranian oil. So basically, he wanted to ensure that the resources of the Iranian people stayed in Iran rather than being, uh, you know, pillaged by... Um, U.S. and U.K. corporations. And so, again, he was replaced by a dictator. And, you know, I would argue that was the last time that Iran saw true democracy. And so created the conditions um, for, you know, some follow-up events um, that really um, ensured that, you know, a lot of people um, either fled for their lives or because of um, just, you know, not being able to foresee a future for themselves or their children. You know, David, Azadeh mentioned that immigration is a difficult situation and it's not easy for a person living in one of these Central American countries to journey north for the United States, as we've talked about. Those from Central America are largely discriminated against in Mexico. They face enormous challenges along their journey within Mexico, that extremely dangerous train ride, um, the risk of sexual abuse and murder by Zetas in the northeast of Mexico, the risk of deportation and abuse by Mexican military and police, and, and you know, well before they even get to the U.S.-Mexico border. But we still hear this common argument here in the United States that someone will say, look, I have no problem with immigration. I just, you know, I'm just saying that people should cross legally. If you want to be in this country so bad, just do it the legal way, right? We hear this all the time. So let's look at just one example of a legal pathway to the United States from Guatemala. And this comes from our Desert Aid Workers book. Quote, For a Guatemalan to apply for a visa to visit the United States, the fee is $160 paid to the American government. This fee is not returned if the visa is denied, but the Guatemalan is welcome to try and to pay again. Applying for the visa means first getting a passport, which costs $160 paid to the Guatemalan government. Without fail, this must be accompanied by a bribe paid to someone at the passport office. The bribe has to be larger if the Guatemalan is indigenous, probably about $160 more. The visa application must be filled out online and in English. 
It is also timed. It probably goes without saying that most Guatemalans do not simultaneously have $500 to burn, speedy internet access, and the ability to fill out a form in English. There is a cottage industry of people who fill out these forms for a hefty fee. Despite all this, every business day at the American Embassy in Guatemala City, up to a thousand people wait in line for a hearing with a consular official. The hearing lasts three to five minutes. The most important thing is to demonstrate binding economic ties to Guatemala, chiefly property ownership. If the visa is granted, it does not give the Guatemalan permission to enter the United States. It gives permission to present oneself legally at an American port of entry. The final decision is then made by the Customs and Border Protection agent working the port. This agent can deny the Guatemalan entry without cause, and there is no legal redress if they choose to do so. The process is equally onerous for other Central Americans, somewhat less so for Mexicans. Only a very dense person would miss the point that this system is rigged to filter out poor people. End quote. I don't even know what to fucking say. What are you supposed to say against these people? What are you supposed to tell somebody who's, who's like, oh, you know, I'm fine with immigrants as long as they're here legally. This legal argument, Daniel, is something that always gets to me because it's easy to say something like that where... Oh, I'm not against immigrants. I just wish they were coming in legally. You know, that, that tired canned phrase that somebody can say to get out of any sort of responsibility of having any personal empathy or whatever it is. But most people who say that don't have any sort of idea or understanding of exactly what those programs, those legal ways of entering the United States as a resident look like. And let me tell you, they fucking suck, Daniel. I have friends who have been uh, forced out of this country because of visa issues, people who are highly educated, the most desired populations in the eyes of the U.S. government. These are people with college degrees. These are people doing unique jobs. Some of them are literally business owners, um, and many of them are wealthy. I have a friend whose family is quite literally a billionaire, and even they have difficulty maintaining their visa to work in the United States for a company which they own, which employs several other people. The reality of it is that these many programs the United States has for working in this country as a non-citizen are very difficult to navigate, are extremely arbitrary, and are very expensive. Some of my friends pay tens of thousands of dollars to lawyers to help them navigate this process. And many times it still ends up as a lottery system because many of these visas are limited to very low amounts. And if you are somebody who isn't highly educated, who isn't well-connected, who doesn't speak perfect English, and who doesn't have endless amounts of money to fund your navigation through these programs, well, then the odds are stacked against you. And even worse, the number of slots available to you are stacked against you in the eyes of the government because you are an unwanted worker. They don't want, in their eyes, untalented labor coming into the U.S. And that's an unfair way of classifying what these people are capable of. But when the bean counters get down to it, when they're signing out how many uh, entrance visas are available, that is what they will call this stuff, unskilled labor. And the, the ironic nature of it is that these unskilled laborers will work in the United States anyway and are the ultimate wheels that drive it at the most fundamental level. How much of our food is dependent upon this, this type of labor, Daniel? A huge portion. How much of our construction is dependent upon this? A huge portion. And any attempts to try and uh, 
expand these programs in semi-legal ways is always met with pushback, with people who don't understand the processes, but also from people, and this is, this is the one that really gets me, people who have navigated these programs successfully, who do find themselves either as permanent residents or eventually as U.S. citizens, who want people to suffer the same way that they did. And those situations just break my heart. I don't know what happened to some of these immigrants that they want other people to be as miserable in navigating this process as them. But shouldn't you look at this horrible thing you went to and say, I hope no one else has to do that. I hope they can find the ultimate end of this journey without suffering like I did. But that aside, what this comes down to in the end is about labor power. The most prolific labor program the United States has today is the H-1B program, which very similar to the Bracero program is something utilized by especially high-tech companies to bring in foreign workers to suppress artificially the salary and the unionization efforts of highly skilled laborers. I'm talking computer programmers, engineers, uh, people who work at Google, Microsoft, Facebook, these major powerful companies who love to pull in foreign labor, oftentimes from India, that are highly skilled, highly educated, able of doing all sorts of things that American citizen programmers can, but can be threatened with deportation. They have lower salaries. They're willing to work more and allow them to really threaten their own American labor pools who are constantly trying to unionize, constantly trying to improve their working conditions, constantly trying to uh, regain some of the control that Silicon Valley has taken away from, you know, not only these laborers, but all of our lives, but are finding this more and more difficult because of this other labor program the United States has constructed once again to suppress American labor. And, and I, I realize I'm getting out of this, I'm getting out of the way, but these recurring patterns that keep happening over and over again with the exploitation of labor and ultimately the exploitation of people are really important to understand in these larger lenses of looking at things like this migrant crisis. If we understand that at the bottom line, people are profiting from this suffering then we begin to understand this crisis as it really extends. It's not about somebody crossing a border illegally. It's about somebody looking at an arbitrary line in the land and saying, I can profit from this, and I'm going to make sure I do, even if it means that other people will suffer. The important thing to remember here, Daniel, is that borders benefit those in power. And there are a lot of people benefiting from this U.S. border. started in 2000, I thought, well, they're going to figure this out. You can't have a policy that sends people into the worst parts of the desert, right? Right. That's <laughs> just not going to fly. But then it just never ended. They never changed the policy. You know, here we are 20 years later. If anything, we found more dead bodies in the desert. David, we mentioned in part one how the border crisis is the confluence of several forces, climate change, economic instability, political instability, poverty, violence in Central America and Mexico, the rise of authoritarian border policies, and the militarization of the border itself. But we would be mistaken to assume that this is simply an unfortunate, unforeseen thing happening in the world. The harsh reality is, 
There are very powerful groups that directly benefit from the thousands of deaths occurring in the desert. And not just to drill this down into deaths, Daniel, but, but the suffering that happens on both sides of the border that really contributes to this larger system, this suffering is something that is extracted and exploited by a number of groups like you mentioned. So the United States is responsible for much of the crises in foreign countries driving refugees, immigration. But here in the United States, we have a crisis or a perceived crisis. And could there be a purpose to creating crisis or the feeling of a crisis right here in our own country? Does it benefit anybody to encourage fear and suspicion and racism among the people? Right. So then people won't be paying attention to the real roots of the problems. I mean, if you know, if you pick an enemy, constantly scapegoat them, you know, whether it be the immigrant or the Muslim or, you know, whoever, and, you know, blame them for all the problems that the average person could be having, then, you know, it's easy to kind of um, distract people from the real sources of, you know, any economic problems people may be having, lack of equality, um, you know, the climate crisis, all of the various issues that we're facing on, you know, in our communities um, on a daily basis, which, um, you know, it, I mean, the roots of them, obviously, you know, in our sort of, you know, in our thinking are capitalism tied with um, racism and then, you know, looking at U.S. foreign policies, U.S. imperialism and, you know, all of those issues are at the roots of the problems that need to be addressed. Azadeh mentioned how the border crisis serves part of a larger goal of distracting people from the root problems of their lives. But it does raise the question, doesn't it, David? Why does power want to distract us from our problems in the first place? Why does it benefit people in power, whether those are CEOs or government leaders, for us, the, the peasants out here in the United States, why does it benefit them for us to be distracted from the root cause of all the problems that we face? Maybe it's not a hard question to answer, right? I mean, this is not a concept that requires us to wrap our minds around some complex conspiracy. At the end of the day, the root cause of economic inequality, environmental degradation, and all the types of issues that we talk about on this show, whatever the root causes of all these problems are, they can be solved through collective action. That is when we, the people, come together to pool our resources and figure out a solution and then act towards it. But when you start to look at why we have economic inequality, it becomes apparent that there are forces that benefit from the oppression and exploitation of others and that it would actually harm them and harm their interests if we worked together. Well, Daniel, when you're talking about distractions, it's like a magic trick, right? It says, look over here at this um, while I actually do the real trick over here. And uh, our economic and political systems are very much the same way, where we lambast and, and act big about certain things. Meanwhile, there's extremely dirty dealings going on over here behind the curtain. And the border is no different than that. And in many cases, the things that they don't want us to see are the people benefiting and profiting from the misery of these people who are just trying to live a better life. And also, of course, the destruction of the earth that goes along with this exploitation. In the nine years leading up to June of 2019, over 1,100 companies were paid $6.4 billion by Customs and Border Protection. And half of that, Daniel, 
just came in 2018 and 2019 alone. The largest beneficiaries of this financial windfall by far are defense contractors, information technology firms, and strangely, advertising and consulting companies. But these are just the big corporations. CBP subsidizes countless businesses that supply things like vehicles, buildings, office supplies, equipment for detention facilities, housekeeping, construction materials, and so much more. Over the years, No More Deaths has developed a pretty comprehensive understanding of the area we cover, which at times has been one of the most heavily traveled sections of the entire border. We have formed a fairly clear picture of where traffic starts, where it goes, how it gets there, where it's busy and where it's slow at any given time, where the pinch points are, and so on. I honestly believe that if I worked for the Border Patrol, I could basically point at a map and tell them how to shut down the whole sector. It's really not rocket science. Keep in mind that all of our work has been done by untrained civilian volunteers armed with low-end GPS units, a few old trucks, run-of-the-mill mapping software, cheap cell phones with spotty service, and a very limited budget. Does it seem logical that we could figure this stuff out while the government of the United States of America cannot, despite access to helicopters, unmanned drones, electronic sensors, fleets of well-maintained trucks, night vision systems, state-of-the-art communications and surveillance and mapping technology, tens of thousands of paid employees, and a limitless supply of money to shovel down the hole at every possible opportunity? I don't think it does. So what's going on? If you accept the stated objectives of the border at face value, then none of this makes any sense at all. If you accept that the actual objectives may not be the stated ones, things start to come together fast. The task of the border patrol and the actual objectives of the policies it is there to enforce is not to stop illegal immigration. It is to manage and control that migration. But to what end? To whose benefit? Well, Daniel, when you're talking about benefit, there's probably nothing that's more in the public's mind than private prison corporations. And these have gotten a lot of attention recently in the press for a variety of reasons, all of them bad. But when it comes down to the prisons involved in the border system, well, there's a lot of money sloshing around and there's a lot of people who are benefiting. So let's talk about these prison corporations for just a moment. First off, the U.S. has a lot of prisons and prisoners. In fact, they have the largest system for imprisoning immigrants that the earth has ever seen. And to put a number to that, Daniel, that's 450,000 migrants detained each year. But it wasn't always like this. In the 1990s, there were these two big-for-profit prison corporations that emerged, GEO Group and the Corrections Corporations of America, or CCA. These companies aggressively lobbied the federal government to support their industry. And as a result, the 1990s saw a new prison built every 15 days. Between 1996 and 1998, the population of immigrant detention cells doubled from 8,500 on a given day to 16,000. Those corporations are still operating today, and they're the two largest contractors for ICE, with hundreds of millions and billions of dollars flowing between all these groups. In episode 40, Land of the Free, we looked in depth at the prison system of America. And while private companies are absolutely a big piece to that, just under 10% of the federal prison population is housed in private prisons. Compare that 
to immigration detention, where 60% of the population is housed in a privately operated facility. Now, how is that possible? Here's Laura Adams writing from the Center for American Progress in July 2019. U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, the federal agency tasked with overseeing and implementing policies related to immigration detention contracts out a large portion of its detention capacity to state and local governments. In fact, the majority of ICE detention facilities are contracted through Intergovernmental Service Agreements, IGSAs, with localities. And because local governments can then subcontract with private prison companies to operate these detention facilities, and sometimes their own local jails that also hold civil immigration detainees, the process allows ICE to circumvent the usual and more rigorous federal bidding and contracting procedures required to contract with private companies directly. And you know, David, how we always hear how, you know, if we just make everything like a business, we'll save money and everything will run efficiently. The U.S. taxpayer doesn't even benefit from this. According to federal government records, it costs us 150% more to lock a person up in these private facilities than one operated by a municipality. Daniel, could you imagine working at a company and being like, yeah, this sure is great. I wish everything was run this way. Well, I mean, obviously the CEO of, of CoreCivic loves the fact that uh, he gets paid 150% more than the government would. At Stewart, you know, if you just, you know, multiply that for, you know, 2,000 people detained a day, that's a lot of money that are making to detain people. And the idea sometimes is like, well, they're a private corporation. You know, they do a better job than the government. Well, it's not true. <laughs> when you see people who died in facilities, when you see all the issues of medical care uh, that people have, that's not a model that is working for anyone. Not for the government, not for the people who are detained, no, uh, but only for the corporations who are making a lot of money. But all of this really just reveals for us that to understand why so many people are being detained in for-profit private prisons, why so many people are being driven to misery in the desert, why we have such draconian immigration policies, all we have to do is follow the money. Here's one last clue to understanding the real purpose of the border. Much of the legislation that becomes government policy is written by the corporations that stand to profit from it. Arizona's State Bill 1070, which was intended to require police to lock up anyone they stop who cannot show proof of having entered the country legally, was drafted in December 2009 at the Grand Hyatt Hotel in Washington, D.C. by officials of the Billion Dollar Corrections Corporation of America, now CoreCivic. This took place at a meeting of the American Legislative Exchange Council, a membership organization of state legislators and powerful corporations. The law, which was partially overturned but provided the model for copycat legislation that passed in other states, was designed to send hundreds of thousands of immigrants to prison, which means hundreds of millions of dollars in profits for the companies such as CoreCivic that are responsible for housing them. It is not in this industry's interest to completely stop illegal immigration. It is in their interest to let in enough people to fill their jails. When people hear about immigrants and refugees being imprisoned at the border, I'm sure that many just assume that it's all happening right there at the border. And it can make it difficult for those of us who live in other parts of the country to relate or feel like it's a problem that we can do anything about. 
But the reality is that the people who end up in ICE custody can wind up pretty much anywhere in the United States. There are over 200 immigration prisons and jails in the country, and you can find one in almost every single state, which raises the question, what determines where you get sent? And to be honest, uh, we still don't completely know the answer, but that answer may partially, well, will definitely partially be an economic one. And it turns out that when a private company contracts with ICE, a, quote, guaranteed number of prisoners gets written into the contract. David, I'm going to stop you right there. You just said guaranteed number of prisoners. And I, I think we should really uh, pause and just think about what that means. It means that the federal government, when it creates these contracts with private companies to run these facilities, it guarantees that they will be paid a minimum amount regardless of the number of people actually being detained. For example, there's the Ote Mesa Detention Facility in San Diego, and the government guarantees them $2.7 million per month, plus an additional $138 for each person that it locks up. Now, it averages 955 people detained every single day, which brings its monthly revenue to around $4 million. And the Stewart Detention Facility in Georgia, it is guaranteed 1,600 detainees each and every day. But in reality, Stewart averages 1,800 people locked in its facility each day. And the government pays Stewart up to $63 per person, which is approximately $3.4 million per month. So what you're trying to say here, Daniel, is that all these different prisons are guaranteed a monthly revenue stream, whether or not there are prisoners in this bed or not. But with the increasing amount of ICE roundups that are happening around this country right now, these prisons are being filled up and they're being filled in increasing amounts. And it might be, once again, remember these, these prisons don't all exist on the border. They're all around the country. And it's likely that ICE is sending people all over the country to these far off prisons and determining where they go based on the contracts that they have already negotiated with these private companies in order to fill those guaranteed beds. Yeah. And this is a shocking reality because it turns out that where you get sent in the country, it matters. When I visited Stewart Detention Facility in Georgia, I was told about two brothers. They each arrived to the United States together, seeking asylum at the border, and they were picked up by immigration. One of the brothers was sent to New York, and one was sent to the Stewart Detention Facility in Georgia. Both had the exact same case. They were fleeing the exact same circumstances. They were brothers. And the one who was sent to New York was granted asylum and got to stay in the United States. The other brother was deported. Asylum seekers are a huge, a huge percentage of the people we visit inside of the facility, a store. And this is, again, this is not something new. We started to see the shift. Um, at the beginning, it was mostly people who were picked up here in the interior, like North Carolina, you know, Georgia, and South Carolina. In 2012, 2013, we started to see this huge shift. We started to see a lot of Chinese detained and sent to Stewart, a lot of Haitians, uh, a lot of people from Mexico and, and you know, El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala. 
sent to the detention center. A lot of people from Africa too uh, sent to stores. So many of them were asylum seekers, and, and the vast majority of them were asylum seekers. Who it still is the case. We still see many of them uh, as store. Again, sometimes it's Nicaraguan. Now we see a lot of Nicaraguans. Now we see a lot of uh, Venezuelans uh, who are you know fleeing because of you know the, the reality of their countries. So for asylum seeker, if you are at the border, you claim to have a fear of returning to your homeland because of your, you know, fear of persecution, because of your, you know, either religion, uh, you know, you participating in a particular group, overall violence. Then the government should allow you to have a, an, a special interview to verify that those claims are true, and then you present, you know, some some evidence of that, and then they said you to a court, set you a court date, and you, you just show up to the court. But because the many of the places where uh, at the border where people are being held are you know are full, they send it to different places. So you can be sent to Stewart, you can send to you know New York, you can be sent to California, you can send to to many many places, and that makes a huge difference. Like if you are sent to Georgia, the chances for you to get your asylum claims is very slim. Uh, in 2000, I believe it's 2015, the percentage was less than 5%. And I think it's, that's about 6% now. So only 6% of the overall population who were claiming asylum got approval for asylum or were released from detention and continued their process. 94% of them, 95% of them lost their cases. But yeah, so if you're sent to, let's say, New York, you have, you know, 30, 40% chances. The national average is actually 46 uh, or 42%. So there is a huge disparity in terms of the, the, the numbers of you know, people who actually are granted asylum here and, and the national average being more than 40%. And that's why attorneys like Aaron working for the Southern Poverty Law Center make it their priority when they represent people who have been locked up in Stewart to get them out. That's their whole case is let's get you transferred to a different state. Because if you stay here, your chances are pretty much zero of being granted asylum, no matter how horrible, no matter how oppressive, no matter what the circumstances of the situation that you are fleeing. We're here with Aaron Argeta, an attorney with the Southern Poverty Law Center and the Southeast Immigrant Freedom Initiative. Can you tell us a little bit about the Southeast Immigrant Freedom Initiative and how that integrates with the Southern Poverty Law Center? Sure. It's a program started by the Southern Poverty Law Center, funded by the Southern Poverty Law Center, um, and it opened in April 2017. We have four sci-fi offices, three in Georgia and one in Louisiana, and the three offices in Georgia each are located right near a detention center and serve that detention center exclusively. And then the one in Louisiana serves two detention centers. We really focus on release because of capacity issues. So we try to get people out on bond or parole. We provide free representation to get as many people out on bond or parole as we can. And we focus on release, one, because of capacity and also because the courts that these detention centers are served by either the Atlanta Immigration Court for two of the sites in Georgia here in Lumpkin, we have the Stewart Immigration Court, and then in Louisiana, the courts that they have are some of the courts with the worst outcomes for immigrants, the lowest grant rates for release. 
So if somebody gets out of detention, they can move and be near their family and friends and get legal representation and get to a court that might have a better grant rate. I think that distinction, Daniel, of what happens to you depending on where you end up going to court, New York versus Georgia, Texas versus Massachusetts, that's really important. Because as you pointed out, these southern courts tend much more often to deport these people. And so it shouldn't come with a surprise then that much of the new prison construction that is going on for these ICE contracts is happening in the Deep South. And I don't think that's a coincidence. In fact, in June 2019, ICE was able to expand its detention capacity in Louisiana and Mississippi by 50%. Katie Shepard of the American Immigration Council writes, Ramping up ICE detention in the Deep South is particularly problematic given the remoteness of the facilities and their distance from available attorneys, expert witnesses, and loved ones. The region is notorious for particularly harsh immigration judges. Many of the hearings are likely to be heard by video teleconference, which disadvantages immigrants. Attorneys and advocates have complained that video technology often breaks down and the lines may have bad sound quality. You know, there's not offices with immigration lawyers right down the street that can go interview people and represent them. Their families can't visit them. There's obstacles to their families being able to visit them. We, we see families that arrive at Stewart that have driven all night from Texas or North Carolina or Florida and just to see someone. It's a no-contact visit. They might wait hours. They might they drive all night, they wait four or five hours, and then they get to have a no-contact one-hour visit with the person. What is a no-contact visit? Through through a plexiglass. One, you're on one side and, and your loved one is on the other end, and you're using like a staticky phone. People that are held both in Osceola and in um, Folkestone, the detained immigrants, in those facilities have their court hearings in Atlanta, which is three and a half hours from Osceola, and I think like four, maybe four and a half hours from uh, Folkestone. So for Osceola, especially, the detained person appears by video into the court. The judge is in Atlanta, and if the attorney wants to represent that person, the attorney has to also appear in Atlanta. So you either have to live near the person that you're representing and be able to visit them and, and talk to them to prepare for the hearing and then get yourself to Atlanta or you have to be in Atlanta and hardly ever get to see your client <laughs> to be able to go to the court. When we started to do visits at the attention center, we and the people who started the program noticed that many of the families who were visiting their loved ones were not coming from the only from the Atlanta area, which is about two and a half hours if you go there. But many families were from uh, North Carolina. We encountered families who were from Charlotte, Durham, and other places um, uh, across the Southeast. Even people from New York and Maryland were visiting their loved ones at Stewart. And if you're not familiar with Stewart, it's a very small town, rural town in South Georgia. There are no hotels in town. At the time, there were actually no grocery stores in this town. So there, there were no places for people to rest before or after their visit. So talking to the families, we learned that some of them were sleeping in, in their car because they thought when they get to Lumpkin, they were able to find a hotel. That didn't happen. Uh, they drove 10 hours to get there, and there are no places for accommodations. There. These facilities 
make it into these rural counties by targeting municipalities that are cash-strapped. These are the places that have been left behind by the economy. And these private corporations take advantage of that by convincing the municipality that they will bring jobs, they will bring economic activity in the form of taxes, all so that they can win contracts at very low cost to themselves and then operate far from the public eye. And once these facilities get up and running, those jobs that they promised, that economic base, it never materializes. The Stewart Detention Facility in Lumpkin, Georgia, David, is so remote that the properties do not even have mailboxes because there's no mail truck that comes through their town, that the city has no money for that. But you'd think at least the people who live in Lumpkin, this very remote part of southern Georgia, at least they would get jobs at the facility, right? At least they would be rewarded for the fact that they opened their town up to this private company. But as it turns out, almost all of the workers of Stewart commute 45 minutes away from Columbus. Well, it's a myth, first of all. You know, I mean, it's a myth. The corporation comes to town and says, you know, there's going to be this prison. There's going to be all these jobs. And I mean, just one example is the Stewart Detention Center, where those promises, you know, haven't materialized for the local community. And the prison corporation actually relies on the forced labor of detained migrants, as I, um, you know, mentioned earlier. So, you know, instead of hiring people and paying them regular wages, minimum wage, um, the prison corporation is making detained immigrants work for sub-minimum wages between $1 to $4 a day. Sometimes they're not even getting paid at all. And then threatening them or actually placing them in solitary confinement. So, um, you know, those who lose are the detained migrants um, because they're forced to participate in this program at the same time. They don't really have any other choice because they really do need that $1 to $4 to be able to supplement um, the miserable diet from the commissary or um, just to be able to call their families. And the winner is always the prison corporation in terms of maximizing their profit. But when we're talking about ways that people benefit from this border crisis, private prisons, well, that's the obvious example. When in reality, this is a system that aligns big business with the criminalization of brown people through the guise of immigration status. And this infects the immigration system at all levels, even down to the local police and sheriffs that patrol our towns. Haven't police departments always collaborated with federal officials? What is unique about their collaboration with ICE? Well, I mean, it is pretty intensive. Like, for example, you know, the 287G agreement, um, there are, as I mentioned, six of them in place in Georgia. And so one of them is Cobb County. So let's say that an undocumented immigrant is driving down the street in Cobb. And in Georgia, undocumented immigrants can't get driver's licenses. So they're driving down the street. They're pulled over. It's not clear sometimes why they're being pulled over in the first place. And so once they're pulled over, they're getting uh, taken to the jail um, because they don't have a driver's license. And at that point, 287G kicks in. So a limited number of sheriff deputies there have received a very limited training. 
uh, in immigration, definitely not enough by any stretch of the imagination. And so they um, basically start the deportation proceedings against individuals that they suspect to be undocumented. And so these counties, for all intents and purposes, serve as deportation pipelines. And, you know, again, very problematic. And, um, you know, these counties, basically what they have resulted in is a sense of terror in immigrant communities. The 287G program was created in 1996. And through it, state and local police officers collaborate with the government to enforce federal immigration laws. So basically, it turns normal, run-of-the-mill local police officers into immigration officers, giving them the same authority, or at least part of the same authority, that ICE has. And now, it should be no surprise that people have uncovered really bad problems with the way 287G gets implemented. It, it kind of opens the door for police officers to profile, letting them stop people they think might be undocumented so that they can fulfill their part of this 287G program. Uh, even a report by the Department of Justice found that 287G encourages racial profiling and police raids of non-white communities. And it's very interesting, David, ICE doesn't even reimburse the sheriffs in the cities that adopt this program. In fact, state and local governments pay for the bulk of it, and it's expensive for taxpayers. One county in Virginia paid $6.4 million in one year just to participate in 287G, and it had to raise property taxes and reduce their budget to afford it. There's a sheriff named Gary McFadden of Mecklenburg County in North Carolina who campaigned on a platform of ending the 287G program in his county. And when he was elected in 2018, he did just that. In addition, he has been outspoken against any participation with ICE and has regularly rejected ICE detainers. Now, what a detainer is, is very important to this story. After the police arrest someone, if Immigration and Customs Enforcement somehow finds out and has a reason to suspect that the person might be deportable, ICE will issue a detainer on that person, which is basically an order or a request directed at local police to keep someone in custody for an additional 48 hours after the date they would normally be released so that an immigration officer has time to come get that person and take them into the Department of Homeland Security custody. And although it, it may be framed as an order, these detainers are really only a request that police have no obligation to respect because, as we'll talk about, immigration status is not a crime. It's a civil matter, and ICE does not even reimburse municipalities for the cost of holding these people an additional two days. So just like the 287G program, it's on the state or local city's bill to collaborate with ICE. Now, between October 2018 and October 2019, police departments in North Carolina rejected around 500 of the retainers or holds that were requested by ICE. And that's because of sheriffs like McFadden and other big North Carolina counties who all ended their cooperation with ICE. When I went down to the Stewart Detention Facility, I spoke with someone who has been organizing visitations for families and volunteers for several years. And I asked them about the different places people come from before they get locked up in this rural prison in the south of Georgia. And of course, he told me they come from all over the place, all, you know, so many different countries, but also they get picked up in a lot of different communities within the United States before they get sent down to Stewart. And he told me this interesting story. 
about the time that these counties in North Carolina started refusing to cooperate with ICE, he noticed that a bunch of people started showing up and being locked up at Stewart, who were from North Carolina. And it turns out that when all these communities stood up to ICE, well, (laughs) ICE didn't like it. So they responded by going into these communities and doing mass raids on people's homes. In February of 2019 alone, ICE rounded up 200 people in North Carolina and sent them to immigration prison. And it was very clear that this was retaliation. Again, the roadblock claims, um, stopping people because their headlights are broken, that's just something that ICE doesn't do. And if you take a look at the statistics, that will support the fact that we do targeted enforcement. I would just say uh, you know, we had a lot of individuals that are arrested this, this week, 200 uh, plus. Um, but on an, average, uh, on an average week across the, uh, my area of operational responsibility, there's about 50 at-large arrests that are made uh, on a weekly basis. Um, I think that the uptick that you've seen is, again, direct result of some of the dangerous policies uh, that uh, some of our uh, county sheriffs have put into place. Um, and, it, and it really forces my officers to go out on the street to conduct um, war enforcement operations out in the community, um, at courthouses, at residences, doing traffic stops. This is a direct correlation between uh, the, the sheriff's dangerous policies of not cooperating with ICE and, and the fact that we have to still continue to execute our important law enforcement mission. We, you know, we don't want to be out doing this at-large enforcement. Um, it's, it's much more dangerous for my staff, uh, for the general public, and those are being arrested. I'd rather have my officers take a custody of, of, of a criminal uh, in the safe confines of a county jail. But we have jurisdictions within the state that refuse to allow ICE access to those jails. Well, David, let's say there's a person out there who doesn't agree with immigration, just full stop. They don't like other people from other countries immigrating to their own community in their neighborhood. Does it really make sense to go from disliking immigrants to supporting the creation, the funding, and expansion of an entire force of people empowered to come into your neighborhood, go into people's houses, and then take them away from their families? Is, is that what we really want? Because once you create that, it's not going away. The people that you empower to carry out that type of work are not the type of people who will then give it up. This is a direct correlation between uh, the the sheriff's dangerous policies of not cooperating with ICE and and the fact that we have to still continue to execute our important law enforcement mission. ICE needs to be abolished. Detention centers need to be shut down as a whole. Um, You know, we don't want to make prettier jails. We want them to be shut down. You mentioned earlier that you believe no one should be detained. And I agree with you. But a common response I hear from people when you talk about things like this, whether it's uh, you know, ending incarceration or even you know, ending the, the police, they say, well, we understand there's so much bad that comes from it, but what's the alternative? I mean, the alternative is not detaining people. You know, Emil Carr's solution to detention is to stop detaining people. And when you say that comes across as kind of radical though, David, to a lot of people, I mean, it's always the same question, right? When you say 
hey, you know, we need to end police brutality. People will come back and say, well, what, you want to just get rid of police? What are we going to do when our house starts getting robbed? What do you do right now when your house gets robbed? Good point. (laughs) Maybe we'll come back to that. But what did you say earlier that we have built up the largest immigration detention infrastructure the world has ever seen with some 450,000 people detained in a year? This is new. It's not radical to say that we should end this because it's a very recent phenomenon. In the 1980s, on any given day, you know how many people you would find in immigrant detention across the entire country? 30. Just 30 people. Daniel, let's stop for just one second. We have all these numbers here and we're talking about things like detainees and detention centers and private prisons and uh, immigration raids and all of this stuff that is this judicial system that we've built up in the United States, a judicial system that exists in order to punish people for breaking the law, for being illegal in some way or another. And that is the same terminology that some of us have started using to apply to these migrants as they come to the United States, right? The word illegal alien is something that is tossed around a lot in the media and in casual conversation when people are discussing this stuff. I've heard it in presidential debates and the conversations of politicians around the world. But when you get right down to it, that might not be so correct. Before we go any further here, we need to pause and recognize that none of these trends could take place without what we're calling the crime to be undocumented. But here's the crazy thing. We're talking about these illegal aliens, blah, 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 whatever. But at the end of the day, citizen status has never been and is still not a crime. Sure, it's a civil matter, but it's always been that, and it's not something, historically, that you would go to jail for. We've taken a civil affair and turned it into a process that resembles the type of criminal proceedings we only reserve for the most heinous crimes. Nicholas Narea writes, quote, Historically, Most asylum seekers apprehended while trying to cross the southern border would have been placed into deportation proceedings, but released into the U.S. while awaiting a decision on their immigration cases. Under the Trump administration, that changed dramatically. You you mentioned criminalization, and this is something we, we hear a lot now, that the status of being an immigrant carries a certain criminality to it in our current system. Can you explain that? Or, I mean, is this something that's new or has it always been kind of criminalized to be an immigrant in this country? I think we go through different periods. Most of the people that we see have not been technically criminalized. It's it's this idea, this rhetoric that's saying that they're all criminals and the term illegal aliens is suggesting that they're illegal or have committed a crime. But most of the people held at Stewart Detention Center have no criminal record. And immigration detention is civil. It's not criminal. It's not holding somebody as punishment for a crime or rehabilitation for a crime or anything like that. It's just civil. And that's why people should be able to be released on bond or parole, because there really isn't a need to be detaining them as if they were criminals. So... The process that they're going through is a civil process. And, right. But it seems like the, what they have to go through represents more of a criminal process in a way. Do, do, you, do you feel that way or do you feel like the, 
process that they go through to have their case heard and hopefully receive bond or, or parole, do you feel like that's representative of other civil processes in this country? Yeah, it's a little bit of a mixed bag. It looks, it feels like a criminal process because the consequences are huge, right? If someone has a fear of going back to their country, it's basically a life or death decision that's coming down. And then it's treated very cavalierly and it's um, they don't have a right to counsel to be provided by the government like we give people in criminal proceedings. So it's kind of crazy that it feels like a criminal proceeding because of the stakes, but the protections that they have and, and the way that they're treated and, and how quickly it happens doesn't match. So it is easy to think about we, we can live without detention. We can live without criminalizing the community, immigrants in general. So this is not a radical idea. We have lived without this, the need of detention, and we can do it again. Um, and then I know it, it might sound, this is something that sounds very radical to people, but let's go back again to the idea of, you know, people who are detained in immigration are only detained because of their immigration status. And the, the administration has done as much as they can to penalize as a criminal act the act of crossing the border, which is, has been historically a civil offense. And you're not detained by, you, you know, if usually, like if you commit a civil offense, you're not detained by a civil offense. You, you go, you continue the process, you do whatever you need to do to uh, fix that. But you, you're not detained by a civil offense. Like one of the civil offense that usually, uh, uh, you know, you, you can be detained by, by the police and you don't have a driver's license, right? That for a U.S. citizen, non-question, like, you, you know, you, you like, the, the police doesn't stop you because of that, right? I mean, they stop you, but they give you a, a fine or they give you a court date and you're good to go. You're not need to be detained. But if you're an immigrant in Georgia, you know, there's a section of the Georgia law that mandates that you should be detained because you're an immigrant. And that's what many people actually ended up in detention, just because of a civil offense. Or, and then, you know, the civil offense of crossing the border, and, and that's not the main reason. Um, and criminalizing, you know, people who follow what the law, actually, the United States in the international law says about, about you know, asking for asylum. If you feel uh, you're being persecuted by law, you are required to cross borders and ask for protection. So that's something that the administration is doing to actually take away from people, you know, changing that and then make it a criminal, uh, especially with, you know, families were separated at the border and we're basically telling the people, like, if you do that, we're going to take away your kids and you're going to be in, you ended up in detention and we're actually going to persecute you if you do that. That's against, again, you know, it's again, international law is again the, against the constitutional. So that's why we believe we should abolish detention. That's why people should not be uh, placed in deportation proceedings. I mentioned that I visited the Stewart Detention Facility, and while there, we met with a man who was behind bars. And he told us his story about where he came from, the, the circumstance that he had to flee with his wife, uh, the many countries that he had to bounce around just to find a safe haven, and then getting to the United States and being locked up. And when we talked to him, 
he had been in prison for close to two years. And, and it was really terrible to see. Think about that, David. Think about escaping something horrible, traveling the world to find someone who will take you in, and then being locked up for two years. It was clear that he was in just terrible anguish. On the one hand, he fears for his life if he is sent home. But on the other hand, being locked up for so long in a depressingly strict and secure facility with no way to contact his family, no way to meet new people, it was like the life had gone out of him. All he could seem to talk about was the uncertainty. And, you know, he told us about his former life. And before he had to flee, he was somewhat of an entrepreneur in farming. He traveled throughout his region, meeting farmer after farmer, building up relationships, making those connections. And he said that was his favorite part, meeting new people. But in the prison, in Stewart detention, there's no such possibility. And he would try to make friends, but it turns out it just isn't the same when you're trapped within the same four walls day in and day out. And there were times he said, that he would push himself to play cards or play chess, but he just didn't have the energy to pick up his arms and move the pieces. He said that he's a shell of his former self, that he doesn't even feel human anymore. This is what criminalization is doing to people. It's what we are doing to these people. We're denying them their humanity. It's one thing to say that when you're in our country, you should follow our laws. But it is an entirely different matter to tell 10 million people that if they so much as to forget to turn their car blinker on and we catch them, then they're going to be taken from their families, transported to a medium security prison hundreds of miles away, locked in a cage for two years, and then shipped overseas to a country they have no home. So this is just an uh, example of the many issues that people see inside of the facility, the overall treatment inside of the facility um, by the guards, you know, you're being treated as a criminal. And the overall sense in this facility is that, you know, when it was built, it was built as a, a medium security facility. So just being in this place give you the sense that, oh, we're, we're housing criminals in this place. And the reality is that the people are detained just because of their immigration status. That's the only issue what there are in this facility. Some people, you know, will say that we should detain people even just that because that's a minor offense. And we'll say that, you know, people don't deserve to be detained just because of that. This is a broader issue that we've been dealing in the United States for many years. And not just about the immigration issues, the overall incarceration of, you know, people of color. So when you talk about immigration detention, it is not but another extension of this very broken uh, criminal justice system that keeps detaining people of color. This criminalization serves a function. This is the part that benefits those in power. When you criminalize immigration status, what you're really doing is providing a legal framework for policies of racial discrimination and exclusion. There was a 2009 study that showed that 87% of the regions where 287G programs get implemented are in Latino communities. And so the scare of the immigrant criminal is really just the scapegoat, the distraction that allows those in power to build up the ability to discriminate and control people based on their ethnicity, their race, the color of their skin, those that we have deemed illegal 
But in reality, are people just like you and me, escaping violence, looking for safe haven, but instead winding up in the back of an ICE vehicle and a prison cell? But that's also not the full story, David. It's not enough to just say that power benefits from being able to discriminate and exclude a set group of people. This also lays the groundwork for testing, for piloting, and then building up a system of mass surveillance. Now, we talked about 287G and and the collaboration between ICE and police. And one of the reasons that ICE collaborates with law enforcement is because the ratio of immigration officers to undocumented people in the U.S. is pretty low, with immigration officers numbering in the thousands or tens of thousands, but the number of undocumented people in the U.S. numbering in the 10 million number range. But what it lacks in numbers, ICE makes up in its use of surveillance data. Here's Mackenzie Funk writing from the New York Times in October 2019. Public records make clear that ICE, like other federal agencies, suck up terabytes of information from hundreds of disparate computer systems, from state and local governments, from private data brokers, and from social networks. It piggybacks on software and sharing agreements originally meant for criminal and counterterrorism investigators, fusing little bits of stray information together into dossiers. This work is regulated by only a set of outdated privacy laws and the limits of the technology. Tracking immigrants in this country is an increasingly trivial exercise because it's an increasingly trivial exercise to track any of us. As it turns out, the U.S. government budgets more money for border security and immigration control than it does for any other law enforcement agency. Even more than the combined budgets of the FBI, ATF, and DEA. And this big money for border security means big money for the companies who supply and sell the drones, the software, the facilities, and everything that makes the surveillance apparatus operational. This is big business. The surveillance industry in the United States is absolutely part of the larger military-industrial complex, and it is worth billions and billions of dollars a year, involving all sorts of companies from around the world, from far-off companies that you've never heard, like Elbit, to some companies that are household names, like Amazon. These are all parts of the vast system that makes up the panopticon that the United States has built, in theory, to defend its borders, but in reality to track not only these migrants that cross the United States borders successfully or not, but also each and every one of us who lives within this nation. And we've talked a lot about surveillance on this show through a number of episodes, both government surveillance as well as the surveillance of private companies. Increasingly, as we find our lives are recorded in every single aspect, as we do in our digital world. And this is important because the same mechanisms that are built to sell us ads on Facebook or Google lead to the algorithms that are used to track people around the world and eventually round them up and imprison them for these civil infractions, as we mentioned earlier. And I can't understate just how pervasive this surveillance is, not only for people that the government has identified as criminals or illegals or whatever terminology that they're using for that current day, but for every person who is in this country, whether you are a citizen or not, whether you're here legally or not, it doesn't matter. Our faces, our automobiles, our digital footprints, all of this is constantly being tracked and added to databases, both private and in the government's hands. Much of it is to sell us products. But a lot of these product databases end up being licensed 
for military and law enforcement reasons as well. The same technology that somebody develops to sell you ads can be turned around and used to imprison people. The world that we've allowed these companies and public institutions to build under the guise of security or convenience when it comes to things like Amazon Alexa or Ring doorbell technology, which I think at some point, Daniel, we really need to do an episode just on Amazon and their all pervasive surveillance network that they're currently developing. But these things that we have oftentimes paid for ourselves are used to commit violence on all sorts of people, increasingly not just those that the government declares as committing a crime, but ordinary citizens like you or me. Where this will ultimately end is a large question and something we're not going to explore here, but if things continue to develop like the way they have in this technology being applied to the migrant crisis, well, that does not bode well for those of us who currently have nothing to fear. And it certainly doesn't bode well for the people being directly surveilled today. So let's talk a little bit about this surveillance, Daniel. I mean, this could quite literally be its own enormous series. I mean, it is at this point, as we mentioned several times, we have a number of episodes on surveillance. You can find more on our website if you click the privacy tag. So there's just a couple of companies I really want to highlight here as uh, the head of evil. Um, and there are plenty of smaller companies that are without a doubt doing worse things. But uh, these get a lot of investment from a lot of major companies. They're in the attention of uh, the media and uh, governmental people all the time. So they're worth noting. Uh, I've already mentioned a few of them. Amazon, of course, is a huge ICE collaborator. Uh, they make a lot of facial recognition technology, some of it which you can buy commercially in products like the Ring Doorbell, which if you see these around or if you have paranoid neighbors who have installed them or family members, tell them not to help Amazon build a all-knowing surveillance network. There's no reason to do that. We've survived somehow for a long time without facially tracking everyone who comes up to our door and uh, you're not going to be in any danger because you don't know all of that. So... Say no to Amazon, say no to their Ring products. But this Amazon product, it's called Recognition. It's a one-stop shop facial recognition system that Amazon is currently contracting to ICE as well as a large number of law enforcement agencies around the country from everything from large national three-letter agencies to local police departments. And the reason why is because it's a very plug-and-play system. You can just load it up put someone on your account and then start running faces through it and you'll get this facial match. It's obvious to see why this could be a huge privacy violation for all of us that get caught in this net, whether or not we've done anything wrong. Uh, the amount of false positives is huge. We've talked about that on this show in episode 51, Eyes on Me, where we really dig into this idea of facial recognition and the many dangers it has and the very few upsides in security or law enforcement or anything else. If you're at all interested about ethics or responsibility, which of course companies like Amazon are not. You know, cameras and this technology is a huge portion of this mass surveillance network that we've constructed around the country. Daniel and I, when we drove to the border to do some research for this episode, which involved many times being right on the border wall in these vast, empty swaths of gorgeous land down there, one of the things we encountered continuously were these massive military trucks that had large cameras on the top of them. So we would drive by these trucks and, and there'd be soldiers around them constructing these tower cams, basically. And so it, it looks like a pickup truck, except it has a large boom in the back and the boom would go up. And on top, there's three or four cameras. One of them is a super telephoto 
lens cameras, some of them are infrared, some are other forms of night vision. And this gives the military, uh, Border Patrol, all these organizations that are working to try and quote unquote secure the border, the ability to very easily see what's happening in large swaths of land. And that's the most visible portion of this wall of cameras that we've built. But with this increasing technology of simple facial tracking, you can leverage large amounts of networked cameras that exist in cities all around the country in order to target people individually. So, for example, here in New York City, we have these kiosks that are on the streets everywhere. And on each side of the kiosk, they have a camera. And this camera records everybody who comes up and down the sidewalk. It doesn't matter where you're walking, you're always on one of these cameras, more or less. And while this organization claims they do not do facial recognition, they also don't say anything about not partnering with NYPD or giving them access to this data. And NYPD, like many law enforcement agencies around the country, does have a secret facial recognition program. So it is not a stretch of the imagination to say that a system like this could be utilized by police to track literally everybody who walks around a city like Manhattan, which is millions of people. And if they know a known migrant that they're trying to collect, they can run their face through this vast amount of video data they have to learn their routes, to learn their workplace, and identify very quickly where they are so they can be scooped up. And these are the types of raids that we're increasingly seeing happening, where because of a variety of moves from activists, from local sheriff departments that don't want to cooperate, like we mentioned before, we're seeing less and less arrests at home. And part of this is because of warrants and there's a lot of other things. And more frequently, arrests happening in places of work or on the way to those facilities. And this is because increasingly law enforcement knows exactly where everybody is. And when that's the case, it's much easier to scoop them up when they're unaware or able to be protected by the vast amount of constitutional laws that we've built up in this nation over decades. And we're entering this new era where if they know where you are, they can attack you when you are most vulnerable. And this is not just a facial recognition thing, but in so many aspects of our digital life. Your cell phone, as we've talked about once again on this show, provides very accurate location tracking. And this tracking is something that is not even just protected and known by your call provider, whether it's Verizon, AT&T, whatever, but actually a product that they sell about you to third parties. You can actually go from for a couple hundred dollars buy this data and track people that you know down to within tenths of a mile and even more if you have access like law enforcement does to fine grain data. So if you have a phone, they can pinpoint your actions, pinpoint your location very accurately, very quickly. And so you're starting to see how all these little disparate pieces of information that by themselves, say a phone number, a name, a face, would be really hard to sort out. But in this huge, vast network, that allows us to know where everyone is at any time, it becomes a massively powerful tool for identifying people, identifying where they might be hanging out with who they might be hanging out. Say there's several people convening at a location. Now you know that there might be a great time to swoop in and capture a bunch of people that you've decided are going to be deported. This data is out there. And the other seismic shift here is what pulls it all together. So you have these companies, AT&T, Verizon, uh, Amazon providing all this raw data on these people. But how do you compile all this? How do you get the faces to the names, to the phone numbers? And this is where we've seen the other titanic shift in how the government performs its digital surveillance. We're motivated by September 11th and the failure of the intelligence community 
to act on the many pieces of data they had that indicated an attack was coming. In large part, because these organizations weren't communicating with each other, weren't sharing data, weren't sharing information, the government has really doubled down to try and make this information sharing as simple as possible. And so now there exist large databases that give access to a number of different three-letter organizations, meaning that your data can be instantly shared throughout the government. It can be tracked easier than ever using all sorts of different tools, legal and definitely illegal. This is everything from drone flights that Border Patrol ICE fly along the border with actual like military level drones collecting data. This is everything to intelligence balloons that the government has demoed in certain areas to collect vast amounts of video over cities. This is everything from local law enforcement like NYPD collecting data on phones or faces. All of this can be compiled and is by companies like Palantir, who's another one on their name and shame list. Palantir, the child of Peter Thiel, one of PayPal's co-founders, along with other evil billionaire Elon Musk, is a big data company built to simplify surveillance for not only the United States, but all sorts of other despotic countries around the world. They exist as a way of streamlining the ability for the government to track you, to find you, and to ultimately act on that information when they decide they don't want you here anymore. Because remember, the threat here, and this is a show about migrants, yes, but the threat here is that any time that you break a law, a civil infraction, a criminal infraction, whatever it is, and we break many of these laws, all of us, every single day, when the winds shift and you're doing something that the government does not like, in this case right now that's focused on migrants, the government has decided they do not like them, this apparatus makes it extremely easy to capture and get rid of these people. And right now it's focused on people who aren't U.S. citizens and the government feels that they should not be in the United States because of that. But this apparatus can be turned at any time to focus on American citizens if your, say, political views, which are tracked, don't line up correctly. If, say, you're active about protesting for a certain cause you believe in, like climate change, that might interfere with the powers that be and their ultimate profit motivations, whatever it is, this system is turned on a very vulnerable population at the moment, but at any time, it could be shifted to somebody else. That's your neighbors, it's your family members, your coworkers, and ultimately, probably at some point, you. There's another company I want to focus on in just a second here, Daniel. Um, but I just want to point out first that name Palantir, uh, Peter Thiel's company. Right. Are you, are you familiar with that? I'm going to pull out a little bit of dorkiness for a second. I think we talked about them in depth in one of our privacy and surveillance episodes. Well, I'm not exactly talking about Palantir Technologies, the Peter Thiel surveillance company. I'm talking about the original Palantir uh, from Lord of the Rings. Uh, I'm not that familiar. I mean, I'm not as familiar with that, David. I, I think, yeah, Lord of the Rings. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I know you've seen Lord of the Rings, but for those of you who haven't or who don't remember, the Palantir is a crystal ball that is used for both communication and here's what's the important part, a way to see events happening all over the world, both in the past, in the present, and also in the future. This is something in the Lord of the Rings movies, if you've seen those, that Sauron and Sauron have. It's how they talk to each other. It's a corrupting force. Um, it's ultimately the bad guy thing 
it was originally created for good, but it was very quickly turned to do evil, which of course is very appropriate for a spy company. And I can see why they picked that name. And while it kind of rubs me the wrong way that this sort of shitty man decided to use this nice nerdy uh, tool as the name of his evil company, uh, whatever, at least it's an appropriate use of that. But recently I was reading the news and an announcement caught my attention. A company called Anduril, which is another name from Lord of the Rings, and the article announced that they had successfully finished raising a new round of uh, VC investing money with over $41 million raised between their two rounds. Uh, Notably, it was one of the main funders of this round was a company called A16Z, Andreessen Horowitz, uh, who is a major VC funder. Uh, If you are online, the Hacker News community, that is part of theirs. Uh, They were early investors in a lot of Silicon Valley unicorns, quote unquote. So I looked up this company. I was like, oh, another Lord of the Rings named company. I wonder what, what it is they do here. And this is another military surveillance company. But this one is started by another huge shithead man-child baby named Palmer Lucky, who got famous off of his creation of the Oculus virtual reality system, which he sold to Facebook for $2.3 billion, taking several hundred million for himself. And he decided that the best way to use this money, after being booted from Oculus for uh, funding a meme uh, think tank to promote Trump during the election, was by starting a new company designed to uh, secure this nation's borders, in his words, specifically by designing AI drones and other virtual wall technologies that would allow government agencies like Border Patrol, like ICE, to very easily monitor vast amounts of this country, to swoop people up when necessary, and deport them back on the other side of the wall to lock them up when it behooves them to fill up these facilities in order to generate profit that way. Whatever it is, he is going to be there making millions and millions of dollars a year on this. And not just him, but these investors like Andreessen Horowitz are also going to benefit from this system. And these are companies that pride themselves on how ethical they are. A16Z, for example, is specifically trying to invest in climate change technologies, other technologies to try and make the world a better place, according to a lot of their corporate public speak. But when it gets down to the nitty-gritty dollars and dimes, they are more than happy to help fund the vast military-industrial complex that causes so much of the exploitation and death and suffering around the world. And it should be no surprise that that's the case. Andreal is interesting, too, because it's an American homegrown system for the virtual wall, which you might have heard discussed by Senate and House Democrats as an alternative to the Trump border wall, as something that would be humane and affordable. When in reality, it's just another form of this awful panopticon that destroys not only the lives of the migrants trying to cross into this country or cross back home out of this country, because that does happen as well, but also those caught up in the vast surveillance networks that exist around the borders of this country up to 100 miles inland. Currently, this gap is filled by an Israeli company called Elbit Systems. I was furiously taking notes while you... uh just gave us all that information on these very specific companies, David. But to zoom out a little bit on how this is affecting all of us, you mentioned 100 miles inland. And I think this is something worth emphasizing, that 
in discussions of immigration and border security, all of it seems to be directed at the U.S.-Mexico border. And so those of us in other parts of the country might feel like it's not a really relevant discussion to our day-to-day lives. But it's important to remember that under current U.S. law, Customs and Border Protection has jurisdiction 100 miles inland of any point along the U.S. border, meaning that these constant surveillance technologies that you're describing, David, and the companies that are running them, they have free reign in an area that overlaps with 66% of the entire U.S. population. And to come back to one other point you mentioned earlier, David, about how these technologies can be used on all of us, whether we're going to work or whether we're protesting or anything like that, in 2017, Customs and Border Protection actually took one of its surveillance towers that had been built and deployed specifically for monitoring the border, and they deployed that for eight months in the United States to surveil U.S. citizens that the agency perceived as likely to demonstrate leading up to some political event. And so it's not theoretical that these surveillance technologies would be turned on U.S. citizens. It is regularly occurring today. And Elbit Systems is is an interesting corporation that's tied up in all of this, David. uh, Currently, Customs and Border Protection is constructing 10 160-foot-tall surveillance towers across the Tahana Adam Reservation. And each of these towers are capable of surveilling every single person and vehicle within a 7.5-mile radius. And Elba Systems is building these towers and it's selling these towers. And I think it's important to point out that Elba Systems is not a United States company. It's not a, uh, a branch of the U.S. military, but it's an Israeli company that Customs and Border Protection is going to pay $26 million for these 10 towers alone. And uh, Elbit Systems has a long history in the region. It has already built 55 similar towers in southern Arizona through a 2014 $140 million contract. And CBP has deployed over 360 smaller surveillance towers across the border. And in February of 2019, Congress increased the budget for these types of technologies by $100 million. And the Tahana Adam Nation is, is the second largest Native American landholding entity in the country. Their land spans the Sonoran Desert, and currently the U.S.-Mexico border cuts their reservation in half over 75 miles. And it's disrupting the everyday life of the people living in their land. Tribal members are reporting that drones follow them as they go to work and they come home. The towers are constantly in sight. And some of the older generation are saddened to see the younger generations leaving and not coming back home specifically to get away from this constant surveillance. This is a terrible situation for the Tahana Adam people. But it's true, David, that we all lose when we give people in power the right to surveil and oppress, no matter who their target may be in the moment. You know, for one, we talk about these companies, Elbit Systems, and the ones you talked about. Businesses exist to grow and to expand. That's the profit motive. It's what their shareholders expect them to do. And we're not going to hand $145 million plus another $26 million plus another $100 million increase in the budget to some foreign company 
to spy on us and then expect them to go away once we decide the job is done. They are going to fight tooth and nail for more and more until the whole world is remade in their image. In fact, a senior director at Elbit Systems, Bobby Brown, says, quote, over time, we will expand not only to the northern border, but to the ports and harbors across the country. There is a lot to be done, end quote. Is that really what we want? Companies to blanket every inch of our land with continuous surveillance? And I think in addition to just the money that's being made here, David, I think uh, an additional motivation behind all this activity is that companies are collaborating with our political leaders to turn our border zones into their private laboratories for developing next generation surveillance technologies. You know, we already know from that Border Patrol 1994 paper, National Strategy, that they do not actually view migrants and immigrants and refugees as a national security threat. In their own words, these are mostly poor women and children fleeing out of desperation. So why are we spending all of this money in the name of security? Is it possible that the money being spent is not so much a cost as it is an investment in research and development for more advanced technologies that can then be sold and deployed everywhere? You know, we talk about that in episode 29, War Machine, when we discuss how another Israeli company, Aeronautics Defense Systems, visited Azerbaijan in 2017 and allegedly demonstrated their product, which was a suicide bomb drone, by launching one of their drone strikes against Armenia. And it wasn't the first time that Israeli companies were observed testing their products on protesters at the border. Well, I want to interrupt you right there, Daniel, because I think you're underselling what happened with that suicide drone tested by the Israeli Defense Corporation. It was company managers pushing aside an engineer that said, no, we're not going to do this, just to hit the buttons themselves in order to show an investor that their technology worked and was something that they should buy for their own military. The fact that they were willing and hoping to sacrifice lives in order to sell a product is reprehensible. That's, that's the type of people that we're dealing with here in this situation. And, and these are people who have no qualms with human lives of a means getting a better bottom line. I mean, in episode 79, right, we, we talked about war profiteers and how some of them intentionally stoke conflict, going out and creating wars, literally, just so they can sell weapons, not to one side, but to both sides, in order to make the war go on longer and be more violent and bigger so that they can profit more off of it. This is the type of world that exists with this military contracting. And yes, you know, this is homeland defense or whatever, uh, border wall defense, whatever. It's military contracting. If you're using military drones, military technology, military, well, quite literally the military, because we saw the people out there, Daniel, in army uniforms, that said, you know, U.S. Army on it, then this is a military operation. And that means the military-industrial complex, which many people in America and obviously most of the rest of the world cannot stand, are profiting off of this suffering that we're creating. Well, and if you look at Elbit Systems' marketing copy, they explicitly promote the fact that their technology is quote-unquote field-proven. They literally perceive opportunities to surveil people as a way to improve their ability to sell their product. We are being sold the lie that we should fear others 
all so that we will hand over our lives to the largest defense contractors in the world for the purpose of building the most draconian surveillance technologies imaginable. So remember this next time you hear one side of our government telling the other that we should not build a wall, but we should invest in border security technologies. It's a game of smoke and mirrors. Well, let me step aside from the facts for just one second here, Daniel, and enter the realm of conspiracy. If you'll just humor me for, for one moment. And this point you bring up here about Elbit Systems and how they brag that their products are quote-unquote field-tested on Palestinians because of the conflict that is constantly going there as Israel has decided to imprison a large amount of people who have lived on these lands. For That aside, whatever. Um, field-testing is a huge business in military technology and being able to sell that military technology to nations that aren't necessarily in conflicts right now, but are afraid that they might be, thus the reason they're making the purchase. So a lot of the conflicts that we see happening around the world at any one time are, in large parts, having all these disparate actors involved because they aren't necessarily involved uh, in any sort of meaningful way in terms of, oh, this is our land, or oh, these are our resources, our people, but rather, this is a great way for us to go and get combat experience for our soldiers, but more importantly, to test out new technologies on the battlefield. And this has really been the case, especially in large conflicts like what has happened in the Syrian civil war over the past eight plus years, where Russia, Iran, Israel, the United States, Turkey have all come in and used this battlefield where millions of people have died as a way to test and prove their new technologies. And I posit, this is the conspiracy portion of it, that Part of the crackdown that we're seeing on the border right now, well, there's a lot of different elements of it. One is obviously a profit-seeking crackdown, right, where we're funding all sorts of different uh, organizations, private prison companies, uh, government graft, uh, military industrial companies, whatever. You know, they're all making money from this. But more importantly, this field testing that is occurring, specifically with the fact that we are strengthening borders, is a preview for the future in a world that is increasingly unstable because of the effects of climate change on our weather, on the reliability of food crops, on transportation, all sorts of things that can be very easily thrown out of sync, causing chaos and millions and tens of millions and hundreds of millions of people fleeing their nations as refugees, as the UN has said, is absolutely going to happen. Not tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people. In this world, a strong border, big walls, virtual fences, automated systems detecting intrusion, will these become exceptionally valuable to a nation that decides it doesn't want to take in refugees? From a nation that says our sovereignty and the lives of people who happen to be born within our borders is more important than the hundreds of millions of people currently fleeing the damages that people who, let's be honest, probably lived pretty good lives in their nation and caused these problems are. So in my eye, a lot of what is happening on the border right now is field testing for the coming climate apocalypse. And if you've read any reports from the Department of Defense and certainly upcoming literature from a lot of these military industrial contractors, you can see they know it's coming. They're not going to be caught off guard by the fact that these vast hordes of people who just want help will be trying to come into nations all around the world. And instead of saying, we should do something to prevent this from happening, they said, 
oh, we can make a lot of money by having technology that we know works and stopping people from getting the help they're desperately trying to find. And that's probably why these venture capitalists are more than happy to throw tens of millions of dollars at companies who say they're there to do national security and defense, but are really designed to profit off of the misery of others caused so often by those in these privileged places exploiting people elsewhere. As conspiratorial as that may be, David, I I think it could even go beyond that, which is, you know, what's something that always seems to be a thorn in the side of governments? Laws. Um, (laughs) Laws, okay. Um, Journalists. Journalists. Maybe broadly, can we think about uh, what all these things are? Maybe we could... Elections. Checks on power, maybe. We can categorize all these things as checks on power. And, okay. And what is the most powerful check of power on a government, if not the very people themselves, the people who elect their leaders, who disagree with the way they're carrying out their duty? The people are always a thorn in the side of government that wants to acquire more power for itself. And I think in a lot of ways, the climate crisis that's driving a lot of the immigration around the world, and in addition to the wars and the violence and the extraction and the profiteering that's going on, also presents an opportunity for these technologies like we talked about to be developed so that it can then be used to repress citizens and other people who might otherwise expose the injustices and and the wrongdoings of that government. And I want to bring up a specific case. Manuel Duran Ortega, He's a journalist who escaped El Salvador in 2006 amidst death threats for the fact that he was reporting on corruption in El Salvador's government, specifically their police uh, and its judicial system. So he fled and he came to the United States where he picked up his trade and became a well-known and respected journalist covering the Memphis police and their collaboration with ICE in Tennessee. And he was an active critic of that collaboration. And so what the authorities did is they retaliated against him. On April 3rd of 2018, Duran was covering a peaceful protest in Memphis alongside several other journalists when police suddenly swarmed him and arrested him for uh, a trumped-up charge. It was uh, blocking the street. And the district attorney knew that the charge wouldn't stand, so it was dropped two days later. But by then it was too late. Remember those Uh, ICE detainers we talked about earlier. Well, ICE placed one of those on Duran and they came and picked him up. So right when the charges were dropped, he was transferred into ICE custody. And it was so obvious that this was a retaliation that the the public was outraged. There were over 110,000 signatures that were collected on a petition for his release. But despite all that, ICE kept him in prison in immigration detention for 465 days in Alabama, while repeatedly trying to get him deported. And I think there's a lot of irony here. For one, the U.S. State Department reports uh, on the dangers of being a journalist in El Salvador. Quote, the government retaliates against members of the press for criticizing its policies, end quote. So our own government acknowledges that if you are a journalist trying to uncover corruption in El Salvador, your life could be in danger. But here we are trying to deport this journalist back to that country because 
he was uncovering corruption in our government. So I read an article about Manuel Duran. So a journalist, similar to Sally, he's, he's been in the United States for a long time. He's been working as a journalist for 10 years, I think, in Nashville, Tennessee. And then he wrote an article criticizing immigration and customs enforcement and all of a sudden got arrested and found himself detained for over a year. And even though you say that immigration status is technically a civil matter, is it possible that the rhetoric of criminality around this enables the government to target people for political or other convenient reasons, like Manuel, a journalist who says something they don't want to see. And so can they use the current policies as a, as a retaliatory tool? Yes, that's very concerning. And I think it should not happen, but I think it does happen. And um, I'm really proud of my colleagues who fought so hard and so long. I think it took, it was since April of last year and, and Manuel Duran was just released. So he was held for over a year, but through very, very hard work and dedication, he was able to get out on the bond. Do you see other cases like that? Most of the people that we're seeing are have not been activists or done anything to draw attention to themselves. It's mostly like I keep coming back to just kind of people living their lives either well right now we're seeing a lot of asylum seekers so a lot of people that were just fleeing and arriving at the border and asking to be granted asylum in the United States and then the other people that we see that have been picked up in the interior are usually just people who are who are living their lives with their children and um, just trying to make it in the United States. When we hand over this type of power to the state to retaliate against people that criticize our government's actions, we we have to ask ourselves, are they going to stop at just immigrants? Are they going to stop at just populations that are marginalized or that get swept under the rug of our racism and our white supremacy? I don't think so, because in March 2019, it was revealed that the U.S. government has been compiling a database of American journalists and social media personalities who were reporting on the migrant caravan. And uh, many of them, as a result of the surveillance, had their passports flagged. They uncovered trouble whenever they tried to travel. And in one instance, an American was detained by Mexico for 13 hours before being deported back to the United States. And this really all comes down to whether or not we as a public think it's a good idea to empower the secret police in this country. These Surveillance and control technologies that we're building up, these are tangible tools of power that are not bound to the constraints of race and immigration status. Once they are developed and deployed, they can be turned on anyone. A tool used today to target Hispanics and other people of color are the same tools our government will use tomorrow to imprison white Americans who disagree with their political leader. And it's easy for us, Daniel, to put a lot of this blame on Donald Trump, the current figurehead wielding this power right now to ruin the lives of migrants around the world. But this doesn't start and end with Donald Trump. This panopticon was built up very much under Barack Obama, who handed the keys over to Donald Trump. It will continue to be passed on to whoever comes into office next, and none of them are really interested in dismantling these systems. It is currently built from people of all sorts of political leanings in Silicon Valley, in Bethesda, Maryland, and everywhere in between. This is a system that is built regardless of political leanings, 
in America at least, where that left and right is so little of difference between liberal and conservative, but rather a group of people who are devoted to serving authority and power because they think they will always be the ones in control wielding this power over those less fortunate. But the tides do turn, and as you pointed out so rightly, Daniel Power, while it may lie in the gun for the military-industrial complex, ultimately rests in the hands of the people who are willing to do this work or who are willing to say, we will no longer cooperate. And that day might be coming soon. Also, I just want to point out, I feel like we've been overemphasizing the fact that we all uh, are harmed by these types of policies, but it doesn't have to be that practical. I mean, I would argue that um, everybody deserves human dignity, and um, you know that is something that we should all care about. And let's remember that you know what happened um, during World War II, you know, and and the famous saying that you know first they came for the communists, but I wasn't a communist, um, so I didn't say anything. Then they came for the Jews, and I wasn't a Jew, so you know I didn't speak up. Um, and then. Then they came for me and there was nobody left speaking up for me. And so, you know, it is really imperative for all of us to speak up when the government is cracking down on any of us. I mean, for me, still to this day, the most um, hopeful moment since the elections um, was when I went to the airport right after the Muslim ban had come down, expecting to see maybe a couple hundred people of, you know, mainly activists. And I saw thousands upon thousands of people. I mean, it was amazing. My neighbors came. And just a show of support um, was truly heartwarming. And, you know, it was then that I realized that, you know, I'm not alone. Um, my community is not alone, that people, there are people in this country that, you know, even if these policies aren't impacting them directly, they're looking at history and they understand that we all need to stand up when any one of us is being attacked. But David, the way border security benefits those in power and, and the companies that profit off of it, this doesn't end at our domestic borders. It's not just within our own country that this process is benefiting a twisted economic system. In episode 26, Barriers to Growth, we introed with a story, a story of land grabbing and mega energy projects in Panama. Specifically in June of 2011, the Panamanian government, the U.S. ambassador to Panama, and American company AES celebrated the construction of the Chan 75 hydroelectric dam. And uh, this was uh, promoted as a huge economic success for international corporations. But missing from the story were 3,400 acres of flooded rainforest that drove over 1,000 indigenous Nabe people from their homes. And the World Bank, who played a critical role in this development, never consulted with the people that would be most impacted by the project. Not a single indigenous person received title to their land and 99% of those that were driven from their home and their land uh, reported that their lives had become much worse as a result of this successful project, uh, which should be no surprise, the environment upon which their lives depended on was destroyed, and they were driven off their land. In an episode, Daniel, that centers around borders, 
It's important to think about what a border defines, or more appropriately, I suppose, in this case, what it keeps out on one side and what it holds in in the other. And borders can be all sorts of things, right? In, in a coloring book, you're supposed to draw inside the lines, and that's what defines the picture. Uh, but in nations, borders are about controlling people and populations. But increasingly, as we find the world's economy is globalized, where all parts of the world are fair game for financial manipulations, then borders aren't so much about holding everything a country might have within that line, but rather limiting the flow in and out. And increasingly, that flow is unlimited when it comes to certain things, most notably financial capital, and also the flow of resources that can be taken from point A and deposited in point B if they create a tidy profit for someone along the way. And the American border is no different. In fact, the money flows freely throughout this border around the world, especially across North and Central America, especially because of things like NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, like we talked about earlier. And this is a point that we've hit on before. Like many of these concepts that we've addressed throughout this episode on our first discussion of walls, that's episode 31, No Entry. And one of the important key concepts to take away from that episode and from this series we're doing right now is that borders are excellent at controlling the flow of capital, and that means they're excellent at controlling labor. And if you can keep the supply and demand of labor imbalanced across a border, well, then you're setting yourself up for a lot of money. And this is what created a lot of programs that we've already talked about, things like the Bracero program, and a lot of the tension that we still to this day currently see across the border between Mexico, Guatemala, Honduras, other countries, and the United States. David, you're talking about a lot of things, uh, point A to point B, uh, walls, labor, you know, all these abstract concepts. The border as a concept is a useful tool for driving people off their land to make way for mega projects and development. I mean, think about this. If, if you're an international mining company and you want to go into Guatemala and, you know, dig up all the natural resources and ship it back to Canada or wherever, there's no easy way around the fact that people are living on top of that land. And you can't expect to just come in there with your shovels without, you know, people standing up to you and saying, we don't want you to do that. But what if you could draw those people into some kind of, uh, I don't know, some kind of pipeline that sends them north, uh, sends them to a land far away so that you can move your trucks in, you can move those shovels in, and you can start mining that precious natural resource. I love precious natural resources. So let's talk about resource extraction for a second here, Daniel. And this is nothing new. Uh, Latin America has been uh, exploited for its vast mineral wealth for hundreds of years at this point, from before even when colonizers like the Spanish came to the area, uh, local populations, indigenous people, they were already extracting this vast amount of wealth, which is what gave the Spanish conquistadors those dollar signs in their eyes when they arrived and uh, then proceeded to, you know, kill everyone and conquer and cause all sorts of death and destruction. But uh, th there's an excellent book that I highly recommend reading if you want to read more about this topic. It's very uh, eye-opening about the entire history of Latin America. It's called Open Veins of Latin America by Eduardo Galeano. I can't recommend it enough. Go check it out. But this kind of extraction exploitation is still happening today. And a lot of this has drastic effects on the border between the United States and Mexico, 
and the flow of migrants from a number of countries across that border. Resource extraction is a major issue in Guatemala. In the western highland provinces of San Marcos and Huehuetenango in particular, along the border with the Mexican state of Chiapas, there is a great deal of active mining, primarily gold, silver, and copper, as well as many more locations where transnational corporations are attempting to push licensees for new mining projects through the popular assemblies. Guatemala has an extensive history of resistance to resource exploitation, especially in these regions. Both state and private police, as well as military and paramilitary forces, have jailed and murdered many opponents of mining and other mega-projects there. Not coincidentally, many of the Guatemalans I have met crossing the border turn out to be coming from these parts of the country, San Marcos and Huehuetenango. I've seen evidence firsthand to suggest that mining companies, the drug cartels, and the Guatemalan state have been colluding to cleanse parts of these areas of inhabitants in order to clear the way for mega-projects, drug smuggling, and human trafficking. And development of this sort, um, not just these mega-mining projects, but hydroelectric dams and other things, all of this has been dubbed the fourth invasion by anthropologist Giovanni Batz. The first, second, and third invasions being Spanish invasion and colonization, forced servitude on fincas or farms to produce commodities like coffee, and civil war and genocide, respectively. And in many ways, the third invasion of genocide and civil war helped pass the baton for the fourth. Well, allow me to play devil's advocate for one moment here, Daniel. I mean, yes, there were tragedies that happened here in the past, but surely job creation projects like mines, uh, forest clear-cutting, like toxic lithium dumps, that's good for an economy, and what's good for an economy is good for people, right? So I'm sure uh, wise groups like the IMF and the World Bank, who I'm positive have helped develop these programs, as along with uh, international experts from nations like the United States, would make sure that everyone is benefiting and that we are seeing improvements from this uh, job creation system that's occurring all across Latin America. No? You know, it's interesting because... Maybe this is the problem in our world, or or one of the problems is that we reduce everything to economic metrics and and things that can be measured in only ways that an economist would understand. Because, I mean, technically, you are right. Those Nabe people that got pushed off their land in Panama by the Chan 75 hydroelectric dam, well, yeah, I guess they have a job now. They're probably living in poverty in a city. Uh, maybe driving a, a bicycle for a tourist, making $2 a day, right? That's a job that they didn't have before because it didn't exist uh, where they lived, you know, growing all the vegetables they did to uh, support their communities, living in harmony with nature, right? There's not really a job that they worked before they were driven off their land. So in a way, to the global economy, that's better. Um, of course, you, you have to ignore the fact that Biodiversity loss and environmental degradation all have economic costs, just kind of intangibles, because our air is less clean. Uh, We have fewer ecosystem services that are uh, supplying our civilization, right? So, I mean, you do have to do crooked math to arrive at the conclusion that destroying the environment and driving people off their homes is good for the economy. But, But even in economic terms, a lot of these mega projects aren't good for people because uh, they get murdered to make way for them, right? Uh, so, speaking of Guatemala, in 1982, 
Uh, more than 450 people were murdered by state forces to make way for the completion of a hydroelectric dam after they refused to leave their village. And this dam was spearheaded by the World Bank, the IMF, and the Inter American Development Bank. Our favorite people. And the dam itself led to over 3,000 Mayan families losing their homes between 1977 and 1983. And、uh, in 2014, some 30 years later, the government did agree. To $155 million in reparations to the families that lost their homes and land.、Uh, but then、uh, the money never appeared. And in April of 2019, the Guatemalan presidential palace was shut down by protests, demanding that the government follow through with its promise. Claire Lincoln writes I had the opportunity to serve transnational movements for liberation as a human rights accompanier with the network in solidarity with the people of Guatemala. As a DC native, I couldn't help but relate my experiences there to the struggles I've been a part of here. Displacement is pervasive in this global moment, from communities of color in DC to poor people fleeing their countries and facing violence at the border. The patterns are similar in rural Guatemala and urban US. Poor people who have their roots and communities in a geographical space are run off by the military, by police brutality, or by rising rents, and the economic elites act. Like the land was theirs all along. In Latin America, this displacement is sometimes so forceful and pervasive that it pushes people out of their countries and leaves them with no other option but to migrate north. To combat this displacement, movements must connect the local to the transnational and learn from, share with, and support anti capitalist movements internationally. That's a lot to think about there, Daniel, but it seems this theme of dams being used as mega construction projects to drive people from their traditional land is not a one off thing. In fact, it happens all the time. And there's another dam in Guatemala, the Palo Viejo Dam, which was built in 2012. It's their fifth hydroelectric plant. And during its construction, it too faced protests from local people who were subsequently suppressed, of course, by the police. And the land on which it was built. Well, this has an Italian history dating back to 1902, when a man named Pedro Burl began accumulating land in the region. His family was able to increase their land holdings to over 14,000 hectares during the Guatemalan Civil War. And what do you think this land has been used for since then, Daniel? A beautiful, idyllic、uh, tourist getaways for the super rich. You know, come enjoy、uh, the Guatemalan countryside,、um, play a round of golf on the. Palo Viejo 18. Ooh, sounds lovely. Sign me up. But no, not quite.、Uh, this land, much of which was probably grabbed under questionable circumstances during a literal civil war, is now being utilized to grow coffee for Starbucks.、Uh, up until, I guess it was turned into a dam anyway. Here's what the CEO of NL Green Powers, Francesco Strace, had to say. Palo Viejo is a clear demonstration of our ability to build power plants in Latin America, a region with major growth potential in which we already have a strong presence. The entry into the service of the new plant has further increased our quote unquote zero emissions capacity in Guatemala. We have had a well established presence for a long time, showing our commitment to contributing to sustainable growth in the country. Ah, yes, a, an Italian company. Utilizing the land of an Italian who acquired land from indigenous people、uh, over a hundred years ago,、uh, promoting the fact that they have a st- strong presence in the region. And David, you know, listening to the CEO talk about、uh, zero emissions and 
this mega project in Guatemala. We talk in episode 58, Renewable Problems, about the flaws of viewing renewable energy as a panacea for fixing climate change. And this is a great example of why. Building a project that destroys the environment and drives thousands off their land, all for the economic benefit of exporting energy, which, by the way, will probably be used to encourage the expansion of industry, factories, mining operations, bottling plants, that type of thing, all these other industries that need a lot of power. Well, calling that renewable energy is, is a little bit problematic, to say the least. But maybe that's a topic for another time. And David, maybe it feels like we're getting a little off track here. Right? It should be clear at this point that international companies and repressive governments uh, take advantage of vulnerable indigenous populations by encouraging them off their land uh, for the purpose of profitable industrial projects. But what does this have to do with border securitization on the U.S.-Mexico border? Hang on one second, Daniel. One, uh, let me just get this out. <clears throat> okay, yeah. Uh-huh. Add crinkling aluminum noises here. Uh, yeah, uh, that's feeling good. David, hold up. You're not getting out your uh, tinfoil hat, are you? Put that thing away. No, it's uh, it's uh, it's already on. Cause, cause we're gonna we're gonna need it for this next section here. This is a show where we pride ourselves in the facts, Mm-mm. in reading a bunch of articles. Um, well, uh, I'm gonna just lay down a lot of facts here, but uh. These connections, you know, like uh, the lines you might or might not draw between them, uh, you might want some tinfoil for that. So I got my tinfoil hat on. I've got my diamond smoothie here. Uh, Purchase both of these products at ashesashes.org. Let's go. So uh, there's a little bit of conspiracy here, Daniel, admittedly, but also there's a lot of facts and a lot of strange connections that we'll leave it as an exercise to the listener to try and make some of these connections if they feel so inclined. And really what this comes down to is that point I was making earlier, which is the fact that borders are great for moving capital around, but intentionally so they've made it difficult to move people. But here is a small problem. When you're building these mega works projects like dams or massive mines or trying to log a forest, well, there's usually people on that land, people who have a right to that land because they've been there oftentimes for literally thousands of years. And removing people who have legitimate claims to the land, well, you know, there are ways around that. If you find enough money, you can, you can illegally or questionably purchase things during civil wars or uh, basically give people no options. And, well, what do you know? That's actually what happens here. And then the question becomes, though, what do you do with the people who you've kicked off their land? Murder. Well, uh, I mean, that 100% happens, but... If you don't want to make a mass grave, you just tell them to go get a job and hope they figure it out. Well, in a way, that sort of is what they do. Imagine a system, okay? Uh, Basically, an enormous conveyor belt that is designed to move not just capital, but rather people from certain parts of Central America into the United States. And then once they get into the United States, entering a second conveyor belt that moves them throughout the country and then back across the border endlessly cycling these people into human meat machines that grind up their labor so people can profit and suffering is the outcome. And uh, this is the system that we're about to lay down. This is the migrant crisis in a nutshell. And the question that we really need to examine here is how might the Guatemalan state and whatever corporations are building these mega projects for them, these international companies, 
The states of other neighboring countries, like Mexico, the various Mexican cartels, and the U.S. Border Patrol all come together to solve this problem. Well, one way might be that the Border Patrol could turn a blind eye towards some people crossing the border. Or, alternatively, if this conspiracy were to go up to even higher levels of government, then small adjustments and tweaks could be made in U.S. Border Patrol enforcement methodologies and even laws, opening the border up for more crossings. So if they're turning a blind eye or adjusting their practices of securing the border, well, that might allow companies the time to develop land when the people who have been displaced have been pushed out. And once this land has been thoroughly developed, well, what do you do with these people that the United States now decides they don't want? Well, you deport them back out of the U.S. But now it's too late for them to do anything. Let's look at this a little bit closer. So the author of No Wall They Can Build tells a story in their book about a time between 2013 and 2014. No More Deaths or No Mas Muertes uh, was getting a lot of calls from bus stations in Arizona where the U.S. Border Patrol had been dropping unusually high numbers of undocumented women and children off. So this is U.S. Border Patrol releasing undocumented people in America during this time. Wait, let me, let me jump in before this. So this time frame here is important, Daniel, because it's something that a lot of people uh, will recognize, maybe not at first glance when you hear those dates, but when you hear those dates and you start thinking about the migrant crisis, as this popular narrative is in the United States, this is the beginning of the rise of the modern concern of undocumented children, of refugee caravans, and Obama's own surge in border enforcement. Yeah. And in 2014, uh, 95% of all of the children, unaccompanied children, that is, that were crossing the U.S.-Mexico border were from Central America. So the conspiracy we're talking about here, this is all anecdotal from this author because no journalist really looked at this hard. But during this time, uh, the author reports that three things happened all at once. First, Mexican authorities on the Guatemalan border were issuing seven-day migration passes to Central Americans in mass. Second, in the United States, Border Patrol would apprehend women and children in the desert, find out that they were indigenous people from the San Marcos and Huehuetenango regions of Guatemala, and then set them free after assigning them a arbitrary court date some months in the future. And three, Guatemalans who ran into Nomas Muertes were reporting that cartels were collaborating with mining companies to clear huge swaths of land in San Marcos and Huehuetenango for the purpose of mining and general cartel business, that is, smuggling and trafficking. Shortly thereafter, what you alluded to, David, was the crackdown on the U.S. side. After the media reported a, quote, unaccompanied minors crisis, end quote, and uh, Border Patrol quickly halted their practice of dropping these people off, and the Obama administration then intensified deportations. So let me simplify this and roll this all down again, and then you can make the connections if you feel like they're there or not. A large company is trying to develop a mega project in Guatemala. The problem is this land is filled with indigenous people. So cartels, government forces, and other groups start kicking these people off their land. In that same process, they start giving these people a pass that allows them to cross the borders of Central America with no questions asked for seven days. These people in mass begin to start moving north, make it to Mexico, 
when they encountered the Mexican cartels who cut deals with them extremely cheap to cross the border. They make it across, but they're oftentimes confronted and met immediately by U.S. Border Patrol. Border Patrol grabs them, but then just files some paperwork and then lets them go within the United States to deal with at a later time. What's important here is that all of these organizations, the Guatemalan government, the Mexican authorities issuing migration passes, the Mexican cartels, and the U.S. Border Patrol all just happen to change their policies within a couple weeks of each other in order to streamline this flow of people across the border. And somebody profited billions of dollars off of this by constructing this project down in Guatemala. The people who were obstructing the construction of this were removed without any questions asked. And then once the project was completed, things went back to normal with heavy crackdowns, in large part helped by the U.S. media. Okay, well, I'll just take off my tinfoil hat now. and Put that thing back under your desk, David. I'll, I'll roll it up into one of those extremely smooth tinfoil balls. Have you seen this? Back to the book, David. Quote, Was this widely publicized crisis the result of a sincere effort to manage the border more compassionately? Was it a cold-blooded displacement strategy that directly benefited corporate, governmental, and criminal elites of four countries? Or was it both at once? I have no way to be certain. My guess is a little of the former and a lot of the latter. I wish an actual investigative journalist had tried to pin down what was happening. In fact, no one in any sector of the press put these pieces together. Regardless, the episode illustrates one of my central themes. The regulation of human movement according to place of birth cannot, cannot be made just. Even well-intentioned attempts to enact humane border policies will have unforeseen and probably undesirable consequences. End quote. And yes, uh, this might be a little bit of conspiracy here, but the fact of the matter is these types of projects happen all the time. And this sort of exportation of humans across borders to be someone else's problem is a standard operating procedure in Latin America, predominantly because of investment of international companies coming into these lands and forcing people who have been there for forever off their land with no choice or recourse. This is a system designed to get rid of these people in a way that is most expedient for those who stand to profit off of these construction projects. And these are the types of things that create this migrant crisis in the United States. The very actions of the American companies and the rich individuals who run those companies who turn around and then complain about how many illegals or whatever they want to call them are coming into the United States. This is a system built by their exploitation. And it shouldn't be a surprise to Americans that these aren't people just trying to get a better life. It's people who have had a better life denied to them and they're doing anything they can. But Daniel, no discussion of the border would be complete without what catches the most attention for American media beyond the migrants themselves. And that is the lucrative black market trade that happens across it, predominantly from the Mexican cartels and consisting mostly of drugs. So uh, this could be its own series, like everything we talk about in this uh, episode. You could talk about Mexican cartels for forever, but uh, this is the Cliff Notes version. I just want to go over a couple important points here because you can't understand the border without understanding the relationship that the criminal underbelly has with it. Because 
like all forms of prohibition and a border is a form of prohibition it creates crime right so the border prevents the free flow of people of goods and anytime you prevent something somebody somewhere will step up to make sure that things still flow given the right price and when you have other prohibitions going on at the same time things like drugs well then you're just upping the price even more and ensuring that only the most radical the most extreme groups of people are the ones that are going to be able to fill that niche and that is what has given way to these vastly violent groups of people uh, primarily the Sinaloa cartel who runs most of the marijuana and uh, agricultural based drugs across the border and the Zetas cartel the second most powerful cartel right now who they've been battling it out there's a lot of turf war stuff going on uh, and, and this is such a complicated deep topic I almost I'm hesitant to tackle any of it here because I know I'm going to be leaving stuff out. So if you start screaming at, at the radio, I'm sorry. And know that I know that there are things being omitted for the sake of brevity. We just, we have to. This is a really fascinating topic. If you're interested in more, there are several great chapters on this in the book that we keep referencing, No Wall They Can Build. Please check it out. So let's start for a second, maybe, Daniel, by just explaining a little bit about these two cartels and where they came from, and a little about how they operate. We'll start with the Sinaloan cartel, which is the big whale of the border and of much of the drug trade that happens between the United States and Central and South America. Earlier, we talked about factors influencing migration in Mexico, one of them being the North American Free Trade Agreement. And, and one of the most devastating impacts of NAFTA was the confluence of two things. One, the privatization of land formerly in the hands of people into private businesses and even foreign companies in some case, and the fact that American ag business could now flood Mexican markets with corn at a price cheaper than Mexicans could grow it themselves. And those two forces drove countless people off their land. Many people's lives were ruined, but it did create a space in the market where all this agricultural land was being used for commodity crop production or, or just subsistence farming for things like corn before, well, if that was no longer profitable, it suddenly made sense to grow other things like marijuana. And this gave rise to the Sinaloan cartel, utilizing all these countless people desperate for work who had been driven off their agricultural land, but having skills as farmers. Well, they could now find work for the Sinaloan cartel back on the same land, but instead of corn, growing drugs for the profitable smuggling business. And I think this agricultural core of the Sinaloan cartel is really interesting because it reflects itself in the way that the entire cartel is organized. It's much more of a bottom-up type of organization. And yes, you know, at the very top is El Jefe de Jefes, but uh, there is overall a commitment to helping the peasant as they see it, where as long as you're good and you're honest in the eyes of the cartel, meaning you don't move in uh, on their territory or do anything that the cartel would disagree with, then they will take care of you. Uh, this is in direct contrast to the more chaotic Zetas cartel, which is much smaller than the Sinaloan cartel because in large part they don't need this vast agricultural uh, product because a lot of their income comes from harder drugs as well as human trafficking and other things. Uh, the Sinaloan cartel likes to consider themselves as honest drug traffickers, but not murderers, except when they have to be. And uh, maybe 
this brings up a good moment to talk about just the the way American media sees the Mexican drug wars, where it's these cartels and they're battling uh, the Mexican government who's trying to take them out and end the drug trade. And no, it's not really like that. It's the various cartels and whatever current parts of the government are allied with them at that time, allied with whichever particular cartel. Uh, they're all constantly battling and shifting to see who gets to control the trafficking market, whether it's drugs and humans or other illicit goods. And that includes the government. The government is not oftentimes predominantly trying to shut down the drug trafficking. They are trying to get their share of it. And that's an important distinction because the Zetas cartel has its roots within the government. And so while the U.S.'s actions and NAFTA created the Sinaloan cartel and created this vast amount of drugs that will flow across the American border to sate our ever-rising appetite for drugs in order to numb this horrible hellscape that we've decided to build, uh, the Zetas cartel is interesting because we've also created that, but as a reaction to our creation of the Sinaloan cartel. So uh, there was a, a special ops Corps in the Mexican army called GAFE, G-A-F-E. And what we did was we took 500 members of that group and took them to the United States, took them to Israel, took them to Guatemala, and trained them in commando special operations and counterinsurgency at places like Fort Bragg in order to combat the Sinaloan cartel and more importantly, the Zapatistas, who were the revolutionary farmers who, once again, because of NAFTA, decided that they had enough of this shit. They weren't going to uh, switch to doing drug trafficking, but they were going to have a revolution. And they sort of did in a semi-successful way. They're still around, resisting the Mexican government to this day. So we decided that, no, we can't have any socialists or communists in Mexico, so we're going to train 500 special operations commandos to go in there and kill them, um, to take out the Sinaloan cartel, and to fix this mess that we've created by the complete economic destruction of Mexico. <laughs> well, it didn't take very long for the 500 specially trained commandos to just start killing everybody, becoming the enforcement wings of various smaller cartels, killing everybody in those smaller cartels above them until they took over the cartel and became the Zetas, the second most powerful and much more violent cartel in the Mexican cartel economy. It's to coin a phrase, I guess, right there. And so... In this situation here, we have these two forces that the United States identifies as huge enemies in their control of security of the border, but in reality, we directly, almost directly, created both of them. We blame this on Mexico, we blame this on everybody else besides us. We're continuously, we keep creating these problems and making them worse, and then blaming when people try and escape from these places of violence that we continuously enact on the people. And not ourselves, not that our actions, it's like, uh, we've made these types of, of uh, comparisons before, Daniel, like if I came to your house and I lit your house on fire and it's like burning and I burst out of the door of my burning house and I find you standing there with the baseball bat, picking me up and putting me back in repeatedly. This is, this is us enforcing the border. Wait, I thought you set my house on fire. No, you set my house on fire. Well, whoever's house you set on fire, someone, America, which is your new name, set my uh, Mexican house on fire. Okay. I'm trying to escape my, my house, but America is standing outside my door with the baseball bat, and they beat me every time I walk out. But eventually I'm able to sneak out, and I have nowhere to live now because you burned my house down and I'm homeless. So I, I figure that the least you can do as a neighbor is give me a little place 
to, uh, you know, couch surf or something. And I'm going to fix a bunch of stuff around your house while I'm there and like feed your cat and clean stuff, you know, to sort of pay you back. But then you discover me hiding there and uh, you either like lock me up in a cage or uh, kick me back into my burning house and then light it on fire again on the way out. You know, this is almost exactly what the United States is doing in this situation is continuing to do. And I, I realize at this point I'm getting a little bit distracted from my uh, cartel discussion, but, uh, but that really is what's happening. We continue to create these violent, just disaster zones. And it, it really is. I mean, these are literal war zones. And they're fueled and funded by American interests, by our bungling and the willingness to make money over the suffering of other people. And, and to get back to this, you know, oh, there is this conception, too, that the other thing that's being smuggled back and forth across the border in both directions is huge amounts of weapons and drugs. And yes, you know, that does occur in some amounts. But the vast majority of the weapons that are used in this cartel battle uh, between the various cartels, between the various sections of the Mexican government and within itself, it's almost a civil war, really, aren't things that are smuggled across. These are mostly weapons and ammunition that are sold to the Mexican government by American military contractors. Once again, this whole destabilized scenario that we've created is something that allows us to profit. So it's in our best interest to keep it going and to keep this violent conflict happening in order to make those profits go as high as possible. But of course, all of this comes back to Daniel, that trafficking that must be done in order to fund all of this conflict in the first place. And trafficking, once again, can only occur when the products are illegal and when the process of crossing those products across invisible lines is also illegal. And so the U.S. policies of drug prohibition, the American appetite for endless amounts of drugs, and the stricter and stricter enforcement of the border, which has pushed border crossings to become more and more difficult, making people who want to cross for whatever reasons, whether they're pushed off their indigenous land, whether they're trying to return home to the town that they lived in most of their life before they were deported, whatever it is, the increasing difficulty of making that journey pushes people into the hands of the cartels, making their second largest business, of course, human trafficking after that drug smuggling. Okay, but, but let's, let's nail this down a little bit more into the very specifics of how this happens. So a lot of times you can't afford to cross the border if I'm somebody trying to get in the United States. It costs thousands of dollars, maybe $10,000, right? It's expensive. And so what some people find is that they can't afford it, but the cartel offers them a deal. If you carry over this huge bushel of drugs that you'll wear across your back, uh, typically marijuana, then in exchange, you will get free passage. We'll send basically what's a guide who will show you the way. And you and 10 to 20 other people will follow along and deliver the drugs to some appointed place. Uh, and Daniel, for this part, I'm getting my conspiracy tinfoil back on once again. It's a large border and there's a lot of money and product flowing across. And so the United States Border Patrol is actually pretty decent at knowing everything that's happening across the border. They have billions of dollars, incredible amounts of technology and manpower. And while there are thousands of miles of this border patrol, they have a pretty good idea of who is where. It's just a matter of choosing to interdict them or not. And so the cartel has made a lot of deals with individual Border Patrol agents in order to streamline their flow. And you can't just have all the drugs go across 
with no problem because that would look suspicious if, at least in the eyes of the court, the drug flow entirely stopped. Now, some drugs have to get captured. It's a good look for the Border Patrol. It keeps the courts happy and it keeps the system flowing. So what happens more or less is that some runs where these people cross are fine. These people get away, no problem, they make it. Those are the ones that either they were lucky or Border Patrol uh, had a deal with the cartel to allow this to happen. Then there are other runs that are basically sacrificial where they know Border Patrol is going to be. They oftentimes will arrange it purposefully and they sacrifice these poor people who are just trying to cross and trying to find a way to pay their way to the Border Patrol in exchange to give them a large bust. This looks good for the Border Patrol. They can do a PR release about this. Uh, individual agents can get their citations and move up. And it's, it's a very much quid pro quo moment. And yes, you know, there are some natural busts. I don't want to say that that never happens. And not every single agent is crooked, but a lot of them are. And which brings us to the third type of, of interdiction, where some of these are intentional, some of them are not. Border Patrol will find themselves encountering people carrying these drugs. And instead of arresting them, filling out all that paperwork, bringing the, the drugs to the evidence room, you know, whatever, that whole process. Instead, they will just take the drugs off of these people, leave them in the desert by themselves to find their way out. Maybe they'll tell them the general direction to go and then go home. And Border Patrol agents, they're paid well. After a couple years on the job, uh, you're making $70,000 a year before overtime uh, benefits, anything else. But one of these bushels that are carried on the back of a single person can fetch somewhere between 40000 and a quarter million dollars. So it's not hard to see why an agent might be tempted to take one or two of these and either take a direct payment from the cartel by making sure it finds its way to wherever it's going and they get a cut of that, or by dispensing of it themselves if they decide they want to get into that business. It's very easy to double, triple, or even more your salary in a year with just one or two of these things where no one is going to question, no one is going to stop you, and no one is the wiser. This is an open secret that this happens in the Border Patrol. Everyone who works in Desert Aid or who uh, a lot of former Border Patrol agents will tell you that, yes, of course this is happening. Everybody kind of knows it's happening. It is sort of seen as a perk of the job. Don't ask, don't tell. So this is another way that we find the United States government, in this case through the actions of individual people, really directly benefiting from this drug trade, from the smuggling that they are supposedly pledged to stop. Well, David, you know, normally I'd tell you to put your conspiracy hat away, your tinfoil hat away, um, but actually this time I think maybe you don't go far enough. And because I know you preface that whole thing by saying it's a bit conspiratorial that border patrol and other immigration officials might be helping cartels smuggle drugs across the border? Well, there is actually some data to back that up. There was a study published in October 2019. Uh, its, its title is Law Enforcement Corruption Along the U.S. Borders, and in it, researchers from San Diego University looked at data from 156 criminal cases of officers and agents who worked for the U.S. Customs and Border Protection. And most of these criminal cases relate to organized crime. Now, this is going to blow your mind a little bit. A lot of these agents from this 156 you know, criminal cases, most of these were paid 
thousands of dollars cash to do various organized criminal things, right? But there are a couple of agents that stand out. There was one agent who earned $5 million from cartels over five years. And this one, okay, the jackpot goes to uh, this female agent who was working out of El Paso. And she managed in just three years <laughs> to smuggle $288 million worth of marijuana into the United States. That's, that's a quarter, that's more than a quarter of a billion dollars in marijuana. One agent, Border Patrol, Customs and Border Protection agent, over three years. And referring to this particular case, um, the author of the study writes, quote, investigators suspected that she had sought employment with Customs and Border Protection in order to enable this smuggling operation, end quote. Which is interesting. I'll come back to that. Uh, continuing from the paper, quote, the lack of low-level ad hoc petty corruption and the high percentage of drug and immigration-related cases, that is human smuggling, suggest that trust-based strategic conspiracy between the corrupt partners is already the dominant form of border corruption in the United States. Tighter border security may further increase the level of this type of bribery. End quote. The, those are powerful words. Um, and remember, we made this point in part one that national security is not the same thing as public safety. And what this paper argues is that the more that we as a nation militarize our law enforcement agencies, the, the more we criminalize immigrants and the harder we crack down at the border, the less safe our communities will be because rates of corruption among our law enforcement agencies are going to go out the roof. And it kind of makes sense, right? I mean, we're empowering a class of people to oversee one of the greatest smuggling arenas in the world. Uh, we're giving them that power. They're the ones with all the equipment, the surveillance. They know the routes. They have the connections. And when they're stopping people in the desert, carrying a quarter of a million dollars of product on their back, is it any wonder that our officers are engaged in drug smuggling? And earlier, I think it was also part one um, of the show, Doug talked about how the militarization of the border has changed the nature of work for border patrol agents, where in the past they performed long-term, you know, lifelong careers at the border. Um, they lived there in El Paso or wherever, but now you have agents who receive like highly militarized training. You were saying, David, that they come in here scared for their lives, thinking that you know, they're combating the greatest terrorists the world has ever seen. They stay for six months and then they're rotated out. And that creates a very different dynamic. And in fact, what this paper found is, quote, employees working along the southern border of the U.S. with very short histories of service were more likely to be involved in drug-related corruption than their senior counterparts who were instead prone to immigration-related corruption, end quote. And so I think that's just very interesting that, you know, we're, we're giving these agents military-style training, rotating them out every six months, and that is itself what's contributing to higher rates of drug smuggling. Again, there's a difference between national security and public safety. Um, and I guess 
giving ultimate power and authority to huge law enforcement agencies who criminalize people based on their skin color, who are taught to brutalize people who are basically fleeing violence and the destruction of their homes. Maybe it should be no surprise that we find a little nefarious behavior among these groups of people. Quote, In the United States, the cartels need the government, while the government makes great use of the cartels. The cartels rely on the U.S. government to keep the prices of their goods and services artificially high, while the government uses the cartels to justify funneling billions of dollars to the transnational corporations whose interests they represent. On the Mexican side, it is not realistic to talk about the government and the cartels as if they are separate entities. There, the government and the various cartels are fighting for control of the multi-billion dollar American drug and migration market. And so I want to talk just for one moment here, Daniel, about a question of what do we do in this situation? And there's a lot in the drug world where we say, well, if we could just legalize marijuana, then this problem would go away. And to be fair, there is some truth in the fact that if we legalized marijuana across this United States, like it probably should be, then the trade of marijuana from Mexico to the United States would be drastically cut. They'll probably not completely eliminate it. But the question remains then, these cartels aren't just going to go away because marijuana is no longer going to be making them lots of money. These structures that they've built won't just disappear. Instead, they'll try and fill that gap with something else. And in fact, in many cases, they already have. Marijuana prices have been going down, the shipments have decreased. So the Sinaloan cartel and the Zetas have compensated by producing more hard drugs. Much of that marijuana land that they were using is now growing poppies. And those poppies are used to make heroin and other opiates, and they were shipped across to the United States, feeding the opioid crisis that we see happening here. This is supply and demand. The same forces that got people hooked on opiates in the United States, these pharma companies like we've explored in our episode on the opioid crisis, in episode 47, Painkiller, created the demand for ever more opioids. As the U.S. cracked down domestically on the disbursement of those pills, well, the cartels took that as an opportunity to increase their production, as well as actually Chinese smuggling groups with fentanyl that crossed the border that way. These criminal syndicates stepped in to exacerbate the problem that American companies created in the first place. And the United States responded not by trying to help people, by trying to get them clean, by offering the resources needed to fight this epidemic, but rather primarily with crackdowns that create more crime, that push people farther and farther from a sustainable way of living, and just exacerbated the problem further. This prohibition, once again, is creating more crime. But of course, the question then is, if we were to legalize drugs, all drugs, with a crazy move, what would the cartels do? Because once again, they're not going away. They're going to earn money somehow. And just like they are with human trafficking now, if we were to eliminate that source of income, what would they do? And that's a question that is often not asked when we're discussing things like drug prohibition, when we're discussing things like people moving across the borders, human trafficking. Human trafficking, I think a lot of times it's lumped into sexual trafficking, but there's a lot of people who are trafficked as labor, uh, not just sexual labor, and we can't erase their stories either. 
I don't know if we have answers, but these are important things that need to be part of those discussions of people who want to solve these deeply systemic issues. Once again, turning to the book, No Wall They Can Build. I worked in the desert for seven years. The Minutemen had no compassion, no vision, and no soul. To interject, for those of you who are not familiar with the term Minutemen, these are those militia types who will show up at the border as vigilantes to try and enforce border law in what they see is the proper way according to the Constitution. Because they know that Border Patrol selectively enforces that law, and so they try and take the law into their own hands, oftentimes with disastrous consequences. The Minutemen had no compassion, no vision, and no soul, but in some ways they were right. If the government wanted to shut down drug smuggling and human trafficking on the border, they probably could, but they won't. There's too much money at stake. American politicians, Mexican politicians, border patrol, cartels, local police, state police, federal police, private security, DEA, FBI, SWAT teams, banks, employers, bail bondsmen, lawyers, public defenders, district attorneys, judges, courts, county jails, state prisons, federal prisons, private prisons, weapons manufacturers, erectors of towers, builders of walls, total surveillance infrastructure, eternal war profiteering, the corporate state. The whole thing is a sick charade. They'll never cut the head off of the golden goose. Don't bet on it. The border divides the whole world into gated communities and prisons, one within the other in concentric circles of privilege and control. At one end of the continuum, there are billionaires who can fly anywhere in private jets. At the other end, inmates in solitary confinement. As long as there is a border between you and those less fortunate than you, you can be sure that there will be a border above you too keeping you from the things you need. And who will tear down that second border with you if not the people separated from you by the first? This is part three, what can we do? Volunteers sometimes ask me what I think a just border policy would look like. I tell them that there is no such thing. It is a contradiction in terms. I am not interested in helping the authorities figure out how to fix the mess they've created. Ultimately, the only hope for solution to the border crisis lies in bringing about worldwide systemic change that ensures freedom of movement for all people rejects the practice of state control over territory, honors indigenous autonomy and sovereignty, addresses the legacies of slavery and colonization, equalizes access to resources between the global north and the global south, and fundamentally changes human beings' relationship to the planet 
and all of the other forms of life that inhabit it. That's a tall order. Where to start? Where to start indeed, David. It's a couple of really powerful quotes here, Daniel. Again, from that No Wall They Can Build book, which we can't recommend highly enough, but it, it really does a good job of summing up sort of where we are, I feel like, at least after all this research and effort put into constructing this episode, where there's a lot of discussion in media, especially right now with the primary season going on and the democratic election coming up and the presidential election following that, where people are talking about these things. These subjects are coming up, but the conversations themselves are so limited in scope and in, in the way that they imagine the world and how we interact with each other that they're just different ideas of doing the same old horrible things that have built these problems as we've explored throughout this episode and has been the case for over 100 years at this point. Yeah, for me, what's most frustrating is when I hear in popular media, you know, this idea that like we can't ignore the fact that there's a crisis at our border. We can't ignore the fact that there's concentration camps, you know, on our own soil. And so there, there is this acknowledgement within popular media that this, these terrible things are going on. But then the response is, is somehow, oh, well, you know, we need to just train our officers better. We need to provide more funding for border security. You know, we all hate Trump and his border wall. So let's, let's be smart about immigration control, right? Let's, let's hire drones and, and let's divert money into technology because technology will solve this problem. When you're right, it totally skirts the issue, which is that at the heart of this is cruelty and inhumanity that seeks to separate people in the first place. Like, I mean, the fact that we're dividing people based on uh, country of origin or skin color, we're, we're excluding some people, including other people. I mean, this is the heart of the issue. The fact that we're criminalizing people of color for no reason other than the fact that they, uh, their skin color is darker than white people and we treat them with suspicion and we raid their communities and we take resources away from their neighborhoods to funnel it into the police who are protecting the white communities. I mean, and then our, our companies are employing people precariously, taking advantage of immigrant labor. And then, oh, when those immigrants speak out about the criminality of their bosses, our bosses collude with ICE to deport them so that no criminal process can be carried out against those bosses that are uh, skirting environmental laws or skirting construction standards on, on the hotels they're building for us. I mean, everything is interconnected, and it's, and it's not a problem that can be solved through incremental, oh, you know, we just need to make the jails prettier, we need to give ICE a little bit more funding so that it can process people quicker and more humanely, and we need to tear the system down. But, you know, like that quote you just read, David, that's a pretty tall order. <laughs> well, to say the least, but I think it's really important just to take one moment here and pay attention to the fact that when it comes to those in power, really nobody is working on this project. I know everyone in the media is, is so excited for whatever empty gesture Nancy Pelosi or the Democrats have, pretending that they are resisting Trump's slowly creeping fascism. But when it comes down to things like the border, once again, these are people uh, not discussing lowering the security at all. But they say, what if instead of building a wall, we built a smart wall of, like you said, Daniel, drones and towers and things. But the policies of excluding us from the rest of the world, of denying people who are fleeing here for economic or physical safety reasons, 
is the same. And no one is talking about the fact that we need to rethink this because our policy right now is one of death. And that keeps coming up over and over again. And as we've mentioned throughout this, as we discuss this stuff, as we've been working on this show, the situation has been evolving. It's been changing. We're finding out new horrible things all the time. Uh, we're at the very couple days before release as we record this. And still, I saw a report come out earlier this week, Daniel, from the Human Rights Watch that followed 200 people who were denied entry to the United States from El Salvador. Uh, they were seeking asylum. They came here. They were picked up. They were ultimately deported back to El Salvador. And what Human Rights Watch did was they followed these people and said, okay, we're going to investigate their, their stories, follow up with them, and see what happens when the U.S. denies their asylum and they're forced to return to the country from whatever they were fleeing from. And of that 200 people, 138 were murdered. They are dead now. And the remaining people, every single one of them was raped or tortured. That's it. All 200 people followed were victims of these crimes that they were trying to flee from, that we denied protection to. And they paid the price, oftentimes the ultimate price, because of these policies that the Democrats, the Republicans, and most of this country, most of the people in the world who are working on building these walls, remember more walls than have ever been built before in history, this is their policy. It's one of death. These are weapons of war. They are used to kill people. And that's what we're, we're seeing now when we follow these numbers back. These are the real costs of this. It's, it's not about embarrassment for the nation of the way that somebody talks or the fact that we're, we're you know, pretending that we're not following these ideas that, that the U.S. was supposedly built upon. But these are actual deaths happening. And these return to civility, well, I've got news for you. This country has never been civil. It's never been built on these, these fake values that people like to assign to the, the founding fathers or other people who came ahead of us. The poem on the Statue of Liberty, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses. No, this country has always been built on suffering and it's always been built on oppression. And we've rewritten that history. And in the process of denying this, this grotesque blood debt, that we built up over all these years, we've forgotten how to fight back because not only is this country built on oppression, but it's been built on a history of resisting that, of overcoming it, oftentimes with people sacrificing their lives. But inch by inch, death by death, we've moved forward and we've improved a lot over the past 250 years. It's not something that's been moving backwards. Every day is a little bit better, but it has come at tremendous cost to get there. And in denying this history of resistance, of denying the anarchists who blew themselves up to give us our five-day work weeks, and denying the slaves that murdered their masters in order to try and find a better world, and denying this history of resistance, we have forgotten how to resist ourselves. And so we look instead to those in power, to these useless Democrats, these useless Republicans sitting in Congress saying, oh, we're doing what we can to help you. But that help amounts to nothing more than reinforcing the status quo. No wonder no change happens because we've forgotten how to make things better because we've denied our history. In wanting to escape this bloodshed, we've just created more of it and we benefit from that collectively. So we need to remember that this country has a history of popular resistance and we need to remember that we are all parts of that. That if we continue leaving progress up to those in power, well, when they benefit from what's happening now, and if there's one thing that we've really tried to establish in this episode is that those in power absolutely do 
benefit from the border, from the death the border walls cause, from cutting this world into smaller and smaller chunks of restricting the flow of people while capital and goods fly around the world at ever-increasing speeds. They benefit from all this. They profit from it. In fact, they depend on it. The world economy as we know it is built upon this suffering and it requires it to survive. And if we want any change in people's lives to make sure that we are not building a world of oppression and death, then we have to not depend on those in power to make a difference, but we need to take back that power ourselves. And like that quote mentions, Daniel, we have to do that first by sticking our hand down and helping those who have been trodden on the most get their hands up. And collectively, then and only then can we begin to overcome the real problem. And those are everyone on top. Well said. And, and, it's, and it's absolutely necessary that we learn how to resist once again. Look, I mean, this is an issue that impacts all of us. And I was thinking that maybe it'll seem a little bit weird to people that Ashes Ashes is a podcast that was founded on addressing the systemic causes of climate change. And here we are taking three months break so that we can do this eight hour, seven hour episode on immigration at the U.S.-Mexico border. And, you know, we'll talk about why it took us so long in episode 97 when we return to our chats, but maybe it seems out of place. But in fact, I think that this issue represents, or it is a microcosm of everything we talk about, of the tip of the iceberg of everything we're going to feel down the road. If we don't get this planet and our societies back on a, a more holistic, sustainable, and humane track. And that's because, again, going back to the climate change issue, we started this podcast, David, because there are kind of two different approaches to existential threats. And one of those, and it kind of has been the historically dominant viewpoint, is that in the face of existential threat, we should bunker down, we should lock the keys, you know, lock our doors, get our guns together, go into the basement where all our food stores is, and, and don't let anyone near our property who's going to be trying to steal from us. And we said no. This is the time where we need to come together as communities. This is the time we need to open our arms to people because that's what's going to make us strong, is opening our doors to those in need so that we can reciprocate that support, that solidarity, and we can build systems that are resilient in the face of these existential threats and dangers. And talking about climate change, we did speak much earlier in this episode about how the border wall itself and the activities by our enforcement agents down at the border are contributing to climate change, you know, pulling water out of desert aquifers to mix concrete for border walls that are then disrupting the migratory flows of animal species, ruining biodiversity, ruining the soil. They're literally blowing up organ pipe right now, too, like with explosives. That's, that's the latest uh, thing we just found out is happening, like literally exploding this beautiful national monument. Yeah, it's absolutely insane. You can't make this up. But so much of this migration coming north is itself a response to climate change, destroying people's homes. And, you know, that quote that you read uh, to kick this chapter of the episode off, David, where you said, you know, as long as there is a border between you and those less fortunate than you, you can be sure there will be a border above you too, keeping you from the things you need. Aren't we all at risk of being displaced? 
because of the changing environmental landscape. I was just at a farming conference the other day, David, and I was listening to this farmer, a vegetable farmer who has been working the land for over 30 years. Um, and he was teaching how to do no-till vegetable farming, how to protect the soil. But he was showing us pictures of his property in Connecticut and showing us how all the trees in his state, the state of Connecticut and the United States, are degrading. The foliage is not as thick. They're yellow instead of green. The insects that used to inhabit the forest are gone. And he's, he's saying, look, I look around myself and the land is just falling apart in front of my eyes. And, and this conference was in New Hampshire, so like a couple hours north of Connecticut. And he said, you know, I was driving up to your state in New Hampshire and I was looking at your trees. And I realized that the land that has been degrading on my property and in my state that same process is happening to you. It's just a couple years behind. And it was really sobering because this is happening, right? And so we need to recognize that we're all at risk of being displaced. Our land is threatened by these broad forces of, of human-induced climate change, resource extraction. And if we're going to empower agencies that are putting people in cages because they've been forced off their homes, well, what do you think is going to happen to us? Right. This it's all connected. Yeah, this is a really important point, and I'm glad you're bringing it up here, Daniel. And that's it's it's sort of funny, you know, for the past, I don't know, 20, 30 years, people have been saying, if only we could convince these conservatives that climate change was real. If only we could get that. Well, uh, I've got bad news for you. The monkey paw finger has curled, and I think you're starting to see this shift into people on the, the right-wing spectrum, accepting climate change is something that is going to happen as something that is inevitable, even if they'll argue about exactly why that's the case. They'll say, okay, well, the Earth is warming, and maybe it's because of the sun and natural cycles or whatever. Um, they'll still, you know, deny that it's coal. Or, I'm getting beside myself. But the point is, is they recognize climate change is occurring. And unfortunately, uh, for all the people who are wishing that, that this recognition would bring about some sort of positive change, it has done the opposite, where they say, okay, well, let's prepare for uh, this disaster. Because a constant disaster and a constant state of disaster is something that is needed if you're trying to control everything. If you need to collect power, you need a reason to collect power. And a crisis creates that reason. And what is better than a constant, ongoing crisis that has no solution? and no end. And that's what climate change offers. It's something unique. It's something we haven't seen before. And it paves the way towards what can only be described as eco-fascism, as a government that is designed or inspired by or operates functionally similar to fascism, uh, collects power and uses it to control people in ways that we haven't seen for decades and hopefully we'll never see. But that is the path forward. And people have recognized this. And there are, right now, in YouTube channels, in think tanks, in government backrooms all around the world, people working on this idea, working out the rhetoric. And you're starting to hear hints of it already, even in the latest Trump State of the Union address, where there are certain things he said that started ringing alarm bells in me and said, okay, well, the time has come. They've recognized that small government, uh, like, we'll control the budget style conservatism is on the way out. And what's the way in is something that, by all appearances, looks like a climate-conscious 
form of fascism that uses this as the crisis to justify more walls, more control, and more racism and everything else that's tied into this system of government. The stuff we see playing out right now in this supposed migrant crisis is the pregame. This is the preview of what we will be seeing on a global scale, not just for the unfortunate people who are trying to come in to the United States right now from Central America because of our policies, but people all around the world and ultimately, in the end, people within the United States as well. Because climate refugees aren't just crossing borders, but they will be moving within states as well. And the policies that are being tested out now, the tools, the techniques, whether they're physical things or whether they're rhetoric or whether they're governmental policies, this is the proving ground. It is happening around the world, and what happens now will decide our future in the coming decades. That's why this topic is so important. That's why we've devoted so much time to tackling this, not just in this episode, but in our numerous episodes about borders, about walls, about maps, about the flow of logistics and trades. All of this is interconnected, and climate change and the associated threats that it creates puts it all at risk. Yeah, I mean, people crossing our border have to present identification and our government will judge if that identification is, you know, valid or not. Just a year ago, I was trying to enter a commercial building in Atlanta and I couldn't get past the front desk without presenting government ID, right? I couldn't go visit this person that I was trying to visit at their workplace without showing the front desk my state-issued ID. The border is everywhere. And you're right, we're looking at a, a worse system in the future unless we can do something about it. So why don't we talk about what we can do, David? Well, I mean, there's a lot of things we can do, but I, I think it might be more interesting to talk about some of the groups that we've already addressed, the people who are already doing things, uh, of, of people you and I have both interacted with in the process of creating this episode, as well as in our own personal activism outside of this show. Uh, and some, maybe we, we get some attention to some of these groups because it's an easy way to get involved right away, or at least, at the very least, kick some, some financial funding to people who are already doing good work. Uh, so let's, let's start with that. Of course, the five organizations that we reached out to specifically for the show, Humane Borders in Tucson, Arizona, Project South in Georgia, El Refugio in Georgia, New American Pathways in Georgia, and the Southern Poverty Law Center. And we will have links to all of these organizations on the webpage. But what I recommend for anybody in this country is see if you can visit a detention facility, right? That's what I did in Georgia through El Refugio. But there are so many local organizations dedicating their time to bringing humanity to the people detained behind bars for no other reason than their immigration status. And those facilities are all over the country. Where can you start? I recommend going to detentionwatchnetwork.org and freedomforimmigrants.org. Both of these have uh, networks of local organizations that you can find in your own state, as well as maps of all the facilities across the country, um, other ways that you can get involved advocating and organizing directly for the issues that are impacting immigrants and refugees in this country. And following that, if you do that or if you don't do that, uh, there's another thing that I want to recommend everyone do, and that's Recognize that there are connections between the profitable system of criminalizing immigrants and your local system of government. 
Um, so, for example, as we discussed in part two, chapter two, when we were talking about the way ICE collaborates with local police, federal immigration agents cannot do what they do without the cooperation of local sheriffs and police agencies and without the cooperation of local jails. So make your voices heard at the local municipal level so that your elected officials feel pressure to end any agreements they may have with ICE and Customs and Border Protection and so that they end the use of local jails for immigrant detention. And this works, right? So in our hometown of Atlanta, Georgia, David, just a few months ago in September of 2019, the city finally capitulated to the prolonged pressure from residents by ending cooperation with ICE and stopping the use of, of the local Atlanta city jail for immigrant detention. And of course, ICE went and tried very quickly to search for another county that would cooperate with them. But this was still a major victory. And, and of course, we would expect ICE to keep trying. But our goal should be to fight to make it as difficult as possible for them to find anyone in this country willing to cooperate with them. And don't stop there. Find more connections. It's not just the jails and the police, which are really obvious examples of ways that federal agents collaborate with local cities and towns, but less obvious may be the way that the unknown government bureaucrats in your town are silently working to approve the construction of new facilities, or you know they check the box on some building permit. All of these things that add up to the tangible, physical systems of oppression. You know, someone at the local level has to approve a budget increase for new law enforcement vehicles, right? These are all avenues for resistance. And too often, the blame for our corrupt systems get placed on the president. And it is true that the U.S. executive branch has catalyzed horrible human rights offenses over the past several years and decades. But no decision by the president gets implemented without armies of the mundane nine to five bureaucrats who are filing the paperwork. And every one of those people should feel the weight of their collective decisions and they should feel pressured to resist. Here's from my interview with Azadeh. But these policies don't get implemented unless those at the local level are willing to implement them, right? I mean, who, who's part of these policies and the cruelty in them that's not getting enough attention? Right. I mean, county commissioners. Um, so the way that a lot of these detention centers appear is that a prison corporations um, such as Core Civic, which you know used to be called the Corrections Corporation of America, CCA, and that's how a lot of us still know them. And to escape their horrible reputation, they changed their name to Core Civic. And so they come to a poor county such as the Stewart County in Georgia, which is one of the poorest counties in Georgia, with the promise of jobs, you know, for the local community. And so they enter into this, you know, basically three-way agreement between ICE, the locality, and the prison corporation for operation of, you know, this detention center. And so definitely the county commissioners have a role to play. And, um, you know, when it comes to local police collusion with ICE, definitely, you know, the sheriffs, the police departments have a role to play. And, you know, they can choose to start playing a positive role. Like, you know, we have seen in some localities in Georgia that are proactively basically coming out and saying that, you know, we don't want to be collaborating with ICE because it's really harmful for us to be doing that. 
And I want to jump in here, Daniel, real quick and point out a couple of examples where this kind of work, whether it's it's working with your local government or if it's people directly involved in this type of oppression, reaching out and doing something themselves, it has successes. There are plenty of examples where these things really do happen and work out to make the world a little bit better. Uh, not long ago in California, for example, they passed a state law that banned local governments from entering into new contracts, unfortunately, it wasn't just old contracts, but new contracts or expanding their current existing contracts for ICE detention beds and also prevents the construction of new detention facilities. So while it doesn't dismantle the system that currently exists, it does go a long way in making sure that it doesn't get any worse than it already is. And for something more direct, last year in Williamson County, Texas, they ended a contract with a detention jail after locals supported the five 100 women in this jail who were being detained there who went on a hunger strike after they were separated from their children and reported having to suffer through sexual abuse. So the media that reported on this, the people who came out and, and heard their story and actually went out and, and lobbied their, their local elected officials, there's a lot of moving parts here from the people in the detention facility to the people ultimately who asked uh, the people that they voted for to make a difference and, and the politicians themselves to actually do something about this. Every single one of these steps had to happen, but they did. And because of this, this system that is so evil got just a little bit better. Another great example. In 2019, the governor of Michigan prevented the sale of a former prison to a private company that wanted to use it for none other than immigrant detention. Well, last year, Daniel, just to one-up that even more, the state of Illinois actually banned private immigrant detention centers altogether. So... It's really easy in this world to think that politics don't matter and the higher up you get, uh, I think that's really something, unfortunately, that's true, but there still is a lot of room to do a lot of good on the local level, whether that is in your, your immediate town, city, municipality, or at the state level. A lot of this budget and a lot of this evil is done just very, very banal forms at these levels, but you can step in there even easier. You don't need dramatic amounts of money or funding. Or, or access to be able to make a difference at this. So we salute everybody who has been doing this work, and we hope that some of you are inspired to do that or at least reach out to people who already are and offer them assistance in whatever way you can. And while it may be the government bureaucrats who end up implementing the policies that the higher forms of government enact, it is the American workforce and our large pool of immigrant labor itself that is actually forced so often into physically carrying out this corrupt system. And if this system is corrupt and lacking in human dignity, that means that, as Padia pointed out, the soul of every person whose hands are forced to build it is impacted. Who builds the detention facilities? Who maintains the ice trucks? Who manufactures furniture for detention facilities? It's workers. It's everyday people. And who processes the payroll checks for ICE agents? It's workers, just typical people. Maybe they went to our high schools. Maybe they got a college degree and they found whatever bookkeeping job they could because they're trying to make a living just like everyone else. And the same thing goes for the medical doctors trying to treat the needless illnesses of detention victims and the nonprofit employees trying to offer advice and service to immigrants in need. At every single point in this system, there's just everyday people trying to make a living and forced to degrade their human dignity by contributing to the injustice 
of the immigration system we've built in this country. And not only are these people victims in one way or another of cruel immigration policies, they are also very powerful forces that can help break the system down. In June 2019, hundreds of workers walked out of Wayfair's Boston headquarters, one of the world's largest furniture manufacturers, because the company was selling beds to a migrant youth detention facility. And the workers said that this is, this is ridiculous. We're not going to stand for it. And when they walked out, they were joined by 3,000 people with just 24 hours notice. They demanded that their company change their policies, enforce ethics, uh, donate the profits from those sales to charity, and many more things. And you know what? Those workers and the people that stood beside them, those are American heroes. And I think we need to reframe what it means to be patriotic in this country. Wendell Berry, one of our favorite authors, writes in one of his essays that true patriotism means love of the land and to steward the land and to take care of the people. Well, I say that any man, woman, or person who puts down their tools at the factory floor in protest of their boss who is forcing them to build weapons of human suffering and any person who locks themselves to the gates of a detention facility at the risk of being gunned down or driven down by heartless law enforcement agents, and any person who sacrifices of themselves to uphold human dignity for the people our government and our corporations are willfully leaving behind, I say that those people are heroes, and they should be recognized as such. Thank you for your service. And David, finally, I think we should continue to expose the ways that broad immigration injustices weaves into so many of the local issues that people care about, right? I was on the campus of Brandeis University in Boston just a week or two ago, and there were students protesting outside the, the school's food service contract with Sodexo, one of the largest food service corporations in America. And the issues they were exposing include labor issues, uh, you know, abuse of their workers, food sovereignty, environmental degradation, and the need for the school to adopt a local self-operation of food service in their cafeteria, all of which are topics for a separate show. But I was also impressed how these students connected the issue of their campus dining service to the way that these companies exploit and further immigration issues, such as through their contracts with large livestock companies in Brazil, contributing to the burning of the Amazon rainforest, and surprise, surprise, forcing people off their homeland and encouraging migration north to the United States, where then either agribusinesses exploit these people for cheap labor on our own agricultural fields, the commodities of which, by the way, then make it into these large food company supply chains and <laughs> back onto our plates and universities, or we simply, through our government, incarcerate them and deport them. And the reason this impressed me is because these are people who identified you know, step by step, oh, the, the workers in our school cafeteria are not being treated right. So we need to address that. But then, oh, wait, well, what is this larger company that's uh, exploiting our local workers? Oh, well, it turns out they're also abusing the immigration and, and colluding with this corrupt system. Well, that's not good. And it built into this big rally that is now connected to a national movement. And that's what we need to all be doing is connecting our local issues that don't just impact us directly, but connect back systemically through the roots of these broader systems that transcend our borders. 
This is such a great point right here, Daniel. And it really ties into that quote once again earlier talking about these levels of borders and how you need to reach down to help people up so they can help you burst these borders above you. And this is what, what's happening. You're seeing local acts of solidarity. And then as they follow the progress of oppression and exploitation throughout this system that enabled this final labor abuse right in your own home, they've seen how helping this one small area can, can stagger through not just hundreds or thousands of people's lives, but across these international borders that we've been talking about throughout this episode and throughout this series. This is what we mean when we say things like act local, think global. Your actions locally can help people all around the world. And, and this is not something to get lost into, because I think a lot of times when we're linking these problems, saying, okay, you know, here's what it is locally. But as we follow this chain back to the other side of the world and see people's lives are being impacted. No. So this is, this is not about being overwhelmed by the scope of problems. It's about understanding that there are allies for you to help defeat these same causes that are making people's lives bad in your place. There are allies around the world who are suffering the same exact type of exploitation and oppression who are there to help you overcome this, not just in your home, not just around your country, but around the world. We are united in a way through this oppression through this exploitation that enables so much suffering in our world. And if we realize that and we take that as a sense of strength, as a sense of international solidarity, then we can really use that effort to push forward instead of getting lost in this nihilism that exists so much when people just start digging into these problems and learning how hopeless everything feels. Yes, you know, it is overwhelming, but also remember the larger the scope of the problem, the more allies you have in the fight to overcome it. Yeah. Each and every one of us is connected in some way to the evil system dividing us. And therefore, each and every one of us has an opportunity to act, to resist, and to offer solidarity and support to the victims. I feel like a lot of people are seeing what's going on in the news, and a lot of people probably feel powerless, maybe even hopeless. Can you speak to that? Can you give advice for people who want to do something, who want to get involved, but don't know where to start? Well, I would say approach, well, first do your research. Find out what the grassroots organizations are that are directly um, you know, being led by directly impacted folks. And then find out from them what the needs are. Sometimes you know, they need volunteers. Um, so for example, the Georgia Latino Alliance for Human Rights here in Georgia is coordinating an ice chasers program mm. where for the past few weeks, every morning between 5 to 8 a.m., they've had a group of folks basically going out there and chasing ice, literally. You know, just um, finding out what's happening, um, you know, ensuring that they have a presence and making sure that, you know, they would be able to document any ICE activity. And so, you know, they might need volunteers. I mean, as a matter of fact, I know that they, you know, always need volunteers for various types of um, actions. But, you know, a lot of the smaller grassroots organizations also just need financial support. You know, it may be that, um, you know, they don't necessarily need you at this moment to do anything concrete. Maybe they've got that covered. But, you know, I can tell you for a fact that um, community-based grassroots organizations always need financial support. So maybe that is something that you can consider um, if you live close to a detention center, go and pay a visit to detained immigrants. Uh, a lot of them may not have anybody visit them at all. You know, they may um, 
have family who you know is maybe undocumented maybe can't come visit maybe you know is far away and so just imagine how isolated and um, broken um, they would feel um, and so just you paying a visit is going to lift up their spirit Well, one of the things I say, so people ask me all the time, like, you know, where's the hope? And I personally see a ton of things to be hopeful about when you think about things at the local and state level, because I think that some of the national immigration policies and some of the national kind of fear and sort of rhetoric about refugees and immigrants actually started at the local and state level, maybe, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And so when I look now at what's happening in Georgia at the local and somewhat at the state level, I see a lot of support for being more welcoming and inclusive. You know, Metro Atlanta is the first um, metropolitan region to have a welcoming policy. We have eight cities with, that have passed welcoming resolutions and the first county in the southeast, DeKalb County, where we are located. Nice, um, nice. Yes. Shout out to DeKalb. Is uh, the first county in the southeast to actually pass a welcoming resolution. We're also seeing on a bipartisan basis in, in the Georgia legislature a lot more just general welcoming approach. And I think that that trend you can see it in a lot of cities across the country, and that gives me hope for the future. So I know people are very overwhelmed at, well, what do I do? And what I feel like over the last couple of years is people can sustain the support and help if it comes from something that they love and feel that they're good at. So, like, for example, I like advocacy. I like talking to elected officials. I feel energized by that. My husband, on the other hand, it's incredibly frustrating to him, and he doesn't want to do that. But he's a graphic designer, and he's designed logos and T-shirts and things for events that we've had for the last couple of years. And, and you know, that's that's where his his love and passion is. So anything from finding an organization like New American Pathways or any organization that's serving refugees and immigrants and um, either donating you know, financially, um, providing backpacks and furnishing and you know, hygiene supplies for new refugees or volunteering your time or you know, doing things like voter registration in New American communities, uh, voter education and civic education, up to you know, advocating uh, with your local, state, and federal elected officials for more welcoming policies. You know, it may feel like one person, what am I really doing? But the collective of of all the things that people are doing, we, we definitely feel it. You know, the love and support that we've received and the love and support that individual families have received is, is very meaningful for us and is something that keeps us going when, when things get really difficult. I think the only way that we can do this work is to recognize and celebrate every small victory. So every single person who we get to visit, um, who we get to recognize their humanity and support, who maybe we get to get out on Bond or Pearl, every single one of those is a huge victory. So it doesn't feel hopeless. And we count on lots of people to help us do that um, in, in many big and small ways. So small ways where people can visit or write letters to people detained at the detention centers. People can um, 
reach out and try to put money on people on detained people's commissary accounts. The um, people who are detained need to pay for phone calls, kind of exorbitant rates, pay for any um, snacks or food that's outside of the not good <laughs> breakfast, lunch, and dinner that they're provided um, and stuff, stuff like that. So we can really make a difference in, in the conditions by just giving people commissary and people ask for books sometimes and letters we always hear back when we encourage people to write letters to certain of our clients or potential clients um they they always say oh i got this beautiful letter it really made my day um and then in bigger ways you know if we do get bond for someone it's not like a criminal bond an immigration bond has to be paid in full so the average bond at steward immigration court is seventy five hundred dollars so supporting bond funds and and um, attempts to raise money for bonds is huge. The worst thing that can happen to us is we secure a bond. The judge says someone can be released on bond, and then the person and their family and friends aren't able to pay it. That's kind of a worst case scenario. And then um, another thing that has been really impactful and helpful for me is We've had some people that we've met who are detained who don't have any close contacts in the U.S. In order to get someone out on bond or parole, we have to show a sponsor, someone where they're going to live, someone who's going to take care of them. And that person needs to have status, either be a U.S. citizen or a lawful permanent resident, and have to have an income sufficient to show that they can take care of another person. So we meet people sometimes who don't have that. And I've actually, my favorite thing that's happened is I've found just people in the United States who are willing to be sponsors. So anybody can do that. Yep. And so they've saved somebody's life. They've gotten, they've written a letter saying this person can come live with me and I'll take care of them. And then because of that, the person has been able to get out of the system. I have some actions for you to take and some of them have been already mentioned. Show up and speak up. Use your work and your privilege to support the immigrant community. Take a space and talk about these immigrant issues in your communities and in your families. Take a space and make a space. Allow members of the affected community to speak out for themselves. Support organizing efforts, donating and volunteering, educate others, and spread the word. Contact your members of Congress. Hold them accountable. Finally, I believe that when everyone is welcome, we all be free. So if you believe that immigrants should be loved and welcomed, turn to them and let them know. You can do that today. Express this exact word to them. You can do that every day when you support immigrants in our community and when you commit to defend and protect their rights. So if ICE comes to them, you will protect them. You will criticize them to stand up for their rights, to harbor them, and to fight for them. We all agree that human life is sacred and precious. If you are a person of faith, you also believe that we have created in God's image. Immigrants are holy and sacred, and like everyone else, we deserve to be here and so do you. Thank you. Speaking of solidarity, 
Here's from the book one more time. Many of the most effective types of direct action can end up looking like some version of damage control. The problem is that it's easier to make attainable goals and quantify success when dealing with individuals than when dealing with a system. I can visualize the steps from A to Z of how to drop 25 gallons of water on a trail. When I wake up in the morning, there is always something that I can do to move towards that goal. I have a much harder time visualizing how to get Border Patrol out of the desert. And a harder time still imagining how to effectuate structural economic change on a global scale. It can be tempting to say that it's better to succeed at what we can do than fail at what we can't. But that's just defeatism. I really don't want to be doing these same water drops 25 years from now. So what should we do? Thankfully, none of us has to do everything. It's not my job to act like Moses and set the people free. That's not how meaningful social change happens. I can do my best to help, but if people are going to get free, they are going to do it themselves. I simply can't call the shots in other people's struggles for liberation. I trust that the millions of people who are most directly affected by immigration and border enforcement will keep finding ways to combat it. There will almost certainly be things that white U.S. citizens can do if we keep our ears to the ground. As always, David, that's a lot to think about. But think about it and do something about it. We really hope you will. I know this is a lot of information and a lot of sources and details and organizations. There are so many ways that you can get involved on an individual level as well as tie yourselves into these larger movements that we need to make the world a better place. And we have so much information on all of that. And you can find that information as well as sources, transcripts, and so much more on our website, ashesashes.org. And also for this special series, we have built a mini site, borders.ashesashes.org, which will not only have this full episode, the transcript, the chapter markers, the sources, and there are a lot of sources that I'm sure you all can't wait to dig into, the books that we've used, but it will also have the full unedited interviews from all of our wonderful guests. It'll have the show broken down into separate sections. It is a work in progress. We will be adding more information as time goes on. Right now, it's a little bit bare bones, but please keep checking back if you want to get involved in this border work. There is a huge amount of resources and a huge amount of people doing fantastic work, and that is just one place that you can find some of this information. So uh, be sure to check it out, share it with people who are interested, and get involved because this is really the beginning of something important as we've talked about. This is the prelude of our future. And if we act now, we can make sure that that future is something we all want to be a part of. As always, a lot of time and research goes into making these episodes. Not in this case, of course, but normally it takes a lot of time and research. And we will never use ads to support this show. So if you like it, would like us to keep going, you, our listener, can support us by giving us a review, recommending us to a friend, or visiting our Patreon at patreon.com slash ashesashescast. You can support us there. Oh, you can also go to our store at ashesashes.org slash shop. Uh, you can find all of our stickers that are created by artists that we kick back a dollar from every sale. If you are an artist yourself and would like to contribute art, please get in touch with us. We have an email address that is contact at ashesashes.org. 
Send us an email. We read it. We appreciate it. And we'd also like to thank our associate producer, John Fitzgerald. Thank you so much. Also, a big shout out to Juan Garza for letting us use some of the music that he made on his YouTube channel, which we'll link to in the show notes. Next week, yes, there is a next week. And I'm so excited to return to this, our weekly episodes going forward for the foreseeable future. We will have a chat show to sort of look back on everything that happened during the production of this episode, a little post-mortem talk, as well as hitting some of the topics that we've seen in the news that have been, well, catastrophic to say the least, at least in our beginning of 2020 so far. So we'll talk about all that. And then the following week, we're back to our hard-hitting deep dives on all things climate change, systemic, and related. So we hope you'll tune in for all that and what we have coming up in the future because we've got a lot planned. And we appreciate all of you for sticking through not only this series, but this episode. We really appreciate all of it. And if you would like to reach out to us, you can do so on our email, contact at ashesashes.org. We also have a subreddit at r slash ashesashescast. We're on your favorite social media network at ashesashescast, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, you name it. And we have a wonderful Discord community that has kept us company over the past few months, as well as helped us with invaluable research and expanded both of our minds in that process. You can find that Discord link on our website. Just click community, Ashes Ashes Discord. That's the invite link. We hope to see all of you there. But until then, this is Ashes Ashes. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.